coffee. I need coffee. Need. I need coffee. Now make me host so I can fix the chair. Yes, mistress. Yes, mistress. Oh, do I need coffee? Oi, do I need coffee? My hair plugs ain't pretty. Oi, do I need coffee? I need coffee. Did I mention I need coffee? I need coffee. I need coffee. Show hasn't started yet. I need coffee. Just warming up here. Okay. Just getting started here. All right. Nobody's bringing me coffee. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the mop up for August 15th, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan, where the temperature is 80 degrees and partly sunny. Andrew Kaczynski over at K-File, he found this clip today of Donald Trump campaigning in August of 2016. This is pretty good. If you'll remember back then in August of 2016, the FBI was opening and closing investigations into Hillary Clinton's use of her private email server when she was Obama's secretary of state. This was a big scandal in the lead up to the 2016 presidential election. You'll remember this accusation, the nonstop investigations into Hillary's email server. They accused her of mishandling classified material that she had allowed into her private home as opposed to, say, oh, I don't know, a private club in Florida frequented by Russian money launderers. Here is Donald Trump making promises back in August of 2016, promises on how he, if elected president, would handle classified material. On political corruption, we are going to restore honor to our government. In my administration... I'm going to enforce all laws concerning all laws. the protection of classified information. No one will be above the law. By the way, two years into Trump's administration, it was revealed that both Jared and Ivanka were using email servers while their own email servers while they were working in the White House, uh, their own private email servers just like Hillary. Donald Trump, by the way, kept talking to world leaders on his private cell phone, which his national intelligence uh, advisors kept begging him to stop using. They said, use the, you know, the phones we the, the phones we give you that are encrypted. No, he had to use his private cell phone. And those all those conversations were easily 
bugged by foreign adversaries. We also learned during the Trump administration that the wonderful Jared Kushner communicated privately with the even more wonderful Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He communicated with uh, MBS using WhatsApp. And we all know how secure WhatsApp is. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is accusing the FBI agents who raided Mar-a-Lago of walking away with three of his passports. He has three passports. Think he's a flight risk? Uh, wherever he's going to end up, I don't think he's going to need a passport. I don't think Vladimir Putin is going to say, no, can't let you in. You don't have a passport. Just give me those documents that you uh, secreted away. In a letter to Merrick Garland over the weekend, Trump offered to help dial back the temperature. The New York Times is reporting that Donald Trump wrote to Merrick Garland before Garland unsealed that warrant. He called Donald Trump's bluff and showed us what was in that warrant. Before Garland unsealed the warrant, Donald Trump wrote to Merrick Garland and said, quote, the country is on fire. What can I do to reduce the heat? Many say that was Trump attempting to negotiate a possible plea bargain. Many are saying this is the most frightened Donald Trump has ever been of the Department of Justice. A frightened Trump is the most dangerous Trump. So during interviews and postings on his social media, Trump warned that his followers are angry out of control. He's never seen them this mad. And these are dangerous times. That's what he warned today and all over the weekend. I'll talk about more of Donald Trump in the classified boxes in a few minutes. The New York Times is also reporting today that lawyers for Rudy Giuliani are now claiming prosecutors in Georgia are probably going to indict their client on charges of election interference. Robert Costello, Rudy Giuliani's lawyer, said today uh, that Giuliani will testify before that Georgia grand jury today. So we'll keep an eye on that. Also today, a judge told Senator Lindsey Graham that he must testify before that same grand jury as well. Senator Graham, some say might also be facing charges of attempting to illegally influence Georgia election results in favor of Donald Trump. Stay tuned. Three people were injured when a gunman opened fire in the parking lot of the Gurney, Illinois Six Flags Amusement Park yesterday. Police say at least two people stepped out of a white sedan and fired their weapons, then got back into their car and drove away. Police say this was not a random attack. They say that the victims had been specifically targeted. Two were hit in the leg, one in the shoulder. All three are expected to survive. So far this year, there have been 414 mass shootings. That's almost two a day. There have also been 27,636 gun violence deaths. All this according to the Gun Violence Archives. 
Harry Reid International Airport in Las Vegas on Sunday stopped all flights when passengers thought they heard a gunshot in one of the terminals. Police later determined that the noise came not from a gun, but a scuffle as police tried to arrest somebody. Also in Las Vegas, police are reporting two people drowned after Clark County, Nevada, reported the heaviest downpour of rain in nearly a decade late last Thursday. On Friday, one body was found in a drainage canal. This is monsoon season in Las Vegas. About a week and a half ago, several casinos uh, had to be shut down uh, because of flooding. In Mexico, streets were empty over the weekend as gang violence erupted in the California border town of Tijuana, frequented by millions of Americans each year. All this after 11 people died in the Texas border town of Juarez when a prison riot somehow spilled into the streets. In Tijuana, police say they arrested 17 people as 30 cars were burned. Public transit also came to a standstill and university classes had to be canceled. I smell coffee. I I think somebody brought me coffee. I smell coffee. Meanwhile, 3,000 troops and 2,000 police officers have been deployed in and around Tijuana to restore order. Government officials in Mexico say all this violence springs from rival gangs struggling to control the lucrative drug trade. Tijuana drug traffic is reportedly controlled by the Areno Felix cartel, which didn't even come close, Rodrigo. Didn't even come close. I think I barely pronounced cartel properly. The uh, Areno Felix cartel, which now finds itself fending off the Jalisco New Generation Drug Cartel. I think it's pronounced Jalisco. The uh, Jalisco New Generation Drug Cartel, which Mexico now considers the single biggest criminal organization in the country. According to the Department of Justice here in America, Jalisco New Generation Drug Cartel earns upwards of $12 billion a year dealing crystal meth and cocaine, mostly in the United States. Polio is making a comeback here in New York City, all because of anti-vaxxers. Health department officials here say they have found traces of polio while testing local sewage. That's a good job. And uh, by local sewage, they mean the Chipotle on Madison and 65th. Did I even come close to pronouncing Chipotle properly? Is it Chipotle? Chipotle. Anyway, Chipotle has to pay out like something like $200,000 in fines to New York state workers for wage theft. Uh, I've listed all the health violations at Chipotle, the rats, the listeria, and, and that's just what they have on the menu. Back to polio, which I don't think is on the menu at Union Busting Chipotle. They... Uh, uh, a Chipotle in Augusta, Maine, voted to go union and Chipotle said, you know what, we're going to close. We're going to illegally close this store and violate NLRB 
regulations. Meanwhile, 14% of children under the age of five living here in New York City have not been vaccinated. 14% of children under the age of five not getting vaccinated for a disease which targets children, polio. Earlier this year, a man in Rockland County, New York, was paralyzed by polio. It was the first recorded case of polio in nearly a decade. Like I said, 14% of children under the age of five in New York City are not vaccinated for polio. That is a disease which primarily strikes children. The New York Times reports today that back in 1916, New York City was responsible for one third of all polio deaths. That was back when 6,000 people died nationwide in one year with 21,000 Americans left permanently disabled, most of them children. This doesn't, uh, you know, why, why are we relitigating old, old problems? Polio, we should not be worrying about polio. The, uh, the polio vaccine was announced uh, 90% effective on April 12th, 1955. What is that, 70 years ago, close to 70 years ago? We wiped polio out. All you need to do is get your kid vaccinated, you uh, idiots. One of the greatest moments in human history was the defeat of polio. And now because of anti-vaxxers, people who are anti-science, we have to go back and, and fight this war again. It's a beautiful story of uh, American ingenuity. Uh, Dr. Jonas Salk, in an interview with CBS journalist Edward R. Murrow, the day they announced there was a cure for polio or a vaccine for polio, Edward R. Murrow did an interview uh, with Dr. Jonas Salk that day, and he was asked, who owns the patent? And Dr. Jonas Salk said, quote, well, the people, I would say, there is no patent. Could you patent the sun? Well, the truth is Dr. Salk owned that patent, but he chose not to let anyone get rich from it. Forbes reported, I think it was 10 years ago, that had Dr. Jonas Salk uh, charged for the polio vaccine, he could have earned upwards of $7 billion. Instead, he chose to be a messiah who saved hundreds and hundreds of millions of lives around the world. But, you know, he died, I don't know, 25 years ago. I'm told on his deathbed, he, his last words were, who cares about those kids? I could have made $7 billion. <laughs> he didn't say that. He didn't. You think this man cared? You're, you get to be the mess. That's why people go into medicine to save billions of lives. He saved billions of lives. What does he care about $7 billion? Jonas Salk, son of a New York City garment worker, attended Harvard. Oh, I'm sorry. City College of New York. My mistake. City College. Did not go to Harvard. Did not go to Yale. 
Dr. Jonas Salk attended City College of New York and then went on to New York University School of Medicine. Then there was Dr. Albert Sabin, who introduced the oral version of the polio vaccine, which I preferred over the over the anal uh, version of the polio vaccine. At least that's what my doctor kept telling me, that there was an, there was an anal version of the polio vaccine. Uh, Dr. Albert Sabin introduced the oral version of the polio vaccine, and he too refused to make any money off of it. Dr. Albert Sabin, by the way, born Abram Sepperstein. Dr. Albert Sabin, born Abram Sepperstein. Obviously, he changed it for show business because there was no way he was going to get to host The Daily Show. <laughs> Comedy Central told Abram Sapperstein there was no way he could host The Daily Show with that name. So he changed it to John Stewart. I mean, Dr. Albert Sabin. God bless John Stewart. He, he did a great thing for uh, our soldiers. He's still an asshole, but he did a great thing for our soldiers. Well, <laughs> oh, no wonder everybody hates me. So what are we talking about? It's the 2022 midterms. It's election day tomorrow. And the 2022 midterm primary season is almost wrapping up. We have a couple of uh, primaries. I'll get to those in a second. But there is a special election in Alaska tomorrow to find someone to fill what's left of Congressman, Republican Congressman Don Young's term. Uh, Don Young uh, died earlier this year in his late 80s. He was a Republican. Congressman Don Young. Uh, no, I'm not going to say that. Uh, Don Young. Nope. Not going to do it. On the ballot in this special election is the brilliant Sarah Palin, who, if she wins tomorrow, will end up serving in Congress as soon as next month. If you remember, Sarah Palin was John McCain's running mate back in 2008. According to the book Game Change, Sarah Palin, this is according to the book Game Change, Sarah Palin is a frighteningly stupid person. She thought the continent of Africa was a country. I'm not making that up. This is according to Game Change, the book Game Change. She thought the entire continent of Africa was one country. And John McCain chose her to be his running mate, to be a heartbeat away from the, the presidency. She was also uh, handpicked by Bill Kristol, who invented the invasion of Iraq. He recommended Sarah Palin to uh, John McCain. He discovered, Bill Kristol discovered Sarah Palin for us. Sarah Palin, who, according to Game Change, also thought Queen Elizabeth was in charge of Great Britain. She didn't know that Great Britain had a prime minister, that is, congressional candidate Sarah Palin, who didn't know 
what the Federal Reserve was back in 2008 when she was running for vice president. She didn't know what the Federal Reserve was. She didn't know there was a North Korea and a South Korea. Kind of important to, to know that. And she thought Germany only fought in one of the two world wars. So she got half of that right. I don't think she knew Germany fought in World War I. That would be uh, future Congresswoman Sarah Palin. So watch out, Marjorie Taylor Greene. There's going to be a new sheriff in town who's even dumber than you are. So, and they are dumb. And I'm not being cruel. These are stupid people. And they're in positions of, I don't want to say power, but they, they're put out in front of us because they're stupid and they'll say whatever their paymasters order them to say. Uh, Alaska sends only one congressperson to Washington. Same goes for Wyoming, where Congresswoman Liz Cheney, vice chair of the January 6th committee, is expected to go down in defeat to this Trump-supported candidate. Her name is Harriet Hageman. She is a, uh, a, an attorney for the ranching industry. I am going to reclaim Wyoming's lone congressional seat from that Virginian who currently holds it. Virginian? Is that slang? Is she implying something? Calling her a Virginian? Is that, I don't know what that means. Oh, she lives in Virginia. Okay. Well, Liz Cheney, as I just said, is vice chairman of the January 6th committee. January 6th is on the ballot, not just in Wyoming. It's on the ballot for the midterms in November. Because after the midterms comes the next presidential election. And this year, this is the year we're electing who gets to count the votes in each state for the presidential elections. So here's John King yesterday on CNN. There are at least 10 states, you see them there, from Alabama and Arizona, to Connecticut, New Mexico, and beyond, where Republican nominees for Secretary of State are election deniers. Election deniers, which means many of them are running to become Secretary of State and then try to reverse, like in Arizona, reverse the 2020 election in favor of Donald Trump. They still haven't let go of the 2020 election. They're actually running saying, if I'm elected, I will turn the our electoral votes over to Donald Trump. Uh, it is the secretary of state of each state who makes sure elections are on the up and up. And that's how uh, Kemp got to be governor of Georgia. He was first the secretary of state and then he ran against Stacey Abrams four years ago. And while he was Secretary of State, he scrubbed something like 50,000 African-Americans from the voter rolls. And Stacey Abrams, African-American woman, would have been elected governor had Governor Kemp, then Secretary of State Kemp, not done that. This is important. If you'll remember Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, he's a Republican who voted for Donald Trump, by the way. 
he received a call from Donald Trump. This is a famous call where Trump asked him to find 11,780 votes. Ravsenberger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, was also pressured by Rudy Giuliani and Senator Lindsey Graham, which is why both men are now being forced to testify before that grand jury down in Georgia. More from John King yesterday on CNN. At least 14 Republican election deniers running for governor. And in some states, Pennsylvania among them, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, the governor is the, appoints the secretary of state. Yeah, so that's like a two-for-one race. Right. You know, you elect nominee Doug Mastriano, you're probably going to get both him and an election denier in that other position overseeing elections. Mastriano spread a whole bunch of election lies again. He was outside the Capitol on January 6th. He sent uh, chartered buses to the Trump rally uh, that day. And so this is a very important race. Uh, we have Carrie Lake, uh, gubernatorial nominee in Arizona, who's been extremely aggressive, forceful, and calling the election stolen, says it's, it's sickening, disqualifying for her former Republican opponent in the primary, not to say the same. She has also called for jailings, uh, calling for the imprisonment of the Secretary of State, even called for the imprisonment of journalists uh, who have, she says, spread lies about the election. They are telling the truth. This is how Victor Orban became the longest serving prime minister in Europe. Victor Orban, uh, prime minister of Hungary, he's a racist, anti-Semite, Islamophobe, He's famous for calling himself a Christian and saying that the Hungarian people are a race who should not be intermingling. He is Tucker Carlson's template upon which we should base the Republican Party. He is, this is how Viktor Orban took power. You start uh, on a granular level. You start legally taking power in the you know, the municipal elections, the local elections. So everything appears to be on the up and up. This is how the Republicans, this is what they're planning. They're, they're planning to legally take control of the state legislatures and then claim they're winning elections. So January 6th, far from over. And while the temperature heats up in the political sphere, as well as in our courts, Many Trump diehard supporters believe what they hear. They believe it's true. They believe what Fox News and, and Republican politicians, they believe what they're telling them is true, which is why. We've got some breaking news this morning. At around 4 a.m., a man drove a car into a barricade near Capitol Hill. Capitol Police say the car then became engulfed in flames and the man fired several shots into the air before killing himself. It's unclear what the man's motive may have been. Capitol Police say it doesn't appear he was targeting members of Congress who are on recess. That was yesterday. See, because of last Monday's raid, law enforcement, especially the FBI, is now reporting an uptick in threats to federal law enforcement agencies. Uh, these are the agencies that Trump and the GOP incessantly demonize by warning that they're coming for you. They're coming for your guns or they've militarized the IRS and they're going to break down your doors and open up your safe and collect taxes without a warrant. This is from CBS. 
Now, a new picture is just into CNN. A group of armed Trump supporters gathered outside the FBI office in Phoenix, Arizona. Photographs taken this morning show Trump supporters carrying handguns and assault-style weapons on the street. That is loud under Arizona's open carry law. One of the demonstrators said they're at that location to support Trump and protest what they call the unlawful search at Mar-a-Lago. This is how Viktor Orban took power in Hungary through intimidation, armed thugs. You know, who wants to be an election official if you go out for lunch and you're followed by armed thugs who are, you know, not breaking the law? You're not breaking the law showing up to the FBI building with an AR-15 in in Arizona. Here is more from... uh, CBS last night about a joint intelligence bulletin warning about the safety of our FBI agents. A joint FBI Homeland Security memo sent to law enforcement across the country warns of growing threats against them, including a threat to place a so-called dirty bomb in front of FBI headquarters and general calls for civil war and armed rebellion. See, the dirty, dark secret in America is we're not under threat from homegrown Islamic terrorists. We're not even under threat from Islamic terrorists overseas. We are under threat by far-right extremists. And this goes back to when Obama was president. The Republicans are the party of extremists. I've talked about this Janet Napolitano was head of Homeland Security under Barack Obama. She wrote a report saying exactly what I just said, that we're more likely to get attacked by right wing uh, extremists living here in America than than we are from Islamist American, Islamic Americans or from overseas. More Americans have died from domestic terrorists, far-right domestic terrorists, than they have from uh, than a 9-11 or, or from uh, any other group of terrorists. But the Republicans were offended by that memo and forced Janet Napolitano not to publish it. Uh, more from this memo... The memo stating the FBI and DHS have identified multiple articulated threats and calls for the targeted killing of judicial, law enforcement and government officials associated with the Palm Beach search. Now, I'm not saying most Republicans want this to happen, but they don't mind FBI agents and judges being terrified Republican Brian Fitzpatrick, he's a Republican. He represents Pennsylvania's first congressional district. He is a former FBI agent. And now he said yesterday on CBS's Face the Nation that his life is being threatened. Keep in mind, he's a Republican. And I myself have been notified by the Bureau that uh, my life was put in danger uh, recently um, by some of these same people. That's Republican Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick, former FBI agent. Republican Senator Amy uh, Klobuchar represents Minnesota. She was on Meet the Press yesterday. 
This is beyond politics. They're simply doing their jobs and we have to let them do their jobs. So all this talk is spooking Fox News's Steve Ducey, a Fox and Friends, Steve Ducey. Now, if you remember, I talked about him on Friday's show because last week he asked Republican whip Steve Scalise to tone down the rhetoric, fearing that it's going to lead to violence. It is leading to violence. Uh, Steve Scalise, Republican whip, he himself, a victim of political violence back in June of 2017, when he was shot in a playground practicing for the annual congressional baseball game. He almost died. Still supports the National Rifle Association, opposes an assault weapons ban. He was a victim of uh, political terrorism. Uh, supposedly, the person who shot at him was an anti-Trump uh, terrorist. That was the official report. So Steve Ducey told Steve Scalise to watch what you're saying, to stop attacking the FBI this way, spreading lies. It's going to lead to violence. This is Fox News' Steve Ducey. Here he is again today, this week, trying to to uh, tamp down uh, the rhetoric. Right now, given the fact that there is a suggestion that there are a lot of online, very specific, apparently very specific threats against very specific agents uh, at the FBI and whatnot, it would it would be great for everybody to tamp down the the rhetoric against the FBI because the FBI simply was doing what the DOJ asked them to do. Yeah, maybe you should just uh, cash your check, Steve Ducey. I, I don't think you're going to get too much support from your fellow cohorts like uh, Jesse Water. Uh, here was Jesse Water last week with Lindsey Graham. What? These people are out of control, Senator. This country yeah. is at, like, well, we're on the edge of a cliff, man. I'm telling you, this country is at the edge yeah. of a cliff here. Yeah, no, I got you. I understand exactly what you're saying. That would be Senator Lindsey Graham, a sitting United States senator. He's sitting by politely uh, and agrees with Jesse Water. I played that on Friday's show. I played this on Friday's show. Uh, this is another clip from Fox News. It is Sean Davis. He's the CEO of Federalist talking with Will Kane on Fox News. Well, I think it's a declaration of war against the American uh, public, uh, against the half of the country, if not more, that doesn't want to be ruled by a, a bunch of corrupt oligarchs. It's easy to look at what happened and say, oh, it's just about Trump. It's just about, you know, Donald Trump. And, you know, he's kind of different. It's not about anything else. No, this is about the, the ruling elites, the deep state, whatever you want to call it, the oligarchy deciding that it is up to them to pick who we get to vote for and that it's up to them to decide who gets to be on the ballot when Republicans vote. This was a declaration of war against the American public for having the audacity to think they get to decide who represents them because it is obvious what this was about. This was about disqualifying Donald Trump from ever running again. This is their kill shot uh, to take out Donald Trump's political career. And unfortunately for them, I think it's going to backfire, but that's not going to it's not going to undo the damage that they've done uh, with these Stasi tactics. No, and, and the damage won't require a conviction. It will simply require Kill a fight. It will Kill shot. Well, that's Fox News. And that's not even dog whistle. That is a pretty not so subtle 
call to violence because all it takes is a handful of lunatics to hear that uh, we've got 400 million guns in this country. All it takes is one or two people to hear kill shot a declaration of war and they take matters into their own hands. So Steve Ducey, who should just either quit Fox News uh, or shut up and uh, cash his checks. He's worried. He's worried that words have consequences. So again, he's telling people, don't blame the FBI. Please don't, don't blame the FBI. The attorney general is the boss of the guy at the FBI, of all the people at the FBI. Right. Don't blame the FBI. Yes, don't, don't. Just direct all your anger and rage against Attorney General Merrick Garland. That is the man responsible for everything. That is the, the, the sober, tempered approach to dial back the rhetoric. That's what Steve Ducey is doing. You just, just blame it on one guy. If you want to personify that search, look at the Attorney General of the United States. Mayor Garland is the one who has staked his entire reputation on it. Right. So he's not telling people to calm down. He's just telling people who to attack. Uh, so Steve Ducey was a little critical of his friend, Donald Trump. You know, with all of these threats going around, it would ultimately be great if the former president, who has always been a great supporter of law enforcement, as opposed with a thousand police departments coast to coast, it would be great if he called for an end to the violent rhetoric against federal law enforcement, and in particular, the FBI that was just doing their job. The FBI that was just doing their job. Yes, Trump is a supporter of law enforcement. That's according to Fox News. No, he's not. He didn't support the Capitol Hill police on January 6th. Took him hours to kind of sort of tell his jackals to go home. He doesn't support the cops. He likes cops on the street who arrest poor people who do the unlawful evictions for him. He only likes cops who rough up protesters, kill unarmed black people, but he doesn't like the FBI or anyone else who investigates white collar criminals, which is what he is, what his family is. They're white collar criminals. He doesn't like any law enforcement agencies that go after white collar criminals. He hates the Internal Revenue Service. The only federal law enforcement agencies that Donald Trump and Fox News and Republicans, the only federal law enforcement agency that that they like is ICE, because ICE rounds up people of color and places them in for profit detention centers. If you're a racist, which is what Donald Trump is, which is what the Republican Party is, which is what Fox News is, then you love ICE. Then you love the Border Patrol because Border Patrol persecutes people of color, especially Haitians, especially Haitians. So Donald Trump, did he violate the Espionage Act? 
some Republicans are saying we should get rid of the Espionage Act. But if we get rid of the Espionage Act, how can we prosecute Julian Assange? This is a big, big problem. Trump has offered up many reasons for why he had boxes and boxes of highly classified material hidden in his Mar-a-Lago resort. By the way, you know, Hillary had a private residence and an email server. Uh, Mar-a-Lago is a, a club that is open to the worst human beings on the planet. Um, as I said earlier, Russian money launderers. Uh, this is pretty bad. Mm, you know, if you're looking for a reason to lock up Donald Trump, this is pretty bad. You know, if you want to follow the rule of law and you believe that some material should be classified and some shouldn't, I, I know some people think there shouldn't be any classified material. I probably think there's probably no reason to classify 99% of what's hidden from us. But as long as we're trying to lock up Donald Trump, this is pretty bad. So Donald Trump is now claiming he declassified all these documents that were left in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, it is said by some Republicans, a president can merely stand over boxes and boxes of once classified material, sprinkle declassification dust all over the documents and poof, they're declassified. That's what the Republicans are saying. Uh, but not so fast, says Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat. We all know him from the January 6th committee. We forget that he's chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, who, just like Donald Trump, gets to see classified material. Here is Adam Schiff yesterday. I think this was CBS's Face the Nation. And you seek out the answer to the question of whether there actually is record of whether Donald Trump declassified that? That's his defense here, that anything he had, he had already declassified. Uh, yes, uh, we should determine, uh, you know, whether there was any effort uh, during the presidency to go through the process of declassification. I've seen no evidence of that, nor have they presented any evidence of that. Uh, the idea, first of all, a former president has no declassification authority. Right. And the idea that 18 months after the fact, Donald could Trump, Trump could simply announce, well, I'm, you know, uh, retroactively declassifying or whatever I took home had the effect of declassifying them uh, is absurd. Somebody turned in. in. Some people are Michael Cohn, his former attorney, says Melania may have turned him in. Some people think it was Jared. Somebody turned him in. John Bolton was Donald Trump's national security advisor. Here he is on MSNBC today. Unlike the first impeachment, John Bolton is not waiting until his book comes out before he tells the truth about Donald Trump. I became national security advisor. No, nobody briefed me or informed me that this policy or order was in effect. I was never aware of anything even remotely approximating that policy. Uh, and I haven't heard anything uh, of it uh, since I left. Uh, if he, in fact, said something like that, when was it memorialized? When did the White House counsel write it down? To whom was it distributed? That would be uh, John Bolton, Republican, served as a uh, U.N. ambassador, I think for George W. Bush. I think he was a uh, U.N. ambassador, but he couldn't. I think he was at, 
he couldn't get confirmed by the Senate because he talked about he literally talked about blowing off like two thirds of the U.N. building. He said it's like two thirds of the U.N. building are completely unnecessary. Had some kind of violent reference about the U.N. building. Anyway, that's John Bolton. Uh, Ohio Congressman Mike Turner is a Republican, and he is the highest ranking Republican on the House Intelligence Committee. So it's him and uh, Adam Schiff. And all last week, Republican Congressman Mike Turner, highest ranking Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, all last week he got in front of the story and defended Donald Trump. He said those documents uh, were classified, but they probably didn't need to be and were overreacting. And then Congressman Mike Turner uh, made the mistake of appearing on CNN yesterday, and he was asked this question. Do you take home documents marked special access? No. No. <laughs> Game over. Uh, he's a lawyer, by the way. And another lawyer is Fox News's Will Kane. And, you know, lawyers love a good argument. Unfortunately, if you're a lawyer like Mike Turner or Will Kane or any Republican, there is no argument anymore. You really have lost the argument. You only have violence and stupidity, which are the same thing. So, Will Kane co-hosts the weekend edition of Fox and Friends. As I said, he's a lawyer. And yesterday he had Republican William Bennett on. And the lawyer, Will Kane, asked this question. I think I want to go straight to this issue with you, Bill. You've been around, you've covered and been within administrations for quite some decades. You know, if I listen to alternative media today and I, if there's, I'm like, oh, classified documents, no one is above the law, right? The rule of law applies to everyone. I'm curious, when it comes to classified documents, famously, President Nixon said, if the president does it, then it is not illegal. Is that, the, is that not truly the standard when it comes to classified documents? The president has the ability to at any time declassify anything. The president does. Uh, that is, uh, I, I, I really want to play that again because it's incredible. Uh, Will Kane, lawyer, has his, I think he has his own show on Fox News, is using the Nixon defense in that we, we say, ah, nobody's above the law. Uh, we, but we don't, we don't believe that. Richard Nixon settled that for us. This is what Will Cain. Let me play that again. That Richard Nixon famously said, "If the president does it, it's legal. Therefore, nobody has the right to say the president uh, isn't above the law." He is saying that the president is above the law. I think I want to go straight to this issue with you, Bill. You've been around, you've covered and been within administrations for quite some decades. You know, if I listen to alternative media today and I, if there's, I'm like, oh, classified documents, no one is above the law, right? The rule of law applies to everyone. I'm curious, when it comes to classified documents, famously, President Nixon said, if the president does it, then it is not illegal. Is that, the, is that not truly the standard when it comes to classified documents? 
The president has the ability to at any time declassify anything. President does. Uh, the Nixon defense. That's incredible. Seriously. Apparently, nobody taught Will Cain in law school that Nixon was wrong when he said it's legal if the president does it. That's why Republicans made him resign. It's why Gerald Ford had to pardon Nixon for all the crimes he committed as president, because when the president commits a crime, it's not legal. Seriously, you're citing Richard Nixon, the only president forced to resign in disgrace? That's your stare decisis, Will Kane? The drunken, the drunken musings of a paranoid criminal who literally used his executive branch to persecute his enemies. Nixon had his own palace guard, his own army of former FBI and CIA agents. They broke into the Watergate Hotel. They broke into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. People went to jail because the president ordered that. The president had to be pardoned for that. And you're citing Richard Nixon. Okay, no wonder the GOP and Fox News incite violence the way they do because they are completely out of arguments. They, they have no argument left anymore. Charlie Kirk will be 30 next year. He is a college dropout, but does have an honorary degree from Liberty University. That would be Jerry Falwell's school. Jerry Falwell Jr., you remember, ran the place, but he and his wife couldn't stop banging the undergrads, so he had to step down in disgrace. Charlie Kirk uh, dropped out of college. He applied to West Point, but was rejected, he said, to make room for a less qualified black woman. That's what he says. Anywho, Charlie Kirk says there's no such thing as white privilege. He has called uh, Texas, he's called on people from Texas to form their own militia to forcibly remove Haitian refugees. He called George Floyd a scumbag. He also spreads conspiracy theories about COVID and says Joe Biden didn't win the election. He's married to a former Miss Arizona and uh, he runs Turning Points. It's a nonprofit charity that has revenues of nearly $40 million a year. Most of that revenue comes from big donors like Home Depot founder Bernard Marcus. I think he's donated one or two million dollars. Uh, there's no, this is AstroTurf. We've seen this before. You know, the Koch brothers, they, they prop up the Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation. Charlie Kirk, uh, his uh, turning points is uh, supported by everyone the Powell memo uh, said uh, should start their own think tanks, right? If you read the Powell memo, then you'll understand why something like Turning Points exists. And Turning Points, which is funded by millionaires, they had a big conference yesterday in Arizona. A lot of the candidates spoke, including... Charlie Kirk, who's not yet 30, uh, in the lead up to their big meeting, uh, he uh, 
was uh, doing his television show or radio show, and he was upset with the raid on Mar-a-Lago, and he had some ideas on how Republican attorney generals should respond to Merrick Garland. Charlie seems very angry. Raids must be met with raids. State attorneys generals that are Republican have to authorize raids against Soros groups, BLM, Planned Parenthood, the Alphabet Mafia, groomers, chemical castration of children now. Here's why. A hundred facilities should be raided by, raided by the next week. Find them. You trying to tell me there's not a hundred criminal organizations that are aiding and abetting people across the southern border? La Raza, we know them. They publicized it. I'm not saying you have to arrest them. Just raid them. Find out what you find. Why? That will all of a sudden make them and their internal chatters. Guys, you were so stupid. You read Trump. Now they're coming after us. Good. Now you know there's a price to this. He's pretty good. Seriously, as, as far as tools of right-wing industrialists go, guy isn't even 30. I watched him debate Ben Burgess. He's pretty, you know, pretty smart. Just ill-informed, but he's pretty sure. The brain, it's too bad that his brain is uh, being used for such nefarious purposes. I wish I were as sharp as this guy is. He's pretty impressive. Unfortunately, he's wicked. Uh, so Charlie Kirk yesterday, Sunday, spoke at his big turning points rally. And again, he said the FBI raid was more than just an attack on Mar-a-Lago. It was an attack on our values. That wasn't just a raid against Trump. That was a raid against your values. That was a raid against you. That is a presidential landmark where treaties were signed. Deals were negotiated. That's a desecration of the conservative movement. Why is uh, Mar-a-Lago so sacred? It's a place where what? What 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 is taking place in Mar-a-Lago? Where treaties were signed, deals were negotiated. Deals and treaties. I don't think so. What was there a treaty signed at Mar-a-Lago? Oh. Charlie is thinking of the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which renounced war in 1928. I, I think he's making an honest mistake. He's thinking of the Kellogg-Briand Pact. It has the word Kellogg's in it. And Mar-a-Lago was built for the serial heiress Marjorie Merriweather Post. Uh, so he's confusing Kellogg's with Post Serial. And uh, the Post Serial doesn't make Kellogg's. It had post had nothing to do with the Kellogg Briand Pact, and I think it was signed in Paris, not Mar-a-Lago. But I think I can't think of any other reason you say that treaties have been signed at Mar-a-Lago. No deals or treaties ever signed at Mar-a-Lago, unless maybe you count Melania signing a. Uh, $20 million agreement, never to mention that she stopped sleeping with Donald 15 years ago because he hasn't been able to get it up since then. Well, back, I think that's the only deal and treaty that ever got signed at Mar-a-Lago, the one between Melania and Donald Trump. Well, back to Charlie Kirk, who, I, again, I, I, except for the fact that he's wicked, he's pretty sharp. That's a desecration 
of the conservative movement. Yes, the invasion of Mar-a-Lago, the raid of, on Mar-a-Lago is a desecration of the conservative movement. Uh, he's kind of right in that Donald Trump is the logical extension of paleoconservatives like Bill Buckley. So, yeah, this would be a desecration of the conservative movement because Donald Trump is not just the Republican Party. He is the conservative movement. Donald Trump is a racist. And so were paleoconservatives like Bill Buckley, who famously wrote in his National Review in the lead up to the Civil Rights Acts of 64 and 65, Bill Buckley wrote in plain English that whites were the superior race. And until black people can show themselves intellectually capable, there should be no effort to make it easier for them to vote. Yes, that is a desecration. He is right. The raid on Mar-a-Lago was a desecration of the conservative movement because Donald Trump is a racist and that's where the conservative movement has its roots. Well, Charlie Kirk, Charlie Kirk, turning points. Why is he so upset? Turns out he's more than just a conservative. He's a devout Christian, you know, just like Donald Trump. Here is Charlie Kirk talking about his Christian faith. It's a matter of justice, which is God's idea, not our <clears throat> idea. And if we're not going to uphold justice, which is one of the core values of the American constitutional order, then the whole thing falls apart. Our entire system is inspired by the Bible. It is based on God's will and providence breathing into our life. And if we're just going to kind of sit idly by and do nothing, this is what drives me nuts, though, Eric, is that only a pampered, comfortable, self-righteous, arrogant, weak, theologically um, questionable Christian generation could believe such a thing. Our, our grandfathers and our ancestors were Christian, and they knew if they had to fight evil, they did. And so why, why are you willing then to inherit the gift, but not willing to preserve it? Mm. So it's more about conservative values. This is about good versus evil. This is about Christians protecting their Christian country. Interesting. And it turns out, I didn't know this. I don't have an honorary degree from Liberty University like Charlie Kirk. I'm not, listen, I think he's sharp. I'm not taking anything away from this guy. I think he's sharp. Not educated, but sharp. There's definitely, the synapses are definitely firing. Uh, it's pretty impressive. Guy's still not 30 yet. Very impressive. And apparently when you get an honorary degree from Liberty University, you learn that our forefathers were Christians, not just ordinary Christians, but Christian warriors. It's interesting. I, I didn't know about this. I, I guess that's why the First Amendment uh, specifically says we need to establish a national religion. Uh, it didn't, actually. Uh, but I think if you have an honorary degree from Liberty University, that's what you think the establishment clause of the First Amendment is. I, I think, right? Didn't I, I, I thought our founding fathers uh, specifically warned against 
a state religion. I think our founding fathers were deists. I think Alexander Hamilton was asked, why did, who wrote the Federalist Papers, why did you leave uh, God out of the Constitution? And he jokingly said, we forgot about him. Uh, yeah. Um, hmm. But that's what Charlie Kirk believes. He believes we're a Christian nation and that America is for Christians and Christians, not necessarily only, but Christians first, not Muslims, not Jews, probably not Catholics. Uh, well, I can't explain this. Here's the lieutenant governor of Texas, Dan Patrick. He was at CPAC two weeks ago. He'll do a much better job than I trying to explain what Charlie Kirk is saying. We were a nation founded upon not the words of our founders, but the words of God, because he wrote the Constitution. He empowered them. We were a Christian state, and we've been blessed because of that for so many years. See, I'm a little confused. So the Federalist Society, which uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick uh, is a big fan of, they have given us all these Supreme Court justices like Gorsuch, the rapist, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, they are adherents to Antonin Scalia, who believes in a uh, finding the original meaning of the Constitution. They're strict textualists. You have to read the Constitution to divine what our founding fathers were trying to say. And when you divine our founding fathers, you have to uncover what the divine was really saying. Let's play that one more time. This is... Uh, we were a nation founded upon not the words of our founders, but the words of God, because he wrote the Constitution. He empowered them. We were a Christian state, and we've been blessed because of that for so many years. They're not even hiding it anymore. They're saying we're a Christian nation. And... Uh, and God wrote the Constitution. Really? Be okay. Uh, you know, he also wrote the new Hungarian Constitution. Did you know that? Yeah, that's what Victor Orban, who also spoke at CPAC two weeks ago, that's what he says. He said God wrote the new Constitution in Hungary. Uh, they had to rewrite hung Hungary's Constitution uh, Apparently, God didn't write the first couple of constitutions. He was busy. I think he had a, uh, a screenplay he was trying to finish with uh, Brett Ratner. But uh, eventually, Victor Orban was able to get a hold of God and get him to write uh, the new Hungarian constitution, which states that Hungary is a Christian nation. Here is Victor Orban speaking at CPAC two weeks ago. And he believes uh, violent Christians must protect Christian values. He's preaching violence. And uh, I think, you know, his accent gets laid on a little thick sometimes, judiciously. I'll, I'll show you in a, in a couple of seconds. But here he is uh, telling Christians to combine their religious faith with judo. I think. 
We need to trust our Judeo-Christian teachings. They help us decide what actions are right and what actions are wrong. He can't uh, bring himself to say Judeo because he's an anti-Semite. It's how he kind of, you know, these are anti-Semites. They say Judeo-Christian sometimes to placate uh, paranoid conservative Jews who want to play with them. So they'll say Judeo-Christian, but he can't bring himself to say Judeo-Christian. He says Judo-Christians because he's an anti-Semite. And he is constantly using dog whistles to talk about the Jews who control finance and Davos. And the you can't say Jews, so you say George Soros. Uh, you, you accuse George Soros of controlling the world. George Soros is a Jew. And right now the Republicans can't bring themselves. They're getting there to say they hate Jews, but right now they'll settle with uh, hating George Soros. Here is uh, Victor Orban attacking the Jews, saying that the Jews uh, control the world, but it's George Soros. Uh, I know George Soros very well. He is my opponent. He believes in none of the things that we do. And he has an army at his service. Money, NGOs. And <laughs> Jews? Yes, he's... <laughs> an army of uh, money and what? NGOs. <laughs> Look how judiciously he mispronounces... Things. He, uh, <laughs> he want, you know, he can, I was trying to say jewels, but I ended up saying. And jewels. An army of money and, and what? And what? And jewels. Yeah, that doesn't sound like Jews at all. No, no. Uh, that's, uh, Victor Orban. Uh, he's a self-identified Christian and he hates Jews. And he was asked to speak at CPAC because CPAC hates Jews. And I know 20% of American Jews in this country support Republicans. They don't support you. They hate. Who do you hate? Who do you hate? Uh, I know George and Jews. Yeah, they hate Jews. They do. They they like Israel uh, because that's where they want all the Jews to be, but they don't want them here in America. They hate Jews. Victor Orban is a notorious anti-Semite. He hates Arabs. He hates migrants. He warns against the mixing of the races. Right? He he is, he spoke in Romania to ethnic Hungarians and told them not to to intermingle with the Romanians, to be proud of your Hungarian Aryan race. This is an anti-Semite who hates Muslims. He hates anybody who is not a white Christian Hungarian. And that is why he was asked to speak at CPAC. And 
I know there are Jews who think, you know, occasionally he says Judeo-Christian instead of Christian, so he must also love the Jews. No, he hates the Jews. He he doesn't have the courage to say he hates the Jews. He, he says he hates George Soros, but the blood libel against George Soros is the blood libel used against the Jews in Hungary and Central Europe for centuries. Uh, but he is a racist, an anti-Semite, uh, but he's got God on his side. And if you got God on your side, you can do no wrong, which is why Republicans insist on linking up with Christians, right? If you call yourself a Christian, it washes away all your sins. You can be violent, but if you call yourself a Christian, it's okay. You can uh, hate the poor, persecute the poor, laugh as the poor live on the streets. But if you pervert the New Testament, you can still call yourself a Christian. You can be racist, and still call yourself a Christian. Why is that, Victor Orban? Don't worry, a Christian politician cannot be racist. That's just a blanket statement. That is the building block upon which you build an entire ideology. Don't worry, a Christian politician can't be racist. So if I persecute Arabs, Muslims, Black people, Jews, the LGBTQ, they're not a race, but don't worry, you're a Christian. This, you're not doing this because you're racist. And from this flows the notion of a Christian warrior. Violence in the name of Christ, right? Onward, Christian soldier. This is a battle between good and evil that you must fight. You, you owe it to your God to fight this battle. Professor Adnan Hussein will be on later in the show, and he's talking about uh, the Crusades. He's teaching a class uh, on the Crusades. Last week he talked about this. This is how you turn Christians violent. You're, you're going to take back Jerusalem for Christians. Go and fight and kill and rape and plunder, because this is a battle between good and evil. This is a 2,000-year-old playbook that Victor Orban is reading off of. Uh, Charlie Kirk, who's a Christian, uh, an aggrieved Christian, he uh, talked with Eric Metaxas last week on his show. Eric Metaxas, graduate of Yale. I don't know how smart he is. He doesn't have an honorary degree from Liberty University like Charlie Kirk. Eric Metaxas, he was the editor of Yale's humor magazine, and he's become a dangerously violent Christian. He is a dangerously violent Christian, just like Charlie Kirk. Here he is telling Charlie Kirk, this is from Right Wing Watch. I think this is from Norman Lear's organization, Right Wing Watch. Here is the dangerously violent Christian, Eric Metaxas, telling Charlie Kirk and his viewers 
not to depend on the elections to resolve your grievances. It is time to be a Christian warrior and fight. Here is uh, the dangerously violent Christian Eric Metaxas. But there are many people who say we don't fight. No, no, no. We don't fight. We wait till the election. If you don't understand that there is a time to fight, there is a time to take dramatic action. And it is is not only not violation of uh, our Christian faith. On the contrary, it is a manifestation of, of our it faith. Is. Yes, it's a it has to be. That's pretty scary stuff. That's what a Yale education gets you, turns turns you into a violent Christian like Eric Metaxas, telling his viewers, Charlie Kirk's viewers, you've got to take this fight. Uh, you have to do it. It's not just about winning elections. It's pretty frightening. But Victor Orban reassures the crazy, dangerously violent Christians, it's OK. It's OK because... Christians can't be racist. And Victor Orban explains that Christians also can't commit violent acts of extre extremism that are wicked. So we should never hesitate to heavily challenge our opponents on these issues. Be sure Christian values protect us from going too far. Christian values protect us from going too far. Just beat up and kill the right number of people, but you don't go over. You don't go over. You don't overdo it. Uh, then Victor Orban says Christian values, values are what makes us win on the battlefield, right? If you've got Christianity behind you, you're going to win on the political battlefield. I am here to tell you that our values, the nation, Christian roots, and family can be successful in the political battlefield. Right, the political battlefield. Uh, right. Uh, so he says, Orban, the worst things that ever happened in the 20th century were carried out by people who hated Christianity. And then he goes on to attack the Jews. He says uh, that the Jews are responsible for the Nazis. Well, he kind of Soros, he's kind of saying Soros, but he's saying all the horrible things that happened in Nazi Germany were because people abandoned Christianity. So if you if you read between the lines, he's I'll play this. He's saying George Soros is evil, Jew. And then he says the Nazis happened because people had abandoned Christian values. And who abandons Christian values more than the Jews? NGOs, universities, research institutions, and half the bureaucracy in Brussels. He uses this army to force his will on his opponents, like us Hungarians. He thinks that values dear to all of us led to the horrors of the 20th century. 
But the case is exactly the opposite. Our values save us from repeating history's mistakes. The horrors of Nazism and communism happened because some Western states in continental Europe abandoned their Christian values. So do you see what he's saying? He's going after uh, the Jules uh, and George Soros, and he's threading a needle here. But the people in CPAC hear him loud and clear. He is saying that Hitler happened because Germany strayed from Christianity. And who strays from Christianity the most? That would be the Jews, wouldn't it? Uh, it would be the Muslims. It would be uh, hmm, Buddhists. Interesting. Uh, this, this is how they work right now, because they don't have the courage to come out and just say, we hate Jews. Right. They, they, they say we love Israel, but they don't have the courage to say we hate Jews. And to the 20 percent of American Jews who vote Republican, uh, you're fucking idiots that you can't see this. They hate you. They hate you. And they're waiting to put you in one of those tents, those tent cities that Donald Trump talks about putting the homeless in. If you don't see this, you're a moron. Uh, this is how they work. And uh, it's a fake appeal to that 20% of Jews who support the Republicans and the conservatives because they say they support Israel. They, they pretend to hate the Nazis, right? Here is, uh, what's his name, Eric Mextas, the Yale graduate, talking to uh, uh, Charlie Kirk, uh, who has an honorary degree from uh, Liberty University. Here is Eric Mextas playing the Nazi card, and it looks like he's anti-Hitler. And there were many good Germans who did exactly this. They looked the other way when God would have said, please now look at what is happening. Please do a small thing now. They said, I'm going to look the other way. Yep. You, you will regret it for the rest of your life if you don't do something right now. That's right. Right, right. So the, the question to ask Charlie Kirk and Victor Orban and this guy, Eric McTaxis, as they dance around the Nazis and say things so Jews will think they were against the Holocaust. Uh, I have a very simple question for Charlie Kirk, Victor Orban, uh, Eric Mextas. Uh, I think you're racist. I think you're anti-Semitic. I think you're Islamophobe. I know you are. And I have a very simple question. Will I, David Feldman, make it to heaven? Will my Muslim friends make it to heaven? Would uh, Jehovah's Witnesses make it to heaven? Uh, do you think I'm going to make it to heaven? Will gay people make it to heaven? Now, you might say yes to placate me, 
But if your followers heard that, they would stop giving you money. The truth is, you don't think I'm going to make it to heaven. Ann Coulter says, unless I convert, I'm not making it to her heaven. They don't believe I'm going to make it to their heaven. They are Nazis. They hate Jews. They hate Muslims. They hate the LGBTQ community. They hate the same people as Adolf Hitler did. They hate the same people that Adolf Hitler did. And they use the same tactics as Adolf Hitler did. Victor Orban uses the same tactics that Adolf Hitler did by making it about good versus evil. If you are not angry about this, if you don't want to do something about this, you're part of the problem, folks. That's right. Folks, you are part of the problem. You are in bed with evil if you are not outraged at these things happening in the United States of America. If you just want business as usual to continue, you lack courage and God will judge you and history will judge you for that. So they've reduced it down to good versus evil. Kind of like this preacher. I don't know his name, but I played him all last year. Here he is last week. I believe that God gave us another chance to rally again against the dark forces of an evil Biden empire. Wherever you are hiding, Barack Obama, we see your hands behind it all. But I want you to know something. The very gallows you have built for our president, watch out, sir. Watch out, sir. There's going to be a day of vengeance by God Almighty, not by me. (laughs) Not by me. No, not by me. Right? It's going to be by God. God is going to take his wrath out on Joe Biden, right? Not by me. No, not by you. No, not by you, by this guy, some guy listening to you who thinks he's doing the work of God. Turning to breaking news, officials say the suspect who attacked an FBI field office in Cincinnati has been killed in a law enforcement operation. NBC News is reporting he was also identified as at the Capitol on January 6th. Right. So that would be somebody who... uh took the word of God, I guess, and tried to use the gallows, right? That was God, right? Not by me. No, 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 never by you. Not by you, no. Your words don't incite violence, right? People don't commit violence because of you. Not by me. No, no. You're, you're harmless. It's the cancel culture that's trying to shut you up, right? Uh, Let's give former deputy director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, the last word on this. The warnings we're hearing from the FBI and DHS are entirely consistent with the warnings they gave us months and months ago. Um, 
you know, this the the concern about extremists being motivated by political grievance and turning that motivation and those grievances into acts of violence has been something we've been dealing with since January 6th. And, you know, the, the problem is that we still have a large group of politicians in this country, largely on the right, who have figured out that there is a political advantage for them to hold people in a perpetual state of grievance. And so they're fanning those flames because it's politically advantageous. But by doing that, they are creating a real and present danger to law enforcement, judges, people associated with government. We've seen it targeted at uh, election workers, at school board members around the country. Uh, the temperature is rising in this country around political violence. And I think we're, it's inevitable we're going to see more of it. Not by me. No, not by you. You're not doing it. Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley uh, were grilling FBI Director Ray last week. They wanted to know why the FBI was looking into people who disrupt school board meetings. Uh, Ted Cruz said, why are you uh, using the Patriot Act to... Uh, follow uh, Republicans and and try to silence them. Uh, maybe because this is one of your followers speaking at a school board meeting in San Diego. You're about to open a pit of hell. You do not get a vaccine passport put on us. You know, as the population who's in control, you know that the people or the politicians, once you get a power, you will never relinquish it. Do you think that the four feet of marble that holds you above high in this chamber will help you from the fate of humanity, which you are unleashing? No! no! It won't! Your children and your children's children will be subjugated! They will be asked, how many vaccines have you had? Have you been a good little Nazi? Hail Fauci! Hail Fauci! Hail Fauci! Hail Fauci! There's been a lot of talk about the Nuremberg Code. Well, I brought you a copy. You are all in violation of Section 1. Yes, you, Dr. Wilton. You are in violation of the Nuremberg Code, which is international law. And the, the definition is... Sir, your time has expired. What's going on right now is Republicans like Steve Bannon are sending these types of people to board of supervisor meetings, to school board meetings, to destroy democracy. You can't have a town hall when you have people like this acting out. It takes a handful of thugs and crazies to destroy participatory democracy that's the plan. That's what Viktor Orban did. That's what Hitler did. That's what Steve Bannon is doing. And the followers of Trump, they're trying to sow distrust in participatory democracy. These people who disrupt school board meetings, city council meetings, are sent by violent Republicans. That's who they're sent by.
Not by me. No, not by you. No, not by you. We will be back. But first, some music from Professor Mike Steinel. Feed. We're living every day, 
Professor Mike Steinel, who joins us a little later on in the show. And if you would like to read a great book, go pick up Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. Go to SavingCharlieParker.com to read Professor Mike Steinel's latest novel. Pascal Robert is co-host of the This Is Revolution podcast. It's good to see you. Is Jason going to be joining us? Jason will not be joining us this weekend. This week, it will just be me. I hope you're not disappointed. No, I'm glad to see you. It's great to see you. Good uh, to see you as well. By the way, that's a great song by uh, Mr. Steiner there, the USA of Distraction. I like that song. Oh, it's very good. You should play it on your show. Professor Mike Steinel is, wow. is is incredible. He'll be on later. But, um, I was watching your dialogue before you went on break about the current political situation with the rising Christian, Christian nationalism that's being adopted by the right wing. And um, I don't know if I told you that we had a show on uh, for my show that I do my Wednesday, last Wednesday of the month called the Mile Mile Hour on what is the role of the black church in fighting Christian nationalism? And the hard question I ask is that since the, the, the black church in the United States has had such a storied role in challenging oppression vis-a-vis the civil rights movement, vis-a-vis you know, going back even into the 19th century, why uh, haven't they been summoned or, or requested to take a more active role in challenging these reactionary Christian nationalists where they are on whether whether it be theological doctrine or whether it be on an ideological basis or what have you? Because I'm sure you well you're well aware as well as I am that there's only a thin line between Christian nationalism and the pointy hats and the <laughs> right. and uh, the burning crosses. 
and everything else. You know, right. there's not that much of a differentiation between where that rhetoric, rhetoric leads. And it's so ultimately disturbing, David, frankly, that we're at the stage in America where literally we are battling a rise of fascism. And it's not even uh, subtle. When you see a character like Viktor Orban speaking at CPAC, Viktor Orban is a man who is uh, represents the, the most vile elements of the European reactionary right, almost an overtly anti-Semitic and racist, literally says that racial inbreeding is, is not good for the future of Hungary. I mean, this guy is beyond reactionary, out of bounds. And now he is the new favorite whole international host of record for the American Republican Party. We are in a very, very dangerous situation in this country, my friend. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because people like Bill Maher will say the Republicans don't have a platform. It's just about power and hatred. That is their it, it is a power. The quest for power and hatred is a tactic for something far bigger, a, a, an international movement. Uh, Professor Adnan Hussein talked about this, I believe, on Monday show or Thursday show. They know exactly what they're doing. Uh, Victor Orban making a, an alliance, according to Professor Adnan Hussein, these alliances with Victor Orban are part of a much grander uh, scheme to to take on the East. And well, well, part of the motivation behind what the, the both the birth of the reactionary right we have to understand is that the contemporary reactionary right is born out of the crisis of capitalism, the two thousand eight crash, and the call for austerity austerity that was brought about in particularly in Europe as a result of trying to subsidize the financial services industry after they basically robbed the coffers of all of these European countries and the, 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 the very, very generous social welfare establishment that these governments had was bankrupted trying to be basically trying to bail out the financial institutions. We even had austerity to some extent in the United States with a sequester. But in the face of that austerity... sequester. Yes, the sequester we had in the United States, which caused basically Obama to try to negotiate even Social Security cuts because we had to negotiate with the Republicans to finance the government. Right. Remember, that was during the Obama yeah. administration. So we have to understand that even though it's uh, uh, it's a misappropriated quote, the quote by Lenin, I mean, it's it's, it's not an authentic quote, but it says that cap- fascism is capitalism and decay. And even though it may be an inauthentic quote, it's actually very sound in that there's always some type of very strong economic crisis that bring for, brings forth this pivot to the reactionary right. And even in the contemporary manifestation, it can be brought back to the 2008 crash and how a combination of that massive austerity and the influx of immigrants that came particularly from North Africa and the Middle East at the exact time in which those areas were being destabilized under the Obama administration with the rise of Libya and the attacks in Syria caused hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Muslims to migrate from the North, from North Africa and the Middle East into Europe. 
that caused the conflagration of where you had austerity at home and now cross increased influx migration and Europe already has this kind of historical lack of appreciation for Muslims going back thousands of years to the Crusades. And it all creates this conflagration where now you have a ripening of a coarse politics. And that politics views the central management institutions of the liberal democratic order as the problem. The EU, NATO, uh, all of these institutions that have been the bellwether of the liberal democratic order post-World War II that has allowed this kind of coalescence of an ideology of liberal small-L democracy that has brought forth this capitalist expansion of the West is the problem because they're the ones that brought us the austerity. They're the ones that allowed these immigrants in here. And part of the appeal of people like Orban, Boris Johnson, uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, 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 all of these various uh, parties, is that they say that it is the EU and NATO that is incringing on, impinging on our national sovereignty, our national rights, our rights to be, or to follow our culture, follow our old ways, and so on and so forth. So, you know, it doesn't matter that there's been massive economic growth that has transpired since the rise of the EU. So the, the, the crisis of economy and the crisis of immigration is used as a pretext by these reactionary parties to strike against these international liberal democratic institutions because they have you to be the ones that brought forth the harm that helped them. So someone like a George Soros, and you're right to talk about how using Soros as a bet noir is definitely a couch word for anti-Semitism, but Soros is what the party of Davos, the, the EU, NATO, all of the liberal, the all of the, the, uh, the what they used to call the roundtable groups, the Council of Foreign Relations, all of those roundtable groups that are, all, that are always looming in the minds of conspiratorialists, the globalists, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth, that do have a role in shaping an international consensus around the issues of finance capitalism. We shouldn't romanticize those actors just because the critique of the right is right. nefarious in its, in its, in its nature. Right. And it's a dangerous position that we find ourselves in as people on the left who are trying to fight for actual justice and economic justice for our people when we realize that, hey, if we if we criticize these 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 liberal institutions in the right way, we, in the wrong way, we're going to be giving fodder. Right. To the like the FBI right, right now, where we find ourselves sometimes yeah, exactly. defending. Because the, the FBI has a very long history of doing right. some rather damaging, nefarious stuff to people that we care about. Martin Luther King was harassed by the FBI. Malcolm X, you know, civil rights leaders, you know, freedom fighters, leftists, Marxists, socialists, so on and so forth. Yeah. So you find the conundrum where the crisis of both austerity brought by the 2008 crash and the immigration creates a, con- a conflagration of a perfect storm in Europe where you have all of these right-wing forces. And it's internationalized. It's not only in Europe. You have Bolsonaro in Brazil. You've got uh, 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 Modi in India. So now it's the rise of these reactionary right-wing figures that are using LGBTQ, they're using uh, the failure of globalism, 
They're using, oh, the spread of the vaccine because coronavirus was some kind of globalist hoax, blah, blah, blah. All of this stuff to gain steam with an international community of people, whether they be Americans, Europeans, Brazilians, or, or Indians, in the face of the internet have become more and more cynical and conspiratorial in believing that there's some kind of secret, hidden, nefarious hand that is contributing to what's happening to them and bringing forth their diminishing social quality of life. And as a consequence, it's allowing people to be more easily swayed into buying the arguments, whether it's Jeffrey Epstein, whether it's like, oh, you know, Pizzagate, whatever it is, about how the liberal democratic order that has been marshaled by the left flank of capital is is nefarious. Now, we know as leftists, yeah, they're nefarious. They're nefarious because all they want to do is be tools of capital. We get that. But what but what what the right wingers will tell you is that their paymasters, the Koch, the Koch brothers and everyone else, they're no less nefarious than Soros. You know, these guys are not trying to talk about you know a, you know a bed in every house or a house, housing housing for 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 everyone in in a stable condition or a stable community at all. They're not trying to increase the the uh, the uh, social safety net for the best of humanity for the most for the majority of humanity at all. They're interested in an authoritarian an authoritarian right wing neoliberalism. So we have neoliberalism a la neofascism. Or we have neoliberalism in neoliberal democratic order. And neither one of them are willing to create a more alternative, a more healthy alternative way of life that's going to find a way to subsidize the, the majority of Americans and majority of people effectively. Wow. A lot to process there. One of the, there so much, you're saying that in the past 14 years, we saw austerity rise, fiscal austerity rise in reaction to the financial crisis. Correct. And what helped the neoliberal order was the migrant crisis. Correct. You could blame the migrants on your uh, your agreement. condition. Yeah. We're paying for all these Syrian refugees. This is why everything uh, is unavailable to us. Now, without a value judgment on the Democrats, there's a there's no question that this Inflation Reduction Act, uh, this uh, the chips bill, which is like something like three hundred billion dollars, the the Inflation Reduction Act, which I think is seven hundred billion dollars. No value judgment. I'm just asking you what the neoliberals are thinking. Is Orban, is the far right scaring the Democrats into opening the floodgates and no longer practicing austerity and throwing money, not at the people who really need it, but the people, uh, the middle class and the upper middle class who they need on their side? It's a very, very good question. One of the first things I was worried about 
when Joe Biden took power was that Joe Biden was going to govern with austerity. Because I realized that if he is a president of austerity, it's a wrap. People are going to hate him. Reactionary right is going to take over. I do not believe that Joe Biden is governed with austerity. I think that Biden has tried to thread two needles at the same time and that he has been moderately generous with some economic social safety in the face of the COVID-19 crisis, but at the same time has not gone far enough because he's worried about things like inflation, budget deficit, so on and so forth. So he's not been, he, I don't think anyone can accuse Joe Biden of being a president of austerity, you know, particularly when you look at some of the things that he's done in terms of the COVID relief and some of his other packages as well, particularly with the child tax credits also. But at the same time, I don't think that enough has been done to really alter the functioning of neoliberal capitalism to say that Joe Biden has tried to deviate from neoliberalism and the and the exigence of neoliberalism as the dominant economic order. I'm not willing to, because people are talking about Joe Biden's the new FBI, I mean, new FDR and the uh, you know, new FDR, and you know he's going to bring back the Fordist Keynesianism of the of the golden day. I was like, come on, man, that's that's that's, that's a load of crap. We, 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 our condition of the economy, the condition of the economy is not even stable enough to allow that to happen. Even if we wanted to, even if he had the policy laxity in terms of the governing body to do that, in terms of if we had the coalition, if, I mean, you know, who was behind that? I don't think that the, the stable, the, the quality of the economy is in a position to make that happen. But at the same time, I do think that Biden, to answer your question directly, the fear of the reactionary right is the only thing that the Democrats are scared of. They're not scared of the left. They're not scared of the liberal base. They fear Trump and these right wingers taking power. Which is what Roosevelt was terrified of. He said, I, I'm saving capitalism. I'm not a socialist. I'm saving capitalism. That's true. But at least he also had a robust left that was pressuring him to do good stuff. Right. 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 We don't have that in America right now, sadly. Right. Why is that? I think that we've had the 50-plus counter-revolution where the reaction, where both parties have been invested in a neoliberal capitalism that has been cannibalizing the economy in this country, and the political imagination of most people in this country has been so divorced from a rigorous left that they don't even know what it looks like. But what, what do you mean by that? No one... It's revolutionary to say, why don't we have health care for all? It's considered right. almost strange before Bernie Sanders came, comes along. Right. Why don't we have universally high, universal higher education? Things that you have in Europe in most modern civilizations are anathema to the American consciousness because we are so divorced from having a conversation about a humane, popular, popular goods-based governance infrastructure. What do I mean by that? Having a government that works for the population, not for the corporations. We're so alien from having that kind of consciousness in our minds that people don't know what it looks like to even make those demands. Right, right. Professor Harvey J.K. says it's a myth that Roosevelt said to A. Philip Randolph, make me do it. Make me do it. I've heard, I've, I've had debates with Harvey J.K. Interesting guy. Yeah. But, uh, and his new book... By the way, I have 
a copy of it, the British Marxist historians. This is his first book that he wrote. They're reissuing it on zero books. Uh, so go buy it, the British Marxist historians. Okay. But that's a nice bedtime story to tell left of center Democrats. Exactly. Make like make Biden do it. Make Pelosi do it. Is there any legitimacy to that? Or are we just blaming the victim? I think that the part of the problem we have with my people, the, the left, the people who I consider my part of, is that they don't know how to make these centrist Democrats care enough about the issues of the working class. We, we forgot how to organize people. We forgot how to get 5,000 people in a gymnasium in the neighborhood to talk about why exactly are the prices of things so high and why we can't get prices fixed to make sure our housing rates don't go up to make inflation go down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How much of in, in Marxist thought is a, how important is a cultural revolution? And what do they mean by cultural revolution? I, I mentioned this because I look at our culture from in the sixties and the 70s, there were generations that were taught, don't trust advertising, don't buy anything that's corporate, don't listen to music that's corporate. It's no good. You're being manipulated. Look for music or comedians who are not corporate. It was a pejorative. Um, don't we need a cultural revolution where the left holds our culture accountable? I think that, well, because there's a debate, you know, there's a really a debate going on in the left about how much Marx cared about culture. But there are certain Marxists who come out of what's called the Frankfurt School, uh, Theodore Adorno, uh, Mar Herbert Marcuse, who talk about the, the, the thing concept I mentioned often, the ideological superstructure, which is the education system, the social, stru the social structure, the, 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 the music, the industry, the culture industry, how that creates a certain kind of consciousness that infiltrates the mind of the body politic that directs, that directs them. We've got to influence, we, we have to get into the ideological superstructure of American society and tell people that consumerism is not the answer. Right. That, 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 that buying crap that you don't need is not what's going to make you feel better but having an edified quality of life where you can actually think critically and challenge the status quo and just don't buy into the consumeristic drivel that's coming out of the mainstream media is a better way for you than simply just buying into the nonsense you're being taught to buy. How dangerous are people like Bruce Springsteen and Tom Morello? Tom Morello, Rage Against the Machine, gives an interview saying, I'm not endorsing Bernie Sanders. That only encourages people to vote. I don't believe you can solve any problems uh, through elections. And, you know, maybe they'll have uh, garbage cans for the homeless, you know, do donate some cans for the homeless at their concerts. But in the end, aren't they just appealing to the consumer culture where you think, I saw Tom Morello perform at a Christmas party for hedge fund managers. Wow. Yeah. And, and 
with the guitar that said, this machine fights fascism. And he sang the ghost of Tom Joad and these hedge fund managers with their Euro trash model. I guess that's not nice to say, but it's true. They were jumping up and down to Tom Morello. And I'm thinking they think they're doing good in this world by consuming what he's packaged. It's dangerous, isn't it, for young people? Forget well, I think it definitely it causes confusion. I think that confusion can be very dangerous. When we look at, I think that the, the, the focus on celebrity culture as a means of political education is very dangerous because celebrity is driven by capital. I'm very skeptic, very skeptical of using celebrity culture as the means by which to give people political education to challenge the status quo. Right. Because I think that ultimately that the popular culture is something that's really driven by the whims of the media market of the day. Right. And, you know, I have many quarrels with Jon Stewart, but he 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 sent a message to famous people. You have a pulpit. It's not good enough to record a commercial saying, you know, uh, let's find a cure for cancer. You got to go to Washington, D.C., and you have to take on and embarrass the legislate the legislative right. branch. Um, you know, I, I just keep thinking if I were Bruce Springsteen. Why isn't Bruce Springsteen? I'm a broken record on this. Why isn't he with Christian Smalls? I mean, listen, man, uh, Bruce Springsteen Bruce Springsteen's got a comfortable life. But he sings about Tom Joad. I don't know what, I, I can't speak for what Bruce, Bruce Springsteen's consciousness is now. He, Bruce Springsteen is also doing podcasts with Barack Obama. Yeah, yeah. And, and and they just signed with Amazon. They just, yeah, Michelle so. and Barack just signed with Audible, which is owned by Amazon, to produce their next batch of uh, liberal uh, hogwash. Uh, in music, what did, what did Mao mean by a cultural revolution? I think Mao's cultural revolution was the belief that the aspects of the Chinese culture should be used to support the revolution against capital and imperialism so that the culture of the people should be part of the of the actual tools to challenge the status quo. And that, so that's art and music and dance and yes, theater that. and movies. Yes. So any movie that comes out of Hollywood, therefore, is garbage. It might have part some- of the problem is, is that America, our culture industry is so tied to capitalist production that it doesn't have the kind of revolutionary capacity. It ends up being a reified, ends up reifying the capitalist status quo as opposed to challenging it. Right. Now, Does- also, we also have an element of a Hollywood man that is inf- infiltrated by the intelligence and met in the Pentagon. Absolutely. And, 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 and they, you know, they, they finance a lot of these. They Since work World with War One. Since World War yeah. One, they've been doing that. They, yeah, they so, I mean, the, yeah, Hollywood is not the friend of the ra- radical trans- transformative changers of popular consensus. Right. Occasionally, there'll be a movie like the is it the Minions? There's there's some movies that sneak in messages, but not solutions. Really, you're not allowed. You can right. state the problem, but but not the solution. We have a question from Rodrigo in Mexico. Rodrigo. Hello, Rodrigo. 
Hi, David. I put it in the Q&A, but I wanted to ask Pascal to explain what the NIRO is, the non-accelerating non inflation unemployment rate. On the NIRO. The NIRO, NIRO, is a, sorry, yes. yeah, the NIRO is a fixed rate of unemployment that the United States maintains to make sure that we do not have inflation. But and what, why, when Pascal talks about the reserve army of labors, one of the many things he means is that the late 60s economists decided that if unemployment below, drops below 4%, it damages the sacred cow, the economy. That's correct. And why Greenspan, Bernanke, and Janet Yellen all believe it's part of their job to cause people to lose their jobs to protect the economy when that because happens. they are tied into the old neoliberal way of thinking that basically sacrificing labor to avoid inflation is what's necessary in this kind of in this kind of economy. Which is what Jerome Powell is doing right now because it's below four percent unemployment. Correct. Right. Uh, interesting. Pascal Robert, co-host. This is thank you, Rodrigo. Pascal Robert co-hosts the This Is Revolution podcast with Jason Miles. And is he, I don't want to know where he lives, but there's- He lives in Mexico. Right, I know, but I don't want to, but is he being affected by the shutdown due to the- No, Gang no. violence? No. Rod, Rodrigo, are you being affected by it? Sorry, which shutdown? I- talked at the top of the show about these drug cartels fighting in Juarez and in Tijuana. Is this affecting all of Mexico? Uh, it comes and goes, but it mostly happens near the border because of the cartels trying to smuggle drugs to satisfy demand. But I think Jason should be safe. I'm definitely safe. Thank you. Good. I wasn't asking if you were safe. <laughs> I know. Pascal Robert, who is on This Is Revolution this week? Tomorrow night we're going to have a, a scholar talking about the Indian Americans and the New Deal. How are they affected by it? Give me a... a, a, a I don't have his name. A, a, no, no, but a quick FDR turning his back on Native Americans, First People. Yes, we're going to ask, did he have the same effect on New Deal with Native Americans that he had with African Americans in terms of the racialized impact? Right. By the way, I just found out that tipping is a way of keeping uh, African American women uh in poverty. Did, 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 I've heard something about it. I don't know the details. I'm not familiar. I think I just read something. Michelle Alexander wrote a piece. I just reread it. It was set up. I, I'm going to I'm going to screw it up I, next week. If you come back, I'll, I'll get the okay. way I remember it quickly is that in the 20s, because of the crisis, Restaurants and the service industry started saying, well, you can keep the tips and then we don't have to raise your salary because we think we're going out of business. And today, the people who live off tips get $2.30 per hour. In some states. 
Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, I'll, uh, it has something to do with the minimum wage and not wanting African-American women to get paid a minimum wage. They wanted them to work on tips, which means they'd be more uh, frightened and more uh, subservient uh, when, as, as servants. But we'll talk about it next week. Pascal right. Robert, always great. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Fantastic. Uh, everybody should watch and listen to the This Is Revolution podcast. Thank you, Pascal Robert. When we come back, we will be joined by the brilliant comedy writer, Dave Cyrus, who has not been with us. Uh, he has been so busy going to Hollywood parties. I cannot wait to hear what he has to tell us because he flies all over the world hanging out with the creme de la creme of show business. I don't even, I don't know how he has time to, to slum it. That's probably a bad expression. Slumming it? Uh, that's probably a bad expression. I don't know where you find the time uh, to be with a low life like... We prefer shtetling. <laughs> Shtetl is such a great word. It's just shtetl. Uh, the only one we have. Huh? The only cool word we have. Uh, uh, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld reminded me of the word meskite. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you ever hear the word meskite when you were growing up? Your grandmother yeah, must have described. Yeah, I'm a Jew in Brooklyn. What do you think? Like everybody has a sister who's a meskite. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's it's not uh, it's ugly. I call I call people yentas every day. Yeah, but meskite is great because it means <laughs> you're ugly. It's just it it just trips off the tongue so lightly and it's so evil. She's a meskite. He's a meskite. It's just saying, it's saying somebody's hideous. We'll is be, it? Huh? Okay, I I didn't know that's what I thought it just meant like a. Like a, like a, like a loser. No, no. Meskite means you have an ugly face. It's so cruel. It's so cruel. Meskite. And to hear Dr. Hershenfeld, a psychiatrist, say it made me laugh so hard. All right. Dave Cyrus is coming up. I can't wait to find out what he's been up to, what showbiz parties he's been to. We'll be back with the brilliant Dave Cyrus. I'm sure he's been nominated for Emmys. We have to hear about that. But first, some, some music from Professor Mike Steinel. In this Bessemer shop Back in our day Don't ever seem to stop A man went down Cause his heart gave out Get back to work We heard them shout They said the EMTs are coming That's what they're for And life slipped away On a cement floor The bookstores are all gone away Got me some books, I'll read them someday 
now I got to make my raid and all these extra shifts. If I can make it to Christmas Eve, the kids will have nice gifts. And the big boss will have more money so he can go up into space. But there still won't be no chairs in this Bessemer place. Last year we had a meeting and they made us go. They gave us all pins that said, vote no. But maybe this year union can give us a little more and put some chairs on this Bessemer floor. When the union might make things right Some days I just don't have the strength to fight This plant down here can take its toll It'll break your body, it'll crush your soul Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop so great. Professor Mike Steinel is so great. I wish I were Professor Mike Steinel. I do. If I could do that, I would, if I could be Professor Mike Steinel. The number of days you would last in a professional educational environment. Or a band. You can... Oh yeah, that too. What do you think I you would just... be, what would I be like? As a professor? No, no, in a band with Professor Mike's traveling in a bus. I do kind of see you wearing really big sunglasses and playing the bass. <laughs> uh, I could see you doing that guy. By the way, you know, you came up in conversation yesterday, if you can even imagine such a thing. Really? Me and my celebrity friends. Really? Uh, we, were we were watching my cousin Vinny. Right. And there's the, the one Jewish character in that happened they were saying who is that where do i know him from and i said i know where i know that guy from that's the guy who gets baptized in the curb your enthusiasm episode and then david feldman offers to have him speak at his daughter's bat mitzvah wow and and your celebrity friends said dave you know david feldman mm -hmm. they said and they that. also 
literally all all of them in the room in unison almost said from MTV half hour comedy hour <laughs> like it was like a barbershop quartet they all said it at once but as it, but I was briefly big on MTV people don't believe me when I say this but there was a period when Lisa Berger who booked MTV I was I was like her favorite comic and even back then I was too old for MTV, but I. Yes. And you were 10 years younger than me at the time, which is. And I looked old, but mind I, blowing. But I actually, I would say in the 90s, like the early 90s, there was a time when I was constantly on MTV. Well, they didn't have that much programming. Yeah. They, yeah. Now I remember the show. Yeah. I, I did like three little, I think I did one special i can't i have to you know anyway I mean, the fact that i knew who you were when i met you i can't think of any other possible reason that could have been than from watching that show as a kid so imagine how i feel when so many people promised me i was going to be the next big thing that i, I feel like on some level you were the next poor man's lewis black <laughs> Uh, as a matter of fact, I was uh, Liz Winstead, who created The Daily Show, asked me and Lewis Black to do something. And I was working as a comedy writer and I kind of backed away. I didn't do the under Kilborn. I didn't do the gig because I was making money as a comedy writer and I didn't want to risk it. Mm -hmm. But there was a period from, I would say, from 1990 till about 1994, where I was going to be the next big thing. And, yeah, uh, well, I could. Yeah, no, you should have you should have uh, you should have worked for The Daily Show. You probably would have loved it uh, on camera. Yeah. Anyway, I was it's a great. Show. Honestly, I think I chickened out. I wanted to be a comedy writer. I didn't think I thought ultimately. Being a comedy writer is probably a more stable life than trying to be famous because I had kids, mm -hmm. you know? And I, yes, yes. I do know you that you had kids. And looking back, I should have tried to be famous the way my kids uh, have. Or at the very least successful. Or been successful. That success, I eluded me. I, I mm -hmm. tried to. Uh, as a comedy writer, I was going to be the next big thing. And that didn't happen. Well, it also speaks well for you. It's, I think it speaks well for any comic to not need to be the face of something. No, I want, like, I wanted it. I, I wanted it desperately. Cause, I, cause like in my case, I don't, it doesn't really make a difference to me. I but, don't really get, I don't care about being the person delivering the jokes. I just want to make them. So I take back, it means you weren't healthy, but it's still, you know, a point to be made. Here's what happened to me. And then we'll talk about you. Good. I, I started becoming a comedy writer in 94. And in the back of my mind, I thought if I really wanted fame, I could have it. That's what I, that's the game I told myself. But what I realized was, no, I got <laughs> as far as it was going to go and nobody really wanted me to be famous. They couldn't stand me. But I, in the back of my mind, I thought if I really was willing to sell my soul, but I did sell my soul. 
Well, I mean, let's be fair. Hollywood doesn't really give a fair shake to Jews. It's not easy making it if you're visibly Jewish in Hollywood. But I, why would I? As Al Franken once said, you can count the number of Jews in Hollywood on one hand. And then he listed off 15 people. (laughs) By the way, he's hosting, uh, he's hosting Kimmel. I'm actually really excited about that. He's hosting Kimmel. Franken. Al Franken is. Good for him. He's going, he's really full back into comedy. And look, I, I want to win elections, but not as much as I want more of his books. Because right. Why Not Me was like the best comedy yes. satire, the best comedic political satire of all time. Even if it may gave us a, a majority, I'd still rather him writing books. Right. And uh, I feel obliged to speak the truth about him, even though I think he he's my hero. But he assaulted those women. And he was off. I have to say this because I noticed he endorsed Liz Cheney yesterday for Wyoming. And everybody's saying, I wish Al Franken would come back. And they perpetuate the lie that he was denied due process. He was not denied due process. There were eight to 10 women who came forward. Chuck Schumer said, do you want to go before the Senate Ethics Committee? And Al chickened out. And he's now trying to rewrite history and say he was bullied and he was denied due process. That is a lie, Al. And I'm certainly willing to believe that he did uh, grope the women who accused him of it. What I'm saying is I have a much lower threshold for uh, morality in my uh, comedy writers than politicians. It's like, right. it's like a, a conversation about why Don Rickles shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. <laughs> I love Don Rickles. I do, too. I just I would not want him in a position to change the Constitution, (laughs) even if he would do a good job. It just looks wrong. You know what I love? The fact that you haven't been on this show for months. You're beloved Mm -hmm. here. People have been asking where you've been. And we're talking about me and my career. Isn't that amazing? That's how it usually goes for a malignant narcissist. Hey, I heard Triumph. Do you know Triumph the Insult Comic Dog? Personally, yes. You know him. I've I've worn him. You've worn Triumph the Incel Comic Dog. I have. You know that. I hear he's playing Port Towns in Washington in two weeks at a music festival. Have you heard this? Jesus Christ, that's in two weeks. Yeah. Okay. People. Who <laughs> yeah, live- yeah. We are uh, we are getting ready for that, aren't we? It's gonna be really fun. People. I just I just had a friend who was uh, just found out about uh, Let's Make a Poop and was and was super excited about it. People who live in port towns in Washington, this would be Washington state. It's near the Canadian border. This there's a music festival in port Townsend. I think it's about two weeks from around now. And they're going to be all modest mouse is going to be there. And all these great musicians and triumph. The insult comic dog will be performing live. That's awesome. No, I'm, I'm very excited. It's an for opportunity, that. For, a rare opportunity. For no, people. I wish I could or wanted to go in person. But I'm very excited for the show. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. So what celebrities? Let me get the plug in. Sorry, go on. What celebrities have you been hanging out with? Uh, let's see. Um, Are you allowed to talk about the celebrities? 
No. But there's uh, one. Don't you get special dispensation for talking about one? Like you can talk about one. I uh, I mean, I like I, I assume most people if they have any I mean I assume most people listening have no idea who I am. But if you know who if you happen to know me, you know that yes, I am Pete Davidson's writing partner and uh friend. Right. So yes, I have been getting more random messages. Uh, in my spam folder than usual lately, uh, mostly from women who think that's a good idea to uh, uh, proposition him through me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, God bless him. Nothing wrong with, you know, taking a shot. Uh, but yes, uh, I have been. Uh, we never really talked about this, but did you know that I, I'm friends with uh, with Pete and that I've uh, I had not uh, heard. And that I've dealt with things on behalf of that. I, I, I did not know. Uh, I, I'm a little unfamiliar with who Pete Davidson is. Uh, and I, I don't know anything about Kim Kardashian or Kanye West. This is stuff that I know mm-hmm. nothing. <laughs> no, I've always, yeah. I've never well, asked you about that yeah, on the no, show. It's, uh, we haven't really talked about it much. But yeah, um, I was doxxed uh, by Pete's girlfriend at the time's ex-husband he uh he posted love me and saying he wanted to find me and posted part of my address you know encouraging you know someone uh to find where i am that's fine uh, which was kind of fun well it was honestly it was one of those things where i would have had a lot more fun with it if it wasn't for the circumstances around it because right. uh his detective quote unquote whoever he asked it for uh that he was and this is stuff that uh, kanye was posting publicly he posted uh, half my address, like the numbers without the, the the name of the street. Right. And then, but also told him that I live, that I'm from Atlantic City and that I live with roommates. Neither of those things are true. I hadn't lived in Atlantic City ever my entire life. And I hadn't had roommates in seven years. But I also didn't want to correct the information to make, you know, <laughs> I, I, didn't, I don't think anyone, he didn't, it's not like he deserves for me to, to help this guy, you know, find information. So... The truth is, I actually would have had a lot more fun with it if it wasn't for the fact that I was being like implored to keep quiet about it because the address that he actually uh, posted, you know, part of uh, was the address where my grandmother uh, was uh, fairly immobilized. Because as you remember us talking about it, she uh, was dying of pancreatic cancer. Hang on, hang on, hang on for one second. Hang on. Hang on. I'm sorry. I, I'm a little unprepared. You're going to play a violin? I'm sorry. Do you, do you have a violin to Don't, play? Hang on for one second. I didn't hear what you said. What, you're, 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 how is your... Uh, how is well, your... she died about two weeks after that happened. So the problem hang was... On, hang was, on. There we go. That's worth the time. Sorry. So she... So she what did she so die she actually of? died of... Yeah, what? she passed away about two weeks after that. From what? So From what? What? From what? Uh, pancreatic cancer. <laughs> um so that's like that, so like my whole family was like visiting the house that people like all the comment like there are people obviously in the comments were like posting the full address you know to make sure people had it and you know a lot of the death threats were people sending me my own address and stuff <laughs> like that which i honestly i took it like the thing is i didn't take it seriously at all and I mean, obviously, I shouldn't have because nothing happened, just like I knew it wouldn't. But it was also a situation where it's like I wasn't the only person. How uh, could like you said, not write a movie about this? Well, because I was asked not to. I was asked by a lot of people to please not like get hang involved, on, hang on, not, hang not on. antagonize. 
even though as a comedian, it's my job to make fun of someone in this situation. But hang on. Like I said, I. Dr. Hershenfeld and Ethan Hershenfeld told me that sitting Shiva in English, you know what it means in English? What? Sitting seven. I didn't know hmm. that. Shiva means seven in Hebrew. It's such a, yeah. it's, it's the kind of thing Kanye would say. I got to go sit seven. <laughs> okay. it's, so like you, this is a great idea for, you call it sitting seven. And it's. Oh, the, oh, the, like you have like a thing where it's like you have a Shiva, but also like armed guards outside. Or, and- or yeah, or some beloved rap artist is trying to kill you while you're sitting seven. What was really funny about it was, so we had to hire security, obviously, because, you know, what was happening. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I lived- Wait, you needed a, security for your grandma's shiva because of Twitter? Yeah. Well, we had a, <laughs> I mean, we, had a, we had like, you know, a few dozen death threats. So, and, and also there's other things I'm not supposed to, you know, get into detail about that made it more credible than one would assume from just it being on Instagram. I, which I can't get into, but it, it, it suffice to say, I was. Uh, Let me ask you a question. To take it are, fairly seriously. I, I'm um, trivializing this. Mm-hmm. Are there really people out there who would take marching orders from a beloved, uh, emotionally unstable uh, performer? Uh, apparently yes, but Kanye's not one of them because all they did was send me terribly spelled emails threatening me. No one actually tried to do shit. But there are other people who actually can get their followers to follow through on that. Right. Uh, you know, like by shooting at the FBI with a nail gun. Which, did that happen? I mean, well, yeah, a guy got killed for shooting his nail gun at the FBI. I didn't hear about that. Kanye? Is that Kanye? No, I'm sorry. We, we changed subjects. I'm talking about Trump, of course. Oh, right. Who you probably don't know this. The FBI no. uh, broke into his home, uh, opened his safe and stole uh, uh, stole from him his property of American uh, classified documents. That you know, top is, secret stuff. Are, and I, are people going to rise against the government to protest? Well, it's actually pretty great. Uh, we finally got Republicans to agree with defunding law enforcement. <laughs> All of a sudden, they want to, Marjorie Taylor Greene wants to abolish the FBI. Uh, Rand Paul wants to get rid of the Espionage Act, wants to make it legal to commit espionage against the United States, essentially, just to keep Trump in the clear. It's actually kind of great that we realize now that like we can get whatever we want by just making it Trump's problem. Right. That's a you know, like, great like, 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 just like the way that like COVID forced conspiracy theorists who were trying to figure out the truth about COVID to accidentally learn a modicum of medical science. <laughs> now you have Republicans for the first time learning what the due process of the United States is <laughs> and learning how search and seizure works mm-hmm. by wanting Trump to not be held responsible for it. I mean, it just shows that like we can really fix the world's problems by just screwing over Trump. Exactly. You know, this, we, this is, if we can get him pregnant, we have everything we ever want. <laughs> like, like, it's just, it's really funny to watch them. Like Brilliant. they want to dismantle the United States as like entire law enforcement and espionage capabilities simply to protect Donald Trump 
while we liberals, we're, you know, let's be fair. We're kind of hypocrites, too. We want to dismantle those things also just to protect all minorities and poor people. So, you know, is one better than the other? Yes, one is better. <laughs> but, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of adorable. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, tr- but how bad is it? Like, we don't I, know. I'm you know, I sometimes wonder if it's confirmation bias on my part. I just keep looking for things that are wrong and we're at a tipping point. Is it narcissism? Could it be? Here's my assumption. Here's my assumption, because, you know, I don't know much about this, but I do know, you know, what little I know about the criminal justice system is that the police and the FBI, you know, they play fair according to their rules, which aren't fair in general. Right. Like they play by a set of rules that are stacked toward the establishment, not the accused. Uh, And that goes for all people. I would say less so in Trump's case. Trump got a lot of special treatment. He did things that a lot of people would have been arrested for long ago if he wasn't a president. Uh, But, uh, you know, this is just how, you know, the criminal justice system works. So my thing is, yeah, they had a legal right to break into his house because he had all these classified documents, which people who work for him are saying it wasn't really on purpose. He's just incompetent and a mess and just doesn't understand how what what he is and is not allowed to do, uh, which, of course, for anyone else would not be a defense. But here's the thing. Isn't the way the police work is they get one reason to search you and then anything else they find is fair game? No, I think Isn't that the, how that usually works. No, I think the there's the exclusionary rule. I don't know. We'd have to ask a lawyer. I think if you're if your warrant says you have to find this and they find that and you weren't looking for it, it may, I think it has the potential to be even forbidden. if the reason they were searching is validated and legal. I think a judge. A I think a judge has to uh, decide whether that fruit was ill-gotten. Right, but if the search was legitimate and it was in the process of, yeah, I think so. Maybe my understanding is that you know, if you look, if you found a body and you weren't looking for a body, right, right, you're still getting charged. Is what I look. I don't know. I don't know. I just I, I think you know, you're right. I think you're I th- right. I feel like there's opportunity because it's one of those things where, you know, you give them an you give them an inch and they're going to take as much as they can. And I don't know. Look, I don't know. I do think that there are, you know, if these nuclear documents are if that is true, those don't apply to the president's right to declassify things. You know, there's also just simply the physical location of these documents. You can declassify things. It doesn't mean you can take official government documents out of there. Look, these aren't the biggest crimes he's committed, but the whole idea is that something might be unraveling. Well, we've heard this before, and it never seems to happen. He always bounces back. I hear the same argument about climate change. We've been hearing all our lives that the, that the earth is going to get hot. But that's because there are the frogs in the water not realizing that it is getting hotter. No, what but I'm I mean, saying I, is climate change is real and... and uh, Donald Trump is a mortal threat to the planet as well. But just like climate change, we don't do anything about it. We, we're not going right. to. That's I'm saying I'm the saying. argument there is that people will say, well, you know, nothing ever happens to Trump. And it's like, yeah, well, people are also saying, well, how come the sea levels haven't risen yet? And it's like, eh, hold on. The world's not over yet. The, right. the game is not over yet. It's going right. to probably happen. One fortune, one unfortunately. Uh, 
but no, Trump, uh, he could be in trouble. I don't think he's as confident that he's not in trouble as liberals are. So, you know, we, we all, how many of us ever thought there would ever be a day when the FBI broke into Mar-a-Lago and cracked open his safe? So we'll see what happens. Yeah. It's, uh, Will it make know, the world better if he goes to jail? Absolutely. Yes. If he doesn't go to jail, then we are essentially accepting the Republican premise right now for the midterm and, of course, 2024 elections. The Republicans are running on the end of democracy. They right. are. They are running on the concept that elections are we are going to be one of those, you know, uh, t- teapot, you know, tin tinfoil type of, you know, countries where, you know, the president wins ninety nine point five percent of the vote. And whoever is in control of a state house will just happen to always win elections. And whenever a Democrat wins an election, it's fraudulent. Whenever a Republican wins an election, it's not. They are running on the idea. If he doesn't get any punishment, it means there is no reason not to do this. You know, if you don't, if someone doesn't get in trouble for shoplifting, why would they ever stop shoplifting? Right. So I think it's very necessary for our future that he suffers. Yeah. And it's necessary for the elections that people see. You can't vote for someone who's openly saying they're going to they're going to overturn every election forever and that we're just going to be a country where every election, both people then start fighting in the state houses and then start fighting in the state Senate and just and that the elections never end. They never stop fighting each other. That doesn't matter who you voted for, because they're just going to decide in those, you know, back rooms who wins. Exactly. Yeah. I think if I think and look, I'm not saying that's not going to happen. We very well could have seen our last Democratic election. This is what is so terrifying. We think that Hitler just took over Germany or that Orban just took over Hungary. No, they do it legally. Hitler did not really break any laws. Uh, No, Hitler Hitler's uh, ascent to power was was perfectly legal. He convinced the German people, you have to give you have to make me king. And I promise I'll give it back once I fix everything. Right. The Enabling Act, I think, was passed a year after he was uh, declared Fuhrer, which is built into Roman democracy. And here's the really sad thing about what happened in Germany. What's what, what obviously one of the very, very sad things about how Hitler got into power. Hitler was able to take advantage of the fact that the German people, a proud, industrious, you know, superpower of its day, had been so completely humiliated by World War One, had been destroyed by the sanctions against them, basically being held completely responsible for the war. They were just a com- they were a shambles of a country. They were completely demoralized to the point that they would look to this con man to tell them they're better than everyone else. The sad thing is the same thing happened in America, but instead of being insecure about losing the greatest war of all time, they were just insecure about just being like uneducated and, and and conspiracy theorists. Like nothing even happened to them to make them so insecure and so depressed that they would need this amount of, of attention that Trump was giving them. These are people right. who are just mad about the fact that that other people in the world had things they didn't, right. that other people in the world had fame or uh, educations that made them feel dumb. I mean, these are people who put themselves in that position, whereas Germans, 
I mean, they put themselves in the position, but it was uh, it was from a, a great, huge event where, you know, we now look back and say we probably shouldn't have been quite so vicious to post World War One Germany because mm-hmm. we fermented, we, we fomented that to, you know, into happening. You know, it's, it's just like, you know, you have to treat you should treat the people who lose wars kind of well so that you don't have more wars in Iraq. We saw. Dick Cheney and Rumsfeld make one of the biggest mistakes of all time, which after they defeated the army, they didn't hire them. Remember that? They Remember de-bath- when they said they de-bathified. The, Iraqi, the Iraqi police showed up, the Iraqi military showed up and they said, hey, do, do you want to pay our salaries? And America said no. And I remember being shocked as a early 20s guy when I believe it was Don Rumsfeld said, oh, it was the first time in history, the losing army expected the winning army to pay them. And I'm like, oh my Jesus Christ. It's the first time in history we didn't. Right. Every war in history, they immediately commission the losing army to keep the peace. Anyway. Yes. Yes. Uh, we could talk about Salman. Salman. Who is Salman Rushdie? And he's doing better, right? Salman Rushdie. Thank God he's doing well. He's, spe- he's speaking a day after that attack. Which means, you know, he's obviously it's a 75 year old man. He's very hurt, but it's fantastic that he lived. But you know what? We got to admit, you know, the Iranians, boy, did they make their point that I don't care who you are. I don't care how famous you are. I don't care what TV shows you're on. If you insult Islam. Within a blink of an eye of 40 years, someone will fail to attack you. I'm like, don't even 40 to change this. I don't even want to. Yeah. Well, it's just the fact that it's like I all the only thing I'll say about Iran and Salman Rushdie is how like where what happened to Iran? Where I, I miss the Iran is such a shadow of its former self that they're not taking credit for this. They're saying this isn't our fault. This is his fault. I, you remember the 80s. Now, that was an Iran you could set your watch to. They'd be on TV right now saying, yeah, we got you. Only 40 years later and we got you. Like, I, I just find it. Kind of like us with Ayman al-Zahari. Only 21 years it took to get mm-hmm. him. Well, at least we, we, we did a better job, did we? <laughs> I mean, we, 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 we exploded him out of the sky. Let's, uh, yeah. let's not gloss over how cool that was. An eye doctor. They killed an eye doctor. A healer. The man's a healer. <laughs> I feel like he probably hadn't practiced in a long time. And by the way, he was just an optician. Let's not go nuts. No, he was an ophthalmologist. They all, they're all opticians. They just use fancy words. <laughs> I've talked about this on the show. Rand Paul, ophthalmologist, and the head of Syria is an ophthalmologist. All that is three terrorists. Rand Paul. That is, that is a weird Assad. coincidence, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Assad was, uh, well, he was an eye doctor? Assad was an eye doctor. He was, a, he was an eye Here's doctor, the yeah. really interesting thing. Mullah Omar, who ran the Taliban, had one eye. Mm-hmm. And now... I'm just saying that if Ayman al-Zahari was such a good opth- ophthalmologist, how come Mullah Omar only had... All right. I, I, hey, Dan, are we going to... How you- good... Let's be fair. How good an op, how how good an eye doctor can you be when you're hiding in a place without electricity? 
Like, I feel like these guys were hiding for a long time. They were on the run. I feel like there's only so much you can do without your tools, without, you know, without, without like an office. This guy didn't have like, you know, x-rays handy. Do you think he sat with uh, bin Laden on 9-11 and looked at the towers and said, better now? How about now? How many, <laughs> how many towers? Do, oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell that one to Pete Davidson. See if you does Pete laugh about uh, 9-11? Oh, of course. Really? Oh, he, oh he, he likes a good 9-11 joke. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we've made plenty about him and we've laughed at ones about him. Right. So, uh, yeah, no, I, you know what I'm trying to remember? I feel like I don't, I feel like I remember him laughing at that Hulk Hogan 9-11 meme. It was one of the earliest memes. Do you know the one? You, no. you know Hulk Hogan? Somebody made a meme of, you know, how whenever Hulk Hogan would wrestle anyone, he would do the exact same thing. He would make like three poses. He would kick you in the face. He would, he would flex. And then he would do like the, the sailing, like the, the hands both in the same direction thing. And they then did sleep that with Bubba the if, Love Sponge's wife, right? Yeah. Yeah. That guy, they did a meme of what if Hulk Hogan knocked down the towers, but did it exactly like he always defeated every villain. It was very popular. Right. Right. Where were you on 9-11? Uh, we've, oh, I've told the story on your show, actually. I was at my brother's fraternity in Boston, where I had the esteemed pleasure of the one time in my life I got to do something good of stopping the one asshole in the frat from doing something disgusting in response to it. What, invade Iraq? No, it was just some piece of shit who was just like, hey, let's go find uh, an Arab guy. And I was the one to be like, fuck you. Sorry language right uh we're not going to do that you know and it was like wow my one we're time my entire an arab life, country I to do something. what's that we're going to find an arab country that had nothing to do with this yeah instead. yeah well uh, believe me i can assume that guy was very in favor of the iraq war too yeah i was you know i i'm amazed at the stupidity of the american people and you think like i remember right after 9-11 they interviewed people on the streets of New York and some schmuck goes, this is war. And I remember thinking, really? Who, who are you going to invade? Well, it is war. You just don't know against who. No, it was he, war. It, it just wasn't necessarily against the country. No, he was like, somebody's going to pay for this. This is war. Like, we're going to find the country with te with terrorism. He actually thought you could go to war. Well, that's the thing about terrorism is that, you know, they don't have a base exactly. necessarily to, to attack. It exactly. still was a kind of war. I mean, it was an act of war against us. And we did have a terrible no, no, Pearl war Pearl Harbor was an act of war because a nation state attacked us. Well, we, yes, it's, it's semantics. Well, uh, it's important you know, because you can't go to war with a terrorist organization that is floating throughout the world it's a right police i mean action. it is it was more of a police action yeah it, and it yeah, yeah it, it, it's true it's you could do it through the military you could do it through interpol and fbi you know that's that's for people i don't really know that stuff but yeah or you could um, read the memo the day before that says osama bin Laden intent on flying airplanes determined into the to world attack within yeah. the united states yeah maybe. well i mean we already know that i read richard clark's book i assume you did too yeah about the fact that they were completely ignoring that side of terrorism and looking at china and and that you know to their credit they they wasn't on purpose they thought there was no way something like this was going to happen but it, it was you know because they weren't paying attention because they're incompetent dick cheney fortunately uh 
Well, unfortunately, Al Gore and Bill Clinton were more focused on that than them. And who knows what would have happened if they if there wasn't a regime change. Oh, we're talking about the Scalia Supreme Court decision. No, I'm 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 just talking. To, well, yes, yes, of course. Yeah, oh, I, okay. I didn't mean it like a regime change. I just meant that if Bush hadn't become president, we might have been way less with our pants down and and not concentrating on Arab terrorism. Do you know what you've been dragooned into? I don't think I know what that word means. You're being, it means drafted. Mm -hmm. you're, okay. you're gonna play Stump the Humps with our quiz master, Dan Frankenberger, where you, you're, oh. gonna, you're gonna uh, lose. What's a, what's a hump? You're a hump. <laughs> Please welcome. Please welcome the quiz master, Dan Frankenberger. Dan, what's the quiz? Oh, they love you here. What's the quiz on? Well, you guys were just debating on uh, the terms ophthalmologist and optometrist. In today's uh, quiz, we have six questions on the human anatomy. The human okay. anatomy. You're human, yep. Dave Cyrus, so you may have a I've chance. Seen, I've seen that. In fact, I have... Uh, I don't have video, but I have audio of your first, uh, how should we put this? Wood. That's you, your first wood. It, when you were I 15. I feel like that sound doesn't have enough of a specific connotation to uh, insult my penis. Uh, I have sound of your first sexual experience. I did not cry until well after. That wasn't you. That was your mother. You breaking it to your mother that you're no longer hers. Okay, let me do this. Uh, Dan, let me put some, some money in the, uh, in the kitty. Hang on. That is making a deposit. That, is. <laughs> that was the that was the wrong. Uh, hang on, um, wrong cashola. Hang on. I have a feeling that you're making these noises with one of those enormous metal like setups they would have at a 1970s radio station, and not your computer. Exactly. I By feel like way, each I, one of these sounds is a locked-in lever. I have. I have. I actually have the sound of your first nocturnal emission. You are over 60 years old. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Dan, I, I, I have to find... Uh, hang on for one second. Oh, here is... Right, those are for Dave's answers. And now I need the sound effect for my answers. Well, that's the kitty. Hang on. That's putting money in the kitty. I know. Why aren't we prepared? I wrote the questions. I know, but I, I'm having trouble finding uh, the correct answers. Uh, <laughs> all right. What is what is the topic? Is human anatomy? And and who goes first? Uh, Mr. Cyrus is going to go first. Dave, okay. these are multiple. Okay. 
multiple choice. Sure. You go first, and then David will agree or disagree, and then we'll go back and forth. Okay. We have six questions. And the first question is, organs do many things in our body. They help us to process nutrients and oxygen, circulate blood, and remove waste. What is the body's largest organ? Skin. Is it the stomach? Oh, the you know, skin? you see, you, what you want to do is you don't want to give the answer too quickly. Because then... You don't know about your strategy. You yeah. want to fake Feldman out by yeah. pretending oh. you don't know. That's right. what he does. Sorry. <laughs> uh, is it the stomach, the skin, the brain, or the gluteus maximus? It is B, skin. I am at least da- at least in David's case, he has so much of it. I'm going to agree with him. David has answer? as much skin as an eight foot tall man. <laughs> the correct answer is skin. So I am now winning two to one. That's how we keep score here. Cyrus, okay. you're losing two to one. I can get back. Okay, good luck. Question number two for Feldman. Cones and rods are found in the blank. Co- cones and rods are found in Temple Beth Israel on Is it the Upper West Side. The spleen, the ear canal, the retina, or the rectum? I've had cones and rods. Ooh. Uh, I'm going to take a wild guess. I, I, I don't know, but we were talking about ophthalmology. So I'm going to say the retina. I don't know, though, but I'm just going to guess. Mr. Cyrus. Uh, yeah, that is true. But can we tell the chat to stop goddamn typing the answers for him? They're not typing. I, I don't read the chat. It pops up whether you want it to or not. Well, I don't have it. Hang on for one second. You know, you think I'm, they're right? Hang on for one second. Before you give the correct answer, I, I'm going to go into the chat. Uh, hang on. You disgusting animals in the chat. Don't give the answers out. They live like it smells to high heaven. I I gotta leave. These people are pigs. They're animals in the chat. I did not read the chat, but I'm gonna. Okay, I'm gonna say the retina. (laughs) Yes. I did not read the chat, but I'm gonna say the retina. You are both correct again. It is the retina. I am now winning fortitude. Question number three, uh, Mr. Cyrus is first. When you have a polydactyly, which body part do you have more than the standard amount? Is it fingers, chromosomes, ribs, or nipples? To polydactyly. Hmm. It's a tough one. They started easy. Hmm. Fingers, said, uh, chromosomes, ribs, or nipples? You don't know the answer, Dave. You're a failure. I th- you, think, you're a loser, Dave. I you think it's fingers. You think wrong, Dave. Change it, it's wrong. Change it. Don't answer fingers. Trust me on this. This is your conscience. Change the answer. Yeah, I gave the answer. Oh, okay. 
Uh, I I think I'm going to agree with him. The correct answer is fingers. All right. It's an extra poly. So what is it? Poly what? Polydactyly. And what does that what does that mean? Um, I had a little more information jotted down here. Strictly speaking, polydactyly can refer to extra fingers or toes. Polydactyly occurs in about one in 500 live births. And a famous person in history that was said to have polydactyly, in her case, six fingers on one hand, was Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn. I heard that she actually, oh, but she was missing a head. She had extra mm-hmm. fingers, but she yeah. was down a head. That's how it usually works. The body needs to go somewhere with the extra material. <laughs> That was a rough divorce, by the way. <laughs> and Boleyn and Henry? Henry VIII. Yeah, he, that was not a good divorce. Compared to whose? Did not go well. Although, <laughs> just thinking. At least, it was, at least it was quick. It was quick. Uh, cheaper than arbitration. Quick? Mm-hmm. Essentially painless and yeah. free. Those executioners are, are are on a retainer. They have to do that job. <laughs> no more eleven get, fingers, thank God. They don't get paid per head. Well, uh, she gave she gave good. Uh, oh, for God so she sake. had an extra. I thought she had a deformed hand, but I didn't know it was an extra finger. That counts. Wow. She must have played a mean mandolin. You thought I was going to talk talk about something. question number Sex. four. Yeah. yeah, you thought I was going to go for a handy. Mm-hmm. Is Doctor Fraud here yet? Okay. Nope. All right. Keep Which it nerve? Who's who's up? Di- who's up? Uh, it's an even one, so it's Feldman's first. Okay. Which nerve does a dentist have to anesthetize while extracting a tooth from the lower jaw? Is it the facial nerve, the zygomaticotemporal nerve, the inferior inferior alveolar nerve, or your last nerve? Uh, is Dr. Fraud here? Okay. Uh, it's the same nerve that has to be numbed when Dave asks a woman for... All right, not going to do that. Uh, give me the choices again. The facial nerve, the zygomaticotemporal nerve, the inferior alveolar nerve, or your last nerve? Alveola. Didn't he play on Steely Dan's Asia, Alveola? Uh, What's the inferior one? Inferior alveolar, A-L-V-E-O-L-A-R. That nerve. sounds like a nipple kind of thing. What's the other one? This is a hard one. Yeah, facial nerve, zygomaticotemporal. Zygomatica nerve. is that's music you hear at Mardi Gras, so that's fake. What's the other one? Facial nerve. I'm. You know what? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to go with facial nerve. Uh, honestly, I don't know either, but it just seems like probably the safest one. 
You going facial nerve as well? Yeah, I'll go facial nerve. The correct answer is the inferior alveolar nerve. Really? So we both got that right. So now I'm really losing. Yeah, you, no, no, actually you get two points for that. We got two questions left and uh, Cyrus is first. All right. What okay. is produced in the seminiferous tubules? Can you repeat that again, please? Sure. What is produced in the seminiferous tubules? Seminiferous. Seminiferous. Thank you. Okay. Is it the, the Connors? The Connors. The, the, the sequel to Roseanne, The Connors. Mm -hmm. No? Is it aldosterone, sperm, the Leydig cells, or dessert? You have to repeat the question mm -hmm. again. What is produced in the seminiferous tubules? Aldosterone, sperm, Leydig cells, or dessert? Uh, probably wrong, but I'm going to guess sperm. That's me saying sperm. You are both correct. <laughs> In all seriousness... It's tied. Mm -hmm. I mean, oh. I know. I mean, you said semen, so. Please. please. Barely. Hang As on. a lady present, I apologize. Hang on. Like, I have a, a beeper now. So you better watch your <laughs> mouth. <laughs> All right. Last question. Last question. Feldman's first. Fungiform. Uh, say that again, please. I'm sorry. Fungiform papillae are blank. Immature hair follicles, a type of light sensitive well, what fungus. What immature hair follicles would be what? Uh, Ones that you grew yourself and didn't buy from a dead horse, David. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought immature hair follicles just laugh at fart jokes, but maybe you're right. Go, go ahead. Second possibility is a type of light sensitive fungus. Uh, C is conical projections found on the tongue, or D, Grandpa's schmegma. <laughs> Grandpa doesn't have. Give me the. I'm, I apologize. Give me the question again. This sure. is very important. I don't. I don't want to lose to Dave Cyrus. Fungiform papillae. How do you How do you spell that? Fungiform is F U N G I F O R M. I'm wearing a fungiform. Uh, Brazier that I bought from Kim Kardashian. And papillae are P-A-P-I-L-L-A-E. Right, with Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman. I love that movie. Go ahead. Fungiform papillon, yeah. Immature hair follicles, a type of light-sensitive fungus, conical projections found on the tongue, or grandpa's schmegma. I'm going to go with uh, the tongue. Disagree. I think it's hair follicles. You're right. What are you going to go with, Mr. Cyrus? Uh, hair follicles. The correct answer is conical projections found on the tongue. Wait. Well, he's going to hold on to this forever. Did I actually win? Yes. I actually yes. won again? 
I haven't won one between you and me. I, I normally don't admit defeat, but I actually won, Dan. Wow. Good job, boss. You did it. I did. Thank you. Good work, Dan. Uh, you know what they say, lucky in trivia, unlucky in the entirety of his career. <laughs> uh, before you go, Dave Cyrus, how do people follow mm -hmm. you on Twitter? I believe it's Dave Cyrus, right? Yeah, S-I-R-U-S, Dave Cyrus. And are you performing stand-up anywhere? Uh, oh, God, yeah. I guess I'm doing the roast. I'm judging the roast battle at New York Comedy Club this Thursday. And I'm also judging another roast battle on Wednesday in Queens at some kind of a place. Uh, I think it's called... Uh, the Grove, Grove 34, Grove 34. Grove 34. And have you been defeated yet? Uh, my record in roast battle is 13 and three. Oh, you did lose. I mean, <laughs> to an extent. All right. And you lost tonight. Yes. Right. I lost the guessing trivia game. Yes. I will talk to you tomorrow. Dave Cyrus. Okay. Great job. The brilliant. From show business. That's Dave Cyrus, direct, direct from show business, Dave Cyrus. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a quick break, play some Mike Steinel. And when we come back, Dr. Harriet Fraud will join us. And we're going to talk about murder. Isn't that, that will be fun. We'll talk about murder. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. We uh, have a newsletter that comes out every Friday night. Please go to my website and subscribe. And it includes an invitation for office hours, which we do every Friday night at 8 p.m. We'll be back with Dr. Harriet Fraud. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me. But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by As long as I stay healthy And I never die Fifteen bucks an hour Five days a week Fifty-two weeks a year And thirty-two thousand years I know it's a long time, honey To thirty-four thousand and twenty but when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. All I really need is a second job or a third. Lift myself up my boots and join that elite herd of the 600 billionaires in the USA who make more in a second than I do in a day. I'm on my way. Yes, I am. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. I'm on my way 
That's Professor Mike Steinel, who will be joining us in about, I don't know, two hours. I wish I were Professor Mike Steinel. If I could do that, I could do what he does, Dr. Harriet Fraud, I would keep my mouth shut. I, I wish I oh, had his. would be sad. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of Capitalism Hits Home. It's not just in your head. Her radio show on Pacifica can be heard here on WBAI in New York City at 2.30. She is a hypnotherapist, a psychotherapist who helps patients deal with their problems through the, partly through the prism of this sick and diseased economic system we're forced to live under. Should we talk about murder? Yeah, we should. It's a big topic, and it certainly is an ever bigger phenomenon. Mass murders are murders in which four people are shot and killed and or seriously wounded that have no relationship to the shooter. There have been 352 of those murders so far this year, and the year is not over. That's more than one a day. Exactly. There is more than one a day. No other country has, we have five times more than any other country. And um, so how come, you know, why? Why do we have this, one of the few places that America is actually first in the world? Why do we have that standing? Well, it's an interesting combination of capitalism, because the NRA poses as a lobby and is a tool of the gun makers, and also, and proliferates guns. There's more than more guns than people in the United States, because lots of people have more than one gun. There's also a direct appeal to blue-collar men's diminishing manhood. The ads, I, the Bushmaster ad, which I've discussed before, you know. Does your wife make more money than you? Revoke your man card. Do you prefer tofu to meat? Revoke your man card. And down the line, and then it says, reinstate your manhood with a Bushmaster automatic weapon. Amazing. There are the ex-girlfriend targets, which every time you hit the target, blood emerges and obscures her face till her entire body is destroyed. And part of this is... Capitalism, producing guns, and instead of saying buy a gun, make America rich, make us rich in America, it's recapture your manhood. And there is a direct correlation if you juxtapose the map of insecure manhood, Trump following, and gun proliferation, they exactly match up. Right. And so why are men so insecure? Well, 
two badges of manhood, um, gender-divided manhood in this country, have been the ability to have a job with some kind of standing. Like if you work in a factory town and you have a job in the factory and you've worked in the factory all your life, you have a certain position. Okay, I'm from this factory and I've been working here long and I'm a machinist and I operate a machine. Okay. The second is having a woman. Well, both those things are now out of reach for a little over half of American men. Because what happened was it was a lot more profitable for capitalists to exploit people in Pakistan for a dollar an hour instead of the $30 that people worked so hard to win in their unions. And the family wages that supported dependent wives and children were exported to a fraction of the wage so capitalists could make more money. Well, men were used to being the lords of their little manor, where the little woman produced domestic goods, food, order, cleanliness, emotional goods, connection to his emotions, including the service of making him feel better without ever letting him know that that's hard work, and social connections between him and his kids, him and his relatives, him and his friends, and sexual connection, a lot of jobs that women did and were supported in their homes. And, you know, there were two jokes from the 50s and 60s that summarized it. Women had the security of lifetime support, even if the man wasn't very nice or whatever else. The man's joke was, it's, there's a handy little thing called your wife. You screw it on the bed and it does all the housework. Childcare too, right? And the women's equivalent of the time was men are just like linoleum. You lay them right once, you could walk on them for 20 years, right? So that there were these long-term marriages based on the family wage, which supported a dependent wife and children and gave men a certain prestige of a wage that would support a family and a family. Well, both those things were withdrawn by capitalists in the 70s when their jobs were exported, millions and millions of jobs. And others were computerized or robotized. And so they were relegated to crappy jobs. You know, the, the man who had his little grocery store is now at best the clerk at Walmart, along with the one who owned the little hardware store with his family or the little luncheonette. You're, or, you're always working for somebody now. You can't you're be always working for somebody. And the biggest employers pay terribly, you know, whether they're and treat you like an extension of a machine. They time your tasks so that if you they're fast food, call centers, Amazon and Walmart, where you're constantly scrutinized, where your scanner goes off if you take longer for a task than you're supposed to and where you don't have time for anything. You have two minutes and 33 seconds to serve a burger to your customer in McDonald's 
from the time he, she, or they walk through the door to the time they get the burger, right? And if you don't do it within the two minutes and 33 seconds, your supervisor will speak to you. There's constant supervision, either directly by a supervisor or in the case of Amazon and call centers, a scanner that beeps loudly when you're doing taking more time in the bathroom or at your desk or whatever. And so men have been demoted. And now they have a choice. Either they could be comrades, companions, and equals with their wives who both work and both take care of things together as human beings. Or they're very, very angry with a kind of aggrieved entitlement. And one of the ways they recoup their dignity is through going to a firing range, being part of a Trumpian milieu where they want to make themselves great again, go back to the 50s where they had racial and gender privilege. The other would be joining as equals and having a different kind of relationship not one of domination, but one of equality. Well, all of that, plus capitalism, is very disturbing. And the family that used to stay together very unhappily, often, if not most of the time, is disintegrating. And that was America's main emotional connection, lousy as it might have been. And children are not only neglected by their families, their working mothers or fathers, but also by a school system. They have, there's a very good book called The Violence Project that goes, really explores mass murder and other murder and interviews in depth the mass murderers who agreed to be interviewed and write about themselves. They were all identified as troubled from the time they were little. None of them got any help. We don't have a system of identifying troubled kids and helping them. Other capital countries do. In England, universal public education starts at three years old. And if you're in the crash, the little daycare, and you see they have a full-time teacher, full-time staff member with a master's, a, an associate's degree assistant. And they also have a nurse on the premises and a sick room for if kids are sick, she'll take care of them and their parents can still go to work or have time away from their children. They don't ask questions. It's universal. And they do all their health care, which is public in France, at the daycare. So they notice if a kid has bruises They also notice, because the teachers report it, if the child seems depressed or bullies other children, and they look into it, deal with the parents and try to take care of it. And any parent who has abused a child has a social worker assigned for five years to try to help this parent and her children. We don't have those social supports at all. And so children who are obviously lonely and terribly troubled are neglected. The um, 
one of the recent mass murderers in school, he'd failed everything but one topic. You'd think they'd think, whoa, this is a problem here. He came to school with cuts all over his face. And when the kids who knew him asked why, he said, oh, I did it myself. I could take it, you know. Oh, that's a troubled person who really needs help. They come from families that are violent and disintegrating. Their parents are not supportive, to say the least, utterly neglectful. And they're obviously in need and ignored. So we also, in America's system, we've usually counted on immigrants to increase our population. So we never had to bother saving our kids. And um, we have to, because they're the kind of decent living that a white male would be able to accomplish for himself and his dependent wife and children. That's over. And people are falling apart. And at the same time, they're being taught that they can restore themselves through guns. On the bus, you see violence, you know, make my day with a big gun or other violation of other human beings. You don't see male tenderness. And they don't encourage little boys to play with dolls. Boys get guns, girls get dolls. You know, that there is this terrible gender division and boys are shamed for their neediness, for their loneliness, for their wish to be comforted. And girls are allowed those emotions. Girls are discouraged from being angry. That's the one emotion that boys are allowed to show. Boys' sports are much more violent. Football, rugby, you know, wrestling, girls are less violent. But there's a whole training to violence as a release. And so that these troubled young men in a troubled country, I mean, this empire is falling apart. We don't take care of people. And in the background is COVID, where we have the most COVID cases in the world. And people are not cared for in their health either, which is terrible health care in the United States, even though it's the most expensive in the world. And they're falling apart. And at the same time, they're taught to recoup their manhood and their power through guns. And so the murder rate is over the top. And the mass murder rate is such that there's more than one random killing, shooting four people every single day and more than one a day. And I think these are symptoms of a dying empire with the allowance of the capitalist gun industry to hawk its wares as if it's recapturing lost white male dominance. You know, they don't have blacks in the gun ads. They're white guys recapturing their manhood. And so, you know, you cannot open the Daily News or any other paper. The New York Times doesn't highlight it much. But any tabloid is full of murder every day. And in spite of our 
swaggering turd of the mayor of New York, <laughs> Adams, who says he's going to stop crime and has more cops everywhere, it has increased. Subway crime, which he said he'd eradicate, is up 41%, and uh, street crime is up 30-something percent. Okay. You know, because people are driven mad. And they're also surrounded by fake news and lies, you know, that Trump called everything fake news. And a lot of it really is. And the news that he's giving out is even more fake. So there's nothing kind of to believe in. You'd need a strong movement where people could join that movement and believe in a future. But we don't really have that here in a unified way. Mm -hmm. And people are lost and violent. And that's why we have this epidemic, not only of COVID, but of violence and mass murder. And, you know, it's... It comes together very neatly. Gender, the economy, capitalism, and uh, working in tandem to build this horrendous phenomenon. So, you know, um, it's no wonder, but it is very frightening. In New York City, now, when I walk around, I'm not in New York City at the moment, but when I walk around, not only watching out, and I've talked to other people too, you not only have to watch out for bicycles whizzing by on the sidewalk or <clears throat> cars, you have to watch out where's the crazy on the block. Right. Look out for people, and the one who seems frightening you have to cross the street or do something else because you know that wherever you are in the better off richer neighborhood or poorer neighborhood, you could be in danger. 50% of high school students are afraid of being killed. And now they have kids' backpacks that are bulletproof with instructions for children to put your backpack over your face if somebody dangerous is in the area and drills at the school case of a school shooter what to do they even have some nursery rhymes about hiding and covering because people are terrorized and the shooters are terrorized too they're usually cop suicide by cop because they count on the police to shoot them or they shoot themselves. But they feel like like Conan the Barbarian, you know, they're going down in style. It's very scary and sad the way it all comes together. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. Very interesting. A lot to uh, a lot to uh, Think about. There was a, a story that I read over the weekend that I wanted to bring up to you about a new phenomenon. Well, it's not a new phenomenon, but it's being called quiet quitting. 
the Wall Street Journal reported about this conversation that's going on on TikTok where there are training videos teaching young people how to do their job, uh, put the least amount of work into your job so they cannot fire you. And I thought, wow, that's kind of what Dr. Harriet Fraud has been teaching uh, my listeners, that the job won't love you back. And it's insanity to try to be overproductive for a boss who is manipulating you. So manipulate back, say you're happy to be there, but don't give them more than what they're paying you for. And it's a phenomenon among Generation Z and millennials. People people born after 1989 have what is called the lowest work engagement of any generation. Something like half of millennials say they're just, they're not engaged. They don't care about productivity. The job doesn't pay me back. My boss is completely full of you know what. So I'm just cashing a check here. Isn't that the healthiest way to look at a job? Well, it is and it isn't. On the one hand, your boss wouldn't hire you if if, uh, the boss weren't making more from your labor than the boss is giving you, right? So you're being ripped off from the the very definition. On the other hand, if you're in a service job, you can get satisfaction from serving people. You can do the job well. You can feel good. Um, there's a report by a call center employee where she's instructed when they call to complain about their phone plan to act sympathetic, but basically say, well, you do need an expensive plan. And she gets paid a lot more the more expensive plans she sells because they're not going to really fix her phone, but they're going to hustle something. And she feels bad because she would have liked to help them fix their phone. Right. She would like to get her own phone fixed. So on the one hand, you turn your back on the mass of people who need you in order to screw the boss, but you are denied the satisfaction of a job well done. And it's a very tricky thing under capitalism. And I think the millennials realize that the job is fixed. As Leonard Cohen says, the poor stay poor, the rich get rich. And so it goes. Everybody knows, you know, everybody knows that. So why, you know, bust your back? Because you will you will not be rewarded for hard work anymore. On the other hand, if you don't do a job well, you don't get the pride of a job well done. Well, there is pride in getting one over on your corporate boss. You can, you can get the pride on getting one over on your boss, but you never get really good in anything. And what it means for the rest of us is you go to a therapist. Therapist doesn't give a shit either, so they don't pay attention. You try to get anything fixed, the person will be very lackadaisical. What do they care? Take the money and run. Nothing works. You know, in France, when academic tech workers, secretaries, and so on, go on strike. 
what they do is restrict themselves strictly to what's on the job description and nothing works because nothing works without the extra. That's interesting. It's very smart because they keep getting paid and nothing works. And, and there are no grounds for dismissal. No grounds for dismissal. They keep getting paid. Sorry, that's not on my job description. Right. But nothing works that way because you need goodwill and you need the extra. And unless you get a lot of support for not doing your job well, you don't have the support of people appreciating that you did your job well. Right. And that's very sad. Right. And so people are stuck and angry. And they're right to be stuck and angry. And it's not like work hard and you will get somewhere in life. They know that's not true. Right. Does it suggest, though, workers are finding their power? Well, what suggests that is they're joining unions. Right. South Carolina is where the new Starbucks union is, the latest. Well, but... They won 16 to nothing. They won the, the union election. Now does Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, recognize the union? So far, that Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, Mr. Liberal, Mr. Identity yeah. Politics, won't recognize any of these unions. Well, they have, they have to go through the process and then he has to recognize them. Right. Meanwhile, they could sabotage him at work. Because all of these capitalists depend on the workers to do the work. They're the essential workers that were applauded and don't get paid. It's quite a right. contradiction. And so people are unionizing the way they haven't since the 30s. And that is a recognition. We're not going to get ahead individually. We'll get ahead only as a group if we stick together and fight together. And that's very promising because it's black and white gay and straight, whatever, workers right. together. Right. Think about quiet quitting is don't quiet quit your civic engagement. Exactly. 20 million Americans have dropped out of the labor force altogether. And what one hopes is what they are joining is forces for a better world, whether it's climate extinction or Black Lives Matter or a union supporting a union effort or feminist causes or socialist movements. But yeah, people are catching on and younger people are much more savvy about this because they've really gotten shafted. Right. We have to wrap it up. The, the world is very depressing and everybody's Especially America. And if you're in France, you might be feeling really terrific. Or in Colombia or in Chile or places like that, you might feel, whoa, but you, the world's great. <laughs> you've got to find your victories where you can. Otherwise, it's just existential dread. The good news is that the NLRB is getting a record number of applications for unions, that more, right. more and more shops are petitioning the National Labor Relations Board to hold a union vote. And I hate Joe Biden. I hate everyone in his administration. But that would not be happening with a Republican That's president. True. It would not. And that is a victory. And Walsh, who is his labor secretary, is certainly 
much more progressive. Even Chris Smalls of the Amazon Labor Union right. says that. That's a big difference. But look, Generation Z and the millennials, both of those groups, can see that the doors of opportunity are closing on their fingers. Someone as old as I am, growing up in the 50s, we were king of the world. Everyone could get a job. And if you were white, you could get a good job. And if you were a white man, you could get a very good job. But everybody could get a job. That isn't right. true now. And the jobs are disrespectful and poorly paid. Right. We, we have to wrap it up. Uh, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. We love you, Dr. Harriet Fraud. You are the host, just to remind you, you are the host of Capitalism Hits Home. It's not just in your head. We'll find out. Other people, it's not just in your head with Liam Tate and Ikoi Hiro. Great. It's not just in your head. And you could be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 here in New York City on WBAI. And you are a brilliant hypnotherapist and psychotherapist. How do people contact you if they need help? hfraud at gmail.com. And fraud is F-R-A-A-D. Thank you. We love you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'm on BAI, except when they're fixing the tower, when they're fundraising and other flutes. <laughs> but otherwise, 2.30 on Wednesdays. In other words, it's Pacifica. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank, Bye -bye. You. Thank you, Dr. Fraud. Joining us is... Professor Adnan Hussein, who was on a hammock yesterday torturing me on Facebook. I'll get to that in a second. Apparently, uh, he's been enjoying life, uh, I think, as an affront to me. Uh, he is chairman of the religion department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, host of the Mudgeless podcast, and co-hosts the Guerrilla History podcast with... Henry Huckamacki, Noam Chomsky is on this week. I butchered something you were talking about last week at the top of the show. I, I want to talk about whatever you want to talk about, but I want to revisit the brilliance that you spoke of. I think it was on Monday. I started the show talking about Victor Orban and Christianity and using the idea that if you're Christian, he, Victor Orban says, if you're a Christian, then you can't be racist. And then I played some Charlie Kirk from Turning Points USA and how this is a war between good and evil and that uh, we're a Christian nation. And you had explained, and I quoted you, but I screwed it all up. So I, I want to go over this with... You, because you said some brilliant things. Uh, there is a plan. Bannon has a plan. It's, it's a misconception to believe that the Republican Party, Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, Victor Orban, Tucker Carlson are just coming from hate and owning the libs, that they don't have a platform. You hear Bill Maher saying this. They don't have a platform. They just stand for hatred. And last week, you spelled out, no, they have an international, they have an international plan. Uh, and it kind of coincides with your class that you're preparing on the Crusades. I 
tried to quote you at the top of the show and I went into a morass. Do you mind reiterating what you said last week? Because it was brilliant. Oh, well, that's very kind of you to uh, suggest. Um, and um, I'm sure it's difficult to quote when it's a tangle of ideas, which is how some no, of it, 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 it often comes out. There was there well, was a unifying theory that I just didn't articulate. Well, I, I guess my point about these um, far right groups is that uh, they're ultranationalists uh, who are somehow finding ways to cooperate and work more internationally, and that is indeed one of the goals of Steve Bannon and others who might end up being more successful in organizing some interrelationship between these different fascistic or neo-fascistic groups. And uh, one of the ways of overcoming just a narrow um, form of ultranationalism that might not be compatible with collaboration with other ultranationalists is to think of a kind of nationalism of the West, a kind of internationalism of the West as a sort of civilizational entity and how that is increasingly being articulated, partly as a way to distinguish it from Nazism, even though its base and its root is really, you know, the same, but at least on a surface level to say we're doing something different and to be able to characterize Nazism and communism as both totalitarian movements and to emphasize national socialism, okay, and connect it actually with the left, um, is to emphasize um, Christian identity as a transnational, you know, way of affiliating one another. And so you've we've seen actually some direct, I used to think that this was an argument I would have to make, and some people might not accept it, Um but when they themselves have started coming out and talking about Christian nationalism, as Viktor Orban did, as, um, you know, uh, Congress people have recently. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Exactly. Yeah. Um, they're articulating some sense of a more universal, well, not quite universal, but a more civilizational, non-national. I mean, it still will have its nationalist orientations and expressions, but some way they can create a platform for cooperation and a kind of alliance or a front is to think of themselves as defending Christendom, which is a very old concept that comes into force in the medieval era. It goes out of fashion and we talk about Europe, we talk about the West, but this is a different way of articulating the same kind of geopolitical and cultural entity um, that they want to say is embattled by immigration, is being challenged from within by kind of secular, humanistic, leftist, socialistic ideas, and that it needs to be reconstituted. Um, and its identity needs to be re revived in the form of a kind of robust Christian nationalism. Right. This is the new direction, it seems to me, of the far right. There are coalitions. There isn't one thing that these people want. They bring together groups of people who want different things but are okay 
with the things that the other people also want. So there may be in this Christian nationalist coalition people who truly believe America is a Christian nation. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Victor Orban or Tucker Carlson uh, or Donald Trump think that, but they're okay with absorbing these Christian nationalists into their coalition because they will march with them on economic issues. Right? Is that... Yeah, I, th I think, I mean, the right wing uh, has a lot of motley different um, kinds of um, issues that are maybe the prime issue for certain groups, but they find a kind of uh, rough compatibility. Um, you know, well, it's exactly the way in which uh, it can also be cynically used. So there's some good faith sort of we can tolerate some things that we don't agree with because we're getting in the main right. you know, core issues and values. And then there are others who are more cynical about it, I think. Um, so somebody like Steve the Bannon, populism. Steve yeah. Bannon is not a Christian, but he's a racist. And... Uh, yeah, and, and, and he likes and he, money and he's a multimillionaire. Well, and also um, he wants to defend a certain um, kind of conservative idea of cultural identity. And there's overlap between religion and culture. Like you don't have to necessarily believe in all of the doctrines of Christianity right. to think that Judeo-Christian values, which is the way it's often framed, and of course it was never framed that way until after the Holocaust. You know, nobody wanted to right. have their Christian, you know, civilization be tainted by, you know, it being Judeo-Christian. But this emerges later on um, that there is a kind of secular version of Christian identity. And so, in fact, actually, there is something called the Christian identity movement. I mean, these people are not particularly devout in the sense that uh, they perform a lot of prayers and go to church all the time, but they think that uh, Christian identity is a kind of capacious cultural orientation that symbolizes the key values that are, of, that are the bedrock of conservative culture and civilization. So, you know, patriarchal family, right? Um, you know, uh, whiteness in a way that's not described as just whiteness. You know, you can right. you talk about whiteness through, you know, kind of identifying with a kind of Christianity on some level. That's a, a kind of a mode of doing it. So it can embody cultural values without it necessarily being a theological, you know, orientation of of belief right. and i think right. that's one element of it but i think also the populism can be exploited so some people just see it as a vehicle for putting through um the same kind of uh extreme capitalist pro-business policies uh, cutting taxes and, and so on um you know that can be uh, and this is was the the first trump administration was exactly this i mean it rose to prominence and power on populist rhetoric, but it, of course, delivered exactly what, you know, corporate interests would have wanted. Right. Um, and I think I mentioned this before when we were talking a little bit about how the 
um, abortion politics were fitting into the you know great replacement theory and how it was being exported to Europe. So there was anti-abortion funding, you know, to organizations to try and turn the European conservative, proto-fascist, neo-fascist movements to adopting anti-abortion legislation as well. Um, Why? And the logic of it is a purely secular logic in this case. It's not the logic of, you know, conception, you know, when does life take place? Is it at conception or not? It's not this theological kind of, you know, idea. It is simply the fears of uh, European uh, demographic decline, of like old Europeans, of European stock, you know, declining, which is what creates the labor shortages, the aging population, the need for importing labor through immigration that is seen as a cultural threat, right? So there is a kind of logic that can be forged between different components of this, uh, you know, far-right alliance. Uh, Some of it's theological and some of it is, you know, secular, but it plays upon Christian identity. And in some ways, you could think of Europe as just the secular category of Christendom. I mean, it's the same, you know, cultural, you know, Sunday is a holiday. Christmas and Easter are holidays. I mean, you don't get other religions having national holidays, you know, the right. work week in the, in, in our country is structured around um, Sunday being a day of rest. It's supposed to be a vacation day, right? So that's sort of structurally there, even if it's a secular society, it is Christian in its culture in, in that respect. And the greatest thing that undermines, undermines it is capitalism, which they sort of feel and perceive, but can't, analytically identify that really what's happening is that capitalism undermines all these previous identities, life practices, ways of life, you know, in the, you know, pursuit of mammon. Um, And that's why populism is drawing some strength is because you can articulate some resentment against the, you know, of the breakdown of a kind of coherent life that was formulated around these values of, patriarchy, religious tradition, and so on. Um, But instead of, you know, understanding that if you want to have, you know, uh, a whole and integrated life that that is is of dignity and allows you to, you know, pursue family, uh, you know, you need to um, really rein in capitalism because that's the force that's just undermining uh, your time for your, you know, friends and family and community and all of those things that people hold, uh, hold dear. Right. I want to swim here, uh, at least, uh, in the lead up to the midterms, because what you said stuck with me all weekend, uh, because I'm going to just repeat what I said at the top of the segment. It is a myth to think that that the Republicans are the just the party of hate, just the party that wants to own liberals, that they're that they have no plan, they have no platform. They're not telling us what they're what they really want. The question is, how dangerous 
are they really? Because they do have me scared. Uh, I know what I'm afraid of. Uh, I'm afraid of this country uh, becoming more of what it already is, which is an authoritarian kleptocracy where only a privileged few get uh, the largesse and the rest are subjugated by the police. That's pretty much what this country has always been. But it's, there was a time when it was porous, where some people were able to filter up uh, into the upper middle class. Uh, what, what is Orban genuinely afraid of? I think sometimes we measure people by what they want, but I think for me, you could know more about me by what I'm afraid of than what I want. What do you think Tucker Carlson, who is the soul of the Republican Party? I mean, Fox News is the Republican Party. What do they, what are they afraid of? Genuinely, when you, when you get them alone, what are they afraid of? What's Bannon well, afraid I, of? I think, well, I, I think they're afraid of change. Um, and one can understand why, because a lot of the changes haven't been positive in many ways. Um, but in their fear, well, they're, they're afraid of the changes that um, are undermining um you know, ideas of masculinity. Somebody um, just in the chat room, somebody, Joe, said their own homosexuality. I, I agree with that. Yeah. I, well, it's I glib, mean, okay. but it, I, I agree with that. There, there's there's something, you know, well, there's something clearly to, um, you know, why is this all of this trans, uh, you know, uh, trans issues seem to be not just a lightning rod of... Um, of contention, but it seems to uh, play upon rather deep fears that, you know, large constituencies in the population respond to, you know. So I think, um, and, and it's like uh, how homosexuality, I think, used to be, and for some people clearly still is, but, you know, there, there are some um, issues that, uh, have you know deep cultural and psychological currents that um, as attitudes are changing towards these at a pace that are is not comfortable for you know, you know large groups of of people these fears can easily easily be mobilized in political terms. It's exactly the way in which. Um, anti-Sharia laws were promoted in like 19 or 20 states in the Midwest and South where there's no, you know, <laughs> nobody is trying to establish Sharia in right. Oklahoma, you know, uh, in the, in the, you know, 2000s and 2010s. But there was a wave of referenda that put these on the ballot because during the era of the global war on terror, you know, if it has ended, but let's say at the high you know, period of it, there was so much fear about Muslims as a threat 
that was abstracted into this kind of civilization and cultural war clash of civilizations, uh, which is why I think Huntington, you really, if you want to understand the modern right um, post-Cold Cold War, you really have to read Samuel Huntington's work. Right. He right. just, you know, absolutely is the is the playbook for is he Harvard um, for as their, well? Yeah, he was a Harvard political scientist, um, and he wrote two books, um, one in, uh, you know, in, in succession. Uh, one of them was, of course, The Clash of Civilizations, um, which posited a theory for, uh, you know, kind of culture as the basis of conflict in geopolitics. Um, it basically was just sort of bad history. And when he first wrote it as an article for Foreign Affairs and it had a question mark, you know, his clash. Was of, is not, there a class? He was not considered an illiberal at one time, right? Didn't he? Yeah, he was actually in some ways part of. Um, I think he might have, you know, been for much of his life a Democrat. You know, right. well, I mean, not, yeah. I mean, but sort of in yeah. this conservative, yeah. statist Democrat, and and um, uh, you know, pro government, fighting the Cold War. Um, you know. Right. Uh, you know, this is, of course, the era where it was the Democrats who were, you know, prosecuting the war in Vietnam. Right. right so, right. I mean, so he's of that ilk, I think. Um, and so his big idea in this was that the Cold War was just a brief, you know, historical aberration of ideological conflict, mostly as a kind of civil war of the West. Uh, that had birthed these different ideas of liberal democracy and capitalism versus, you know, uh, uh, communism. Um, and that now, uh, with the end of the Cold War, we would return to this older basis for geopolitical conflict, which was that there were civilizational zones that were incompatible with one another. And you could not universalize ideas like human rights and so on because they come out of a specific cultural context that is the West. And it has no real meaning and value for other civilizations and cultural units that have a different history and a different value. So and so it will inevitably. So well, sorry. So who in a clash of civilizations, the West and Victor Orban, I played clips earlier Yes. It's Christian, Christian, Christian. Yes. Who are the enemies? Who, if we're the West and we're Christian, uh, congratulations. Uh, we're, we're, uh, well, culturally, whether we want to or not is basically what he's saying. It's like if you're in the West, I mean, the basis of it is, you know, Christian culture. Right. right. So and of course, would, also science and the scientific enlightenment and all of that. But these are sort of put together. I mean, this is why uh, Pope Benedict's uh, speech at Regensburg was so interesting. I mean, he got a lot of flack in the Muslim world because he quoted a Byzantine polemicist uh, attacking Muhammad, and that caused all kinds of you know, concerns, not the first time, recently been in the news, you know, uh, we could talk about, I, I was expecting we would talk about the satanic verses. Um, oh, right. And, yes. And let, Rushdie yes. today. And we, you know, we, we can certainly get to that. Uh, but the point here is just that, um, you know, when he uh, gave that speech at Regensburg, Regensburg, what he was arguing, essentially, Benedict is that is the previous pope. Yeah, the previous pope, right, who resigned uh, before uh, Pope Francis, um, he was essentially arguing in that in that speech that, 
Um, if we're to think of Europe and European civilization, we typically talk about reason as this tradition, reason, science. And he's saying, yes, um, that is important. Um, but his argument was really against secular liberalism, even though he targeted Islam as a way of showing the contrast between Christian Europe and the, and the, and the Muslim world, uh, was to say that there has to be a kind of marriage in, in Europe and Europe's culture and civilization between Christianity and Christian culture on the one hand and science and the proper relationship between these two is what's crucial. Um, so this is sort of the idea here is that, you know, there is the West is basically a Christian culture and a culture of Christian reason is basically the basically the point. The enemies of which. Right. That's are who is our enemy. Any of these other competing civilizational units. And he identified eight in total in the world. So the seven others, you know, he was vague about them. Where he had clarity really was there is China and East, an Asian culture, basically You're based on Samuel China. Huntington. Yes, Samuel Huntington. Right. And the other great rival and threat and danger, globally speaking, is the Muslim world, the Islamic world, Islamic civilization. Russia? But what about Russia? Yes, Russia is another. But basically, at the time that he's writing, because of the, um, you know, so-called victory in the Cold War, um, like so many other geopolitical thinkers during that period, they didn't necessarily think that Orthodox Russia, Russia is Christian, but it's Orthodox, was necessarily a rival uh, and geopolitically, and also culturally, there was obviously more in common, even if it's a distinct kind of cultural and civilizational unit, it's still based in some level you know, on, on Christianity, a different interpretation, different institutional basis. But that's exactly why um, um, Steve Bannon, basically taking Huntington's ideas, thought that if you're going to have to make some kind of geopolitical rapprochement with another civilizational unit, the best thing to do is to reach out to Russia because there are historic and religious and other cultural but ties. But not China. But not China. In fact, you need to make that alliance because you have to basically confront the Muslim world, which is a threat, but mostly a threat for immigration reasons and you know, um, because it's on the borders with Europe, but fundamentally with China, because it is a rival uh, geopolitically, economically, and so on. But it's, it has to be confronted. And the best thing to do would be to create an alliance with Russia. And this is why you see, you know, Viktor Orban is very pro-Russian in this uh, circumstance in the Ukraine war. He's almost the only European uh, head of state who seems to, uh, well, besides, of course, Serbian uh, leadership, but, you know, uh, he's part of the EU and nonetheless um, is quite supportive in some ways of the general uh, foreign policy of, and of Trump, Russia and supportive. Trump pro-Russia, China, the China virus, tariffs against China, let's go to war with China, but not Russia. That would fall it would broadly fall. I mean, there's not a lot of evidence of him actually being very pro-Russian. I mean, you know, that's the thing. But I think, um, 
you know, if you're going to talk about uh, where he put his emphasis, it definitely was in whipping up the sort of fears of the ye- yellow peril, and in this case, the yellow pandemic, right? Right. I and mean, that way he would be getting laid upon. Because there's no way he would have read Samuel Huntington. He'd be getting his talking points from Bannon and... and- yeah, pretty much any, you know, conservative uh, foreign policy thinker would be drawing upon, you know, right. if they're not in this kind of neoliberal globalization orientation, which, of course, to some extent, you can see some of the neocons were more in that um, kind of camp, which is why they are increasingly finding no place for themselves in the Republican Party, right. because the Republican Party is being dominated by this populist and what we might call cultural conservative, um, you know, grouping that also has its own foreign policy. So and that you, was my point right. before was to say that Islamophobia and this kind of clash of civilizations base and now Sinophobia, you know, anti-China uh, rhetoric and um, heating up a, you know, Cold War that could turn hot against China is essentially the uh, foreign policy of white supremacy. I mean, this is, it gives them a foreign policy. Like, you know, in the past, it would just be seen as this, you know, domestic uh, ethno-racial nationalism. Um, uh, But now you could kind of combine it with this Huntingtonian perspective and it gives it a kind of geopolitics, a foreign policy. Not to uh, to defend neoliberalism at all. Is it fair to say they're not looking for a clash of civilizations? They're just looking to exploit all civilization. They just want to reduce everything to money. For for neoliberals. Yeah. Yeah, for the capitalism. Well, that was sort of the um, cosmopolitan dream that was being sold after the, you know, 1990s. Now we can see, of course, that that's a bankrupt and failed project. Um, But the question is, what replaces it? Right. Uh, And in fact, we actually had a really excellent conversation should come out next month with uh, Ben Norton of uh, Multipolarista, um, formerly of the Gray Zone, but uh, he's established his own um, uh, media uh, project, uh, Multipolarista, uh, to talk about um, whether we are witnessing some kind of a transition from the unipolar uh, moment of neoliberal globalization under U.S. hegemony as the single superpower in the world to a different kind of uh, global order, which is something that I think everybody is talking about now and what the consequences of the Ukraine Russia war will be the further, uh, you know, alignment and collaboration between um, Russia and China that was announced um, last uh, November, December, this 5000 word um, uh, uh, statement of their, um, you know, alliance. Um, Well, maybe not an alliance, but a partnership, you know, without limits, basically, is how they described it. So what the the question is, is, well, what's happening? Is the U.S., um, you know, is the U.S. uh, position being undermined uh, by these kinds of developments? Um, And how will a place like, you know, I think one of the real questions is something that we were discussing. 
was what was going to be the orientation of Europe. Is Europe the endpoint of a Eurasian sort of zone, which is in some ways what uh, Russian thinker Alexander Dugin, you know, was imagining, has been imagining, and he's supposedly Putin's philosopher. This is how he's portrayed as somebody who represents perhaps the ideological perspective of of Putin, that there's this Eurasian zone um, and that Europe ultimately has to be absorbed into a Eurasian geopolitical kind of entity, economically, politically, and so on. Or is it going to be an Atlantic? Is Europe going to remain as an, you know, as part of a kind of Atlantic alignment? And, you know, before this Ukraine-Russia uh, war, there were a lot of talks among European leaders that perhaps they didn't want to be so constrained by the bellicose U.S. policy towards China, but wanted to develop their own economic and political, um, you know, cooperation uh, with China, for example. Um, and uh, that, I think, is somewhat, I mean, perhaps it'll be revived. But if anything, this has been a, a kind of a victory for the Atlanticist conception. They've all fallen in line, even against perhaps their own um, economic interests. Countries like Germany are going to suffer, you know, this winter. Uh, if they're cut off from from Russian uh, natural gas and so on, but they are realigning themselves back into a kind of loyal subordinate position under U.S. Uh, patronage and suzerainty, um, the revival of NATO. So um, these are the kinds of questions I think people are starting to think about and whether or not there is, um, you know, what possibilities having multiple poles of geopolitical power may lead to. Right. Um, what are the consequences uh, you know, of this and what will be the shape of, of the world in the next generation to right. come? Uh, we're almost out of time. I, we're, uh, I don't want to keep Peter B. Collins waiting. I, I wanted to ask you about Salman, Salman Rushdie, who I understand is doing better. I heard he's maybe speaking, but... I read over the weekend, I think in foreign affairs, I'm not sure, that, you know, looking for good news, that in the 21st century, state wars and state wars would be defined as two countries going to war where a thousand or more soldiers died. That in the 21st century, and I think they got the number wrong. They said there have only been three wars, Ethiopia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. But that can't be right. Uh, oh, you mean in, in um, this century? In this century. Um, the 21st century, that, right. And I remember reading that thinking, well, what about, uh, and I forgot the war, but uh, that, the, that Europe has which has seen centuries of fighting, that there has been, there have been fewer wars. And because perhaps neoliberalism uh, is killing everybody instead of, I mean, but is Well, there was the promise that like any place, you know, there was these bizarre statistics that you heard in the early 1990s by political scientists and 
somebody like Benjamin Barber, who actually, you know, has written some very interesting things, but he wrote this book, uh, Jihad versus McWorld, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the idea was, um, and the kind of thing that uh, Thomas Friedman absolutely loved. The this world kind is of flat. Mystic. Yeah, that any place that had a McDonald's would not go to war with any other country that had a McDonald's. And this was taken to me. Because they were know. all sick. <laughs> Right. They they couldn't have support a military (laughs) campaign, you know, on such a diet. I mean, I saw a fantastic movie, a documentary about a person, I'm forgetting the name of it, um, who decided for a month he would eat all his meals at McDonald's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Supersize me. Supersize me. Yes. Yes. Uh, And and he just by week three looked like he was about to die. He was having serious medical problems. So you, you might be right that perhaps that's the reason why. What, there's a war that I can't remember. Peter, let me bring Peter B. Collins in here, and we'll talk about Salman Rushdie. There, there's a, a big war that I'm forgetting in the 21st century. Syria, South Sudan, the Tigres. Yeah. Perhaps they mean um, uh, to rule out uh, civil wars. Yeah. From this. Yeah. So this yeah. is interstate rather than intrastate right. Right. warfare. Yeah. Yeah. Because there have been some awful uh, genocides yeah. and. Oh, I know. Saudi Arabia war. and Yemen. And Yemen. Oh, okay. ah, the Yemen war. Sure. Th- that yeah. would be a two states going at each other. Or, or is there a civil war in Yemen that you really can't count? Possibly that's how they're imagining it, yeah. because it did, of course, start as a civil war with the Saudis intervening. So they may right. not think of it as two separate states involved in belligerent action, right. the way in which Ethiopia and Eritrea did fight uh, an actual interstate right. war. Right. Let's turn to Salman Rushdie. First of all, what do you know? How is it? How is he doing? Well, I, the latest report I have is that he is off the ventilator, that they uh, consider I, 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 will I be... Your, your microphone is scraping. It always does that when I wear a collar. I tried to dress up for you. Uh, How's that? Well, now you look ridiculous. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I but it's all about a... the audio. <laughs> uh, Our, the, the YouTube listeners are, are groaning. Yes. Uh, anyway, he is expected to uh, certainly survive. There is a concern about uh, a nerve that was uh, severed in his arm. Uh, one of his internal organs was punctured, and his, uh, I believe his left eye um, is at risk. Uh, that's, that's the latest that I've heard about his condition. Right. How great a writer. I remember when I worked on the Bill Maher show, he was a guest, and I thought, this guy's really fast and funny. I couldn't believe how funny he was. How great a writer was he? Well, I think he still is an excellent writer. And he, I, I think it's not just about his style and his ability to put uh, powerful messages on a page, but he has a remarkable imagination. And it is not uh, fenced in by the rational concerns that, that you and I might have. And there, there was a post that I saw on Facebook by 
a woman who organized a, uh, a seminar where Salman Rushdie was speaking. And she, in the talks of, of preparation, she said, well, should we have a police officer there? And he said, if there's a cop there, I'm walking out the door. So he was very determined not to live in fear. Uh, of course, he was forced to have a security team for a while, and uh, that has been relaxed in recent years. But when you look at the, uh, the video from the Chautauqua uh, seminar, uh, you do have to scratch your head and say, wouldn't they have protect, protected this man a little better than, than what we saw? Yeah. Professor Hussein? Well, I just think it's routine now at large public events that at least there's some security. Now, we, we may not, you know, Will Smith may be in the that. audience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I do find it a little surprising, um, yeah. especially since um, apparently five days before this attack on one of um, official government uh, uh, supported media from Iran, there was a recent um, republishing of the fatwa of um, uh, Khomeini and discussion of the history of the last 33 years of the what might be called the satanic versus uh, affair. Um, so, you know, it does Is seem surprising. Is the fatwa still in effect? Well, I mean... You know, the person who made the fatwa is, uh, has passed away, uh, obviously. Um, in 1998, um, under the Khatami government, uh, when they reestablished diplomatic relations with uh, the UK, um, then President Khatami said that it was no longer in effect, it should be withdrawn, it was no longer the policy of the government of Iran. Of course, um, his government did not survive, um, and uh, we never were able to enjoy the benefits of a reformist uh, kind of leadership that was elected in Iran because of U.S. policy during this period. That government did not survive, and there have been subsequently much more harder line um, governments that have uh, stated that it is still in effect. Um, right. although the government is uh, Iranian government is saying that they had no hand in this at the same time, of course they are and have been um, in their public media celebrating it as um, you know, attempts to fulfill the, the fatwa. So what was the, the thing is, and I, the connection between the hit on John Bolton and this, is it just a coincidence? Is it just reading too much into it? Did it occur to you? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, well, you know, also this is really the absolute worst time to have um, these reports come out when they are at the final stages. Today was the deadline for Iran's response to the recent um, proposals tabled by the European Union as part of negotiations to reestablish the Iran nuclear deal, which should have happened a long time ago. It's taken a lot of time. We've talked about it on this show. They're actually very close to potentially having an agreement to bring the parties back into compliance. Um, 
this is really not going to be, you know, helpful. Right. I wonder if it's actually going to affect it. Uh, it certainly has provided the opportunity for very negative comments about the Iranian government by the U.S. government. And of course, justifiably so if they are at all responsible, but certainly they have created the climate in which um, such an action was was possible. But I did want to say something about Rushdie as a as a writer before talking more about the politics, which is just that um, he was really the first of these um, kind of post-colonial Indian writers to uh, publish in English Anglophone uh, writers who were also, he was from India, had lived in Pakistan, had immigrated to uh, the UK and was part of this generation of um you know, British Indians, British Indian Muslims. Um, and he was really quite a literary hero. I read Midnight's Children, which won the Booker Prize uh, at the time, one of the greatest literary prizes really for the English language, perhaps the greatest prize. Absolutely blown away. And it fit into this really interesting literary movement that you could also connect with magical realism in South America with writers like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And it was really amazing. And it was really opening up the possibilities for rethinking the narratives of identity in undercolonialism and postcolonialism. He was a big leftist. I mean, he was known to have sympathies with the, you know, uh, people of Nicaragua suffering kind of U.S. empire. In fact, he had even condemned the Shah of Iran and in its initial stages expressed support for the popular both leftist and religious revolution uh, that brought to, uh, you know, Khomeini to power. I mean, of course, it was a left and um, kind of religious movement, and the leftists ended up being purged. Um, so, I mean, you know, he revised his opinion on it. But, you know, he was somebody who was an anti-imperialist uh, writer in, in, in many ways. Uh, so there are great ironies to the way in which his pursuit of this imaginative, critical perspective uh, ended up turning, um, you know, him into uh, an exile and a figure who had to, you know, hide for about a decade. Um, and, um, you know, I've read the Satanic Verses, but, you know, about the time when it came out and the controversy, it's been years and years since I read it. So I don't remember it that well, but it was a very kind of sardonic um, you know, there's a lot of humor in it. Um, Does he defile the Quran in it? Is there? Um, it's a weird, weird text that I mean, of course not. How can a work of fiction do so? Right? right, it's a work of fiction. So, I mean, this is the the whole point is that um, it well, is like and it isn't Muhammad. It is and it isn't the Quran. He reuses historical. Um, you know, he evokes this context in a dream vision um, of one of the characters um, that it's a kind of sort of a fantasy of a dream vision, but it's based very much on key narratives, uh, including scholarship, Western scholarship and Muslim scholarship on early Islamic history. He's well versed in it. I think he studied Islamic studies or at least took some classes when he was a student at Oxford. Uh, so it's kind of learned and knowing in his play with these themes and these issues to pose a critique of 
kind of religious fundamentalism, the abuse or exploitation of religion. There are a lot of these kinds of themes that are that are in there. Um, and he knew, I think, that it would offend some people, but I don't think he expected that it would have this global reaction and that the state of you know, Iran would would condemn him. He thought it would just be something that, you know, some religious folk and some scholars of Islam would be, you know, upset about, but that that wouldn't necessarily lead to a polarizing culture war, which is really what it what it kind of has precipitated uh, in Britain when it came out. It just really, you know, um, not only were there protests globally, but there were protests in places like Bradford, which are solidly South Asian Muslim working class community um, that were really outraged and ended up being anathematized in British society because they were offended. Um, And so you ended up having this kind of cultural division between conservative uh, Muslims and some allies who multiculturalists who thought you shouldn't offend this religious community and those who adhered to this kind of um, you know, enlightenment values and Western democratic ideas of freedom of speech. And it became such a polarized question um, that I think has been, you know, had some sort of tragic uh, consequences, um, really, for everybody uh, involved, right. the Muslim community, uh, Salman Rushdie, um, also, you know, the spirit and culture of of literary debate and criticism. I mean, some have called the fatwa like the worst sort of form of literary criticism. You know, I mean, not that not that the Ayatollah actually read it. He didn't read it. He didn't know anything about it, but he thought that he could exploit these uh, sentiments for geopolitical gain. I guess the closest analog recently would be Charlie Hebdo and their cartoons depicting. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Similar. That's right. Fantastic. Professor Adnan Hussein is the host of the Mudgeless podcast. Who's on the Mudgeless podcast this week? Your your PhD oh, student? Yeah, we, we're recording and it's been delayed. So people can look forward to that coming up soon. But I'm also launching actually a series based on the conference that I went to in Istanbul last uh, month. I met a number of interesting scholars, heard some great papers. And so I'm going to do a series of episodes based on share the scholarship with the wider public. You know, these people were articulate and interesting. So we'll be doing a series on Islamophobia. Um, And perhaps we may even talk about the Rushdie affair because there was a very good paper that talked about it. And, and of course, guerrilla history, you uh, know him, know Chomsky is the man. I believe that's. Yes. Uh, This Friday, look for that episode to come out. Our discussion with Noam Chomsky and Vijay Prussia. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sorry, Peter, taking uh, extra time. Uh, I, Adnan, there is no need to apologize. <clears throat> and I am very flexible. It's only six o'clock here in California. I enjoy hearing you. You offer a lot. And when you want to continue, feel free. He, yeah, Too generous. Thank you. Well, it's the beauty of this program. We have movable uh, partitions. <laughs> and <laughs> David lets us... It's a David movie. lets us, uh, yeah, lets us complete a thought. Well, thanks so, to both of you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. And David, I'd like to just return to the question before uh, the professor was talking about uh, Rushdie as a literary figure. 
And that is that, yes, it is inconvenient that the attack on Rushdie occurred at this time, and also that the news surfaced about the uh, reported attempts to assassinate John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. But I want to put it in some context, and context is not rationalization. Right. I don't support uh, the execution of odious political figures of ours or of theirs, whoever they happen to be. But uh, it was just uh, two weeks ago that we droned uh, al-Zawahiri to death. And while al-Qaeda never had any significant connection to Iran, it is a projection of American brutality that uh, resonates negatively across the Muslim world. And we don't recognize that. We also lack the context, at least in the media reports, about the, again, alleged attempt to uh, uh, hire somebody to kill John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, that uh, we have to recognize that the way we assassinated General Suleiman, when he was on a peace mission, <laughs> that never gets reported. He went into Iraq to try to calm the different factions of militias, many of which report to Tehran. And it's fair to say that he was a uh, diabolical figure from the U.S. point of view, and that he is, you know, was always touted at the time, was responsible for the deaths of many Americans. We entered the war in their region. This was Iraq, where uh, Iran had waged an eight-year war in the 1980s. And so we report all this in such a detached and sanitized manner that we don't acknowledge the impacts of American actions over the last 20-plus years. And to me, it is maddening uh, because we act, uh, you know, this, this is... <laughs> something that is like Trump, but is, you know, part of American exceptionalism, we regard ourselves as victims when we receive blowback, particularly for covert operations. And I've made the point here before on this show, David, that operations that are considered secret from the point of view of Americans are not secret in the places where they take place. Right. And we pretend that because our media blacks out these types of events, uh, that they didn't happen. <laughs> and, and so we have to understand how the world uh, critically regards the United States and the way we use the uh, military power that we have. And so... I have my fingers crossed. I want Iran to come back into the nuclear agreement. It was the best thing that occurred in terms of foreign policy during the Obama administration. The second best was the opening of Cuba, which Trump reversed, and Biden right. has maintained the Trump position. So, uh, you know, I do understand the, the risks that surface here, but I, I do want to make the point that people need to look at the whole picture. Right. So we attacked, Sule we, Trump, attacked Soleimani. He was visiting Iraq. It was right after 
there was an attack on the green zone in Baghdad. He was there, there was a feeling we were told that Iran was meddling in Iraqi politics and killing people, killing Iraqis. Is that the justification? And that's a broad way of describing it. But, you know, Iran, <laughs> we, we have to go back to the failures of John Bolton well before Mike Pompeo came on the stage. But during the Bush administration, we pushed this policy that blew back on us big time, where we were going to invert the power structure in Iraq, where the minority Sunnis had controlled under Saddam Hussein. And we tried to install the Shia uh, faction into leadership repeatedly. And we failed to factor in Muqtada al-Sadr, this cleric who was young 20 years ago. I guess he's in his 50s now, but who was deeply aligned with Iran the whole time. And so we created uh, a situation to essentially expand the regional influence of Iran while we pretended that we were standing up a democracy in Iraq. Right. And once again, we were fed bullshit and most people swallowed it. Right. I'm in al-Zahari, the number two at uh, al-Qaeda, may have been partially responsible for 9-11. There's no glory given over to Biden for taking him out. I think in some circles there is, um, but it, it is drowned out by the daily uh, Trump scandals. Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm saying, <clears throat> but you're, in terms of your value judgment, you would have preferred a trial, which we don't seem to, you know, the, we talked about this. I think you mentioned, somebody mentioned that the Israelis took Eichmann and put him on trial. We don't mm -hmm. do trials. We did them after the Nuremberg. Uh, uh, we did the Nuremberg trials. We don't do trials. Right. And the most egregious in that category was the uh, killing uh, under the Obama administration of uh, Anwar al-Awlaki. He was an American cleric. He did produce uh, videos that were widely distributed that called people to the jihad. Uh, but he was an American citizen who, in my view, had rights. We made no effort to capture him. We just killed him. And then we killed his son, uh, who was not <laughs> known to be involved in the jihad in any way. So, uh, you know, I Biden can claim a scalp, all right? But scalps don't really do much for you. And the... Uh, I believe it's the Pentagon has issued a post-action report claiming that uh, al-Qaeda is uh, reduced to a few people in Afghanistan. Uh, but I think there's a lot of wishful thinking there. I think there are devoted members of al-Qaeda who will remain uh, loyal to the cause for their lives. And I, I just don't think that we can claim that uh, we have cut off its head. Right, right. The FBI. These I've been a critic for almost 50 years. I actually did the math. It's 49 years. I started criticizing the FBI 
1973, when I was a young talk show host in Chicago, and I interviewed the attorneys who were suing the government on behalf of the survivors of Fred Hampton, who, of course, was murdered in a, a, a setup, a staged event that was orchestrated by the FBI and carried out by the Chicago police. Right. And so uh, it is uh, fascinating to see the opportunism of Trump Republicans who now want to defund, destroy, dismantle the FBI. And I want to give credit. There's a guy on the Internet who I picked up a piece from at Medium on Friday. Uh, Feldman is his name. And he wrote this beautiful piece that was equally snarky and sarcastic. Uh, about these uh, new converts to FBI reform, from Donald Trump to uh, Kevin McCarthy to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, Lindsey Graham is nodding that he's, he's in for it. Uh, and this, this is just so situational, opportunist, and pathetic. Because thank, by, by the way, thank you for... The compliment. Well, you did a beautiful job, and and you brought together all of these quotes from people like Rand Paul and uh, Gosar and uh, <laughs> Jesse Waters over on Fox, who uh, <laughs> announced that the FBI has planted evidence before, and Lindsey Graham is nodding mm -hmm. on the screen. But they don't care about the five hundred plus Muslim Americans who were framed in domestic terrorism sting operations between 2002 and uh, roughly 2021. And I, I just want to note in passing that a great criminal defense attorney, Dennis Reardon, passed away here in San Francisco last week. And one of the cases that he is known for is representing Hamid Hayat. He was a, a, a Muslim Pakistani from Stockton. And he and his son were falsely accused by the FBI of uh, going to Pakistan and then uh, traveling into Afghanistan, where the younger Hyatt uh, was trying to volunteer uh, for, uh, you know, some sort of jihad operation. And it was completely false. And the FBI made it up. They entrapped these people. And I don't hear any of these Republicans citing the broader nature of the rogue agency that we call the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And yes, they have planted evidence. Yes, they have concocted crimes. They have used paid informants to uh, help these schlubs figure out what kind of terrorism they want to do. And then they pretend to supply them with arms or bombs or uh, whatever it takes to complete the plot. We have the retrial of two of the total idiots from the Wolverine, they're not called a militia, Wolverine watchmen of Michigan. And the two <laughs> most pathetic people who, who were acquitted in the original trial are being retried. And so if any of these morons who are so offended that their president, their former president, was subjected to this ignominious search by the FBI, if even one of them said uh, anything about these other cases, 
I would offer some credibility to their cause. But they're simply posturing. And David Brooks, it's kind of interesting because he wrote a column in the Times where he basically said that the FBI, uh, by staging this raid at Mar-a-Lago, has solidified uh, support from Republicans who were starting to peel away from him. And I do think that is sadly the case. But Brooks made it seem like Merrick Garland should have said, you know, for the good of the nation, I'm not going through with this. And it remains to be seen how serious the violations of the Presidential Records Act truly are. What we may never find out the nature of the top uh, super sensitive classification document that uh, they say they picked up in in the most recent uh, visit to Mar-a-Lago. Uh, but the the lame excuses that are being offered by Trump and his allies, uh, notably Hillary. Well, Hillary did get off of a serious case of mishandling sensitive documents. The most incriminating factor was that uh, Anthony Weiner's laptop had been used to transfer uh, emails from Hillary to Weiner's then wife, Huma Abedin. And so when the porn on his computer was investigated uh, by the FBI, they found some classified documents. And it is fair to say that that investigation was not permitted to go forward, that the original dodge that she used of setting up a private email server so that the uh, Federal Records Act would not apply to many of her communications as Secretary of State, uh, that was a very significant and intentional violation. And I supported investigation and prosecution of uh, Secretary Clinton for those violations. Now, it didn't happen. But that doesn't mean that Trump should be treated in the same manner as Hillary or David Petraeus, who shared uh, classified documents with his uh, 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 mistress, who was writing a fawning biography of him. Uh, so, so does this suggest that perhaps what is classified should not be classified, that Hillary <laughs> and Huma and David Petraeus and Donald Trump think uh they're a little too uh, fast with the classified stamp? Well, I will fully agree with that, that there are too many people who have access to classified documents, and there are way too many documents that are classified to prevent embarrassment, right? not to prevent any threat to our so-called national security. And, you know, I will go even further. Uh, Trump made a big mistake when he signed the, uh, uh, the the bill that increased the penalties for violation to a felony with up to five years in prison. I'm sure he has a few regrets about that, and he's the guy who has no regrets. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think that we need full reform of the FBI top to bottom. I think that Merrick Garland has tried to get the Justice Department back on track as an independent uh, agency, but it is riddled with flaws. 
Um, I don't think that any of these flaws that I'm talking about uh, come into play so far in the Mar-a-Lago uh, search and seizure. So two things. Go, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no you go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say that um, the, these agencies have sordid histories of favoring. You know, wh where is the investigation into the uh, the real victims of Jeffrey Epstein and the multiple perpetrators who were his friends. And so the, the Trump side has arguments that they are marshalling that do create a what about sensibility. OK, and I'm not letting FBI or justice off for their failure to prosecute significant crimes and for their eagerness to prosecute political crimes right. like Julian Assange, like Reality Winner, like Ed Snowden, who's still sitting in Moscow. We may and get rid so of the Espionage Act. That's what I would repeal the Espionage Act. And I would even do it if Donald Trump gets off in this episode. I don't, you know, I don't have any kind of schadenfreude that, oh, they got Trump under the Espionage Act. Because it's a bad law, no matter who it ensnares. Mo I agree with you. Most classified material should not be classified. That's the first thing. Uh, I'd love to be able to classify uh, <laughs> everything I own and keep it from people. My a lot of things I'd love to keep secret. Uh, Merrick Garland. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt that he's somewhat smart, right? He a uh, little more honest than Bill Barr. Uh, oh yeah, politically savvy. Um, up to a point. <laughs> Do you think he knows what he's up against by authorizing the raid. He released the warrant he called Donald Trump's bluff. So it looks like he's mm -hmm. getting into the gutter with Trump. I have to th think somebody, there is a rat uh, in, in the Trump, former Trump White House. Today's uh, news is that there's more than one Mar-a-Lago informant who tipped the FBI that despite the assurances of a Trump lawyer, I think his name is Blatt, um, in May or June, that all materials had been right. returned to the archive, that it was not true. So uh, if there's more than one, uh, that, that's got to really mess with Trump's mind. Uh, but it, it does tend to substantiate the seriousness of this. And... The, the one thing that people so, jump hang on to. For one second. I'm sorry to yeah. interrupt. But that, sugge no, that suggests that some kind of crime, whether or not we agree that it should be a crime, but a crime has been committed. Yes. And by invoking and, and still Trump has not been charged on these issues. So I want to be very careful. But by invoking the Espionage Act. There are no excuses accepted. Reality Winner was not to, able to make any defense for why she released that single document to uh, uh, 
Matthew Cole at The Intercept, the multiple secret source burner. Uh, and, you know, John Kiriakou was tried under the Espionage Act and was not allowed to establish that he hadn't actually, uh, what he did was he confirmed the name of a retired agent to a reporter, and that name was never published. But just on the basis that they were able to confirm that exchange of information, uh, they convicted Kiriakou. So it's a hair-trigger law with no uh, really available defense. I don't think it belongs on our books, but uh, it is there. And by using it, uh, it is a more sure route to a conviction that would disqualify Trump from serving again. And the Presidential Records Act uh, may not be sufficient because the disqualification that would presumably occur isn't found in the Constitution. And so Sam Alito uh, could say, well, you know, we need something with a lot of history. Uh, but, uh, you know, there isn't something that sustains that beyond the uh, elements cited in the Constitution of what the qualifications are for a person to be president, that they cannot be added by statute, a congressional act. So uh, that's my understanding of, of this. And so if he is charged and convicted under the Espionage Act, it is my view as a non-lawyer that they would be able to disqualify him from any future candidacy. Right. Let me bring in, if you know, uh, we haven't seen her in a week back. I, yeah. think, I think she was at Al, uh, Albuquerque. Yes, at the uh, National Accelerator Particle Conference. Where's Almogordo? Almogordo, I think it's south. Is that where they detonated the first atomic bomb, I believe? I think. I think they they detonated a, a an atomic bomb. I think they. Uh, I was going to say the basement of the University of Chicago, but they only demonstrated uh, self perpetuating fission chain. I don't think they uh, exploded anything. We used to call it the A bomb, but the, I'm giving yeah. away my age. The A bomb <laughs> versus the mm -hmm. H bomb. Professor Marianne Cummings joins us. She's a particle physicist and the only politician, elected politician on this show, Parks Commissioner Aurora, Illinois. Let me ask you a question and then see if, uh, by the way, it's great to see you again. Uh, do you think Merrick Garland panicked? Because if you're reading these memos and you're seeing the way Trump and Fox and Bannon are dialing up the temperature. It sure looks like they're the far right or Trump is looking for a fight. And do you think Garland said you want to fight? Well, the midterms are coming up. This may be our last chance. You got one. Do you think this is if that's happening? I think that's terrible precedent. If you are kind of 
fashioning charges to fit a political agenda, I think, long term, that's going to that that's uh, that may backfire. I mean, if there is just a tremendous wave of sympathy, sympathy for Trump. But, you know, uh, well, let me let me reframe his predecessor, the um, uh, America Garland's predecessor, James Colmey. Jim Colmey, I mean, this guy, again, I thought he was trying to be too, um, he was trying to be too politically savvy. And, you know, and the result the head was, of the FBI, James Comey. Yeah. yeah. Right. When he announced that there was going to be no charges against Hillary, he should have just ended it. But then he had to make all these statements about, but I am deeply disturbed, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, okay, wait a minute. If you're deeply disturbed, charge her. If she, if you're not going to charge her, then drop it. And the result was that both sides was pissed at him. And you know, the it was whipshine with the Democratic Party. Whether we hated Colby or whether we loved him, we got to protect him. Oh, we hate him. He's like, I mean, it's like he he was doing a series of inept things. Now, the laptop, the Anthony Weiner laptop, that was a complete that that was on the Clinton campaign. You know, that was that was their own failure. I mean, that was just such extreme sloppiness that, you know, the, the FBI really was independently uh, investigating that. And they had to, like, follow through for procedure. But, um, you know, what the other thing that's kind of uh, disturbing, it, it's a little disturbing, is that, you know, I get the emotional satisfaction of, you know, wanting to get somebody that you hate, you know, we, no, that's not what I was saying. Years. That's not what I was <laughs> I wasn't saying that. Okay. What were you saying? That they are genuinely spooked by the far right, that they see a, a fascist uprising. This, I'm not, I'm yeah. saying this is what perhaps Garland sees that there's a fascist uprising and you can, uh, hear enough clips to believe that there is one. And as Frankie Five Angels says to Michael in two, we got to get him now while we still have the muscle. You know, how lame, how lame and horrible are the Democrats that they're actually worried about Trump running again and beating them? How incredible, what an enormous freaking collapse of a, you know, party. Why don't they actually do something for us? You know, well, if, do if, that. if I may, I want to come back to your comments about Comey, Marianne, because uh, and I'm not trying to quibble, but he was way out of his lane as the FBI director to make that announcement in June of 2016 mm-hmm. that Hillary would not be charged. The FBI doesn't press charges. That's the Justice that's right. Department. That, that's a very but, good point. But the final uh, Obama uh, uh, attorney general, a woman whose name is currently not at the tip of my tongue. Holly Hunter. He, no. <laughs> Holly Hunter played her on show. No, it was that. Um, yeah, uh, it was that black lady, right? It was like an old yeah. friend. Of his, right? So she had that embarrassing jet to jet meeting with Bill, with Bill. Oh, on yeah. the tarmac yeah. in Phoenix. So she was compromised. And then not only did Comey announce that there wouldn't be any charges, he 
he basically said that there was nothing in the emails that anybody needed to pay attention to. That was a very political act. And I read those emails and there was criminal activity there between the Clinton Foundation and Hillary as Secretary of State. And so there, there was something there. This feeds the grievances of the right. Mm-hmm. And they're not always rational or consistent about it because they jump from one anecdote anecdote that is justifying to their position to another anecdote. So I agree that the optics of the Mar-a-Lago uh, uh, visit <laughs> are, are not helpful, that Trump was prepared. He, you know, as soon as the agents left, he had a statement with misspellings already uh, in the pipeline and ready to release. And his, I, I watched Fox News last Monday night. They were all on message. They trotted out Stephen Miller, who, Yuck. who trotted out, uh, you know, Roman history <laughs> uh, to befuddle the Fox viewer. Right. Uh, but the talking points were Hillary did it. So why are they coming after our president? This is all political. And they were able to also argue that he had self-declassified all of this stuff uh, before he took it from the White House. And that's just enough uh, of a gray area for them to exploit. And the people who uh, we named earlier in in David's uh, very excellent piece from last week, you know, they were all on the same message point, and it worked. The This has driven uh, many Republicans who were kind of drifting away from Trump back into his arms. And we saw, you know, the attempt to breach the FBI facility in Kenwood, Ohio. That's 10 minutes from uh, my boyhood home. Uh this is the kind of thing that they are triggering. And so I really don't have any sharp criticism that Garland has allowed this to go forward. I do wonder why he waited until now, because we're told that there was a call from uh, a Justice Department lawyer to his counterpart at Mar-a-Lago telling them to put a better padlock on on this storage area. Well, why didn't they go and grab that stuff then if it is so sensitive and such a risk to our national security? I I mean, there is some precedent. I mean, despite the Sandy Berger story, which was kind of comical, but serious. uh, I mean, apparently there were a lot of Reagan people at Reagan's behalf. Well, Well, Sandy Berger Berger had to pay a fine and he was... Yeah, he had to pay a fine. And he had to give up his law. He gave up his law license. So. And he, he only had his national security uh, clearance suspended for three years. Hmm. That seems like a little bit of a slap on the wrist, you know, uh, considering that the the opposite party was in the White House at the time and he was probably not going to be tapped for a job and within the next three years anyway. I, I don't know. I just but certainly um, people working. Reagan or people working at his behest or whoever was running the show at that time uh, did make off with a, make off with a lot of uh, 
classified documents. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it seems like this is the kind of thing that, you know, the State Department lawyers call the Canada, the the politicians lawyers or something. It just like when you throw this into the political ring like that, it's just a mess. And then it just uh, it it's like a flame war. (laughs) <laughs> the old Usenet groups. I mean, it's the the one thing I take from this, though, is that um, you know Garland, I think, has some serious investigations going related to the fake electors, mm-hmm. and there may have been documents uh, that Trump took related to that that would not have been classified, but may be, may be material uh, to that investigation, and I think that's a significant area of uh, of crime that uh, is is worthy. And I do get the idea, you know, we've been dumping on Garland because we hadn't seen any uh, outward indication of progress on these cases. But this suggests that uh, there is a fair amount of activity. And coupling that with uh, Giuliani being named today as a target in the Georgia interference uh, grand jury, uh, I, I do see this building. Uh, mm-hmm. My concern is that it, it's not going to come to fruition before the Republicans take back the House and that they will move on uh, January 6th to cut funding to the Justice Department in order to hobble any further uh, attempts to go after Trump. But that has to be approved by a Senate that the Democrats are going to hold on to. If not pick well, up seats. Th- there are ways just to use obstruction tactics, David, to basically just because the House has to uh, uh, pass an appropriation bill. The Senate can't initiate it. So it starts there. And if McCarthy blocks that, then you could do uh, a lot of, of damage to the FBI and to the Justice Department just by not approving their budgets. Well, here's another thing completely orthogonal to all that. I mean, you know, I think that Trump really rattled the national security state to the extent that and and Schumer, these guys, you know, these guys live in their bubble. When Schumer admitted that, you know, if you if if you attack the FBI or you attack the, the, the CIA, they have six ways to Sunday to get back at you. Right. Effectively admitting that our democracy as it is, is kind of in the thrall of these, what uh, the right-wingers would call the the dark state, you know, or the deep Mm -hmm. state. Um, You don't think that, and and somebody like Trump, (laughs) you don't think that there are secrets that our government has that have nothing to do with national security, but are just plain evil crap that we did that they would rather not have. It's like, you know, our dirty laundry. Everybody, Dems and Republicans, probably have a gentle person's agreement that we don't air our dirty laundry. Trump, I could imagine being somebody who would have none of these sensibilities and just see. So, you know, I think it it is that. But um, Try to use, but for a second, there were 11 bankers' boxes that Trump held on to his lawyer assured Merrick Garland that they had returned all the boxes. That was a lie. There were 11 
boxes that Trump was holding on to. Don't you Copies? think? Huh? I don't know. I don't know. Copies of what they returned? I, I really don't know what's what, in them. What do you think? Just Don't you think? And I have to believe that those documents were uh, pretty incriminating. I, they have to be. Well, the question is incriminating of who? I mean, Peter rightly brought up that, you know, there's this whole international ring, uh, right. like sex trafficking ring that uh, snared many prominent politicians. of. Well both said. Countries. Well said. Yes. Yep. And I, that, yeah. Good Lord, who knows what's in these boxes? I'm saying that, you know, it's going to be played by the political actors, you know, very disingenuously. And I would say on both sides. But you're saying that they got Trump's nuclear option, that he has something that if they come for him, he's got some files that he'll release. Oh, yeah. That will. I see. That's interesting. I would, you know, not that Trump is an evil genius, but he does have some, you know, like. Tyrannosaur hindbrain type <laughs> instincts about how to survive. Oh, he has a mobster. He has a mobster mind. Yeah, um, I, I, I think you know the best speculation, and it is only speculation, speculation, is that the documents were used to keep Republicans in line, uh, and they may have been used to uh, advance the interests of Jared Kushner, who. Mm-hmm. You know, the father of the Abraham Accords, who got a two billion dollar loan from the Saudis to, you know, cover his his cash flow problems uh, over the objections of the advisors to Mohammed bin Salman. And so, uh, you know, a, a lot of people, opportunity. <laughs> well, the people on Facebook all just assumed that uh, if Trump had nuclear documents that it was in service of Putin. And honestly, I just think that's a continuation of the Russiagate smear. And I I will close with this, and I want to yield to the good but By the way, I, I but hold on to your thought for one second, what you're going to close on. This this is, I thank you both, because <laughs> there, he does have nuclear secrets, not about nuclear weapons, but they are... They are nuclear that in, in terms of how explosive they would be. Partly about himself, but I agree, you're absolutely right. The Epstein files have miraculously disappeared. Uh, there is, they listen in on every phone conversation, including Hunter Biden, who, know, who knows who else's phone conversations he had access to. So, yeah, they, uh, he was holding on to something for, for his yeah. own safekeeping. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't just souvenirs and the love letter from Kim Jong-un. Right. <laughs> yep. Uh, no. Just my final comment Never is Never occurred to me. Never occurred when, to me. When this surfaced last week, uh, it was based on anonymously sourced leaks to the Washington Post. Now, Garland effectively ended that on Thursday by releasing the warrant and its supporting documents, but not the affidavit. Right. 
Yeah, but David has a whole laundry list of, of, you know, theories about why there was probable cause to do this. But I, again, urge people to use critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And when you see reporting, even when it feeds your bias, when you sit there and say, yeah, they're going to get Trump, (laughs) you've got to look at it critically. And when the initial reports were based, especially when the nuclear word was introduced, that was all on unnamed sources who were, you know, being provided an opportunity to spout in the Washington Post. So as this began, uh, its little unraveling, uh, my bullshit detector did go off. And I said, wait a minute. Is this just a continuation of Russiagate using any means necessary to try to discredit and uh, deplatform Donald Trump? And we have to look at that critically because it does come into play. Very good. Yes, it does. Very good. A lot of critical thinking. Thank oh, yeah, you. the dreaded thinking process. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we just want to get him. We just want to nail him. Oh, it'd be so like satisfactory, but you know, um, I do. We didn't get that satisfaction with Cheney or Bush or Brumsfeld or any of those. So it's just. Uh, but by the way, when you talk about using classified information, for some reason, I it reminded me of how Dick Cheney got to be vice president, and many. People didn't really think of or write much about that process. He was in charge of the committee to vet possible vice presidential candidates for George W. Bush. Yep. So can you imagine Cheney's now got a stack of everybody's problems, problematic past and secrets. And, you know, there it is. And then he makes the decision that um, I think uh, I'm going to choose me. Mm-hmm. And there he is with a stack of. <laughs> like Republicans' dirty secrets. Yeah, he had he had a whole stack of binders, just like Mitt Romney. Yeah, binders full binders of women. Little, I think they were mostly white guys. But yeah, he had <laughs> binders. <laughs> he, had, he had the goods on everybody. I thought that was kind of a slick trick on his part. Mm-hmm. Yep, slick dick. Anyway, but it, yeah, this is, you know. One of the other things, though, I mean, who cares about what the politicians or those knuckleheads over at Fox News do? I mean, they're just they're just spin. But, you know, there are voters. This just reminds me that uh, there's like a lot of um, a lot of crap that regular Democrats give to progressives who are reaching out to Republican voters like guys, we have a lot more things in common than, you know, the the elites of both parties. And one of them is that, yeah, we've got a national security state. And even as even as Pelosi and Schumer were were nonstop talking about what an existential threat Trump was to the country, they were voting him, Trump, like increased surveillance powers. And more money at the Pentagon. Yes. But they didn't even ask for Mm-hmm. It didn't even ask for. Well, but their donors wanted them. I mean, the Pentagon, the generals of the Pentagon are one thing. But, you know, as Julian Assange said of uh, Afghanistan back in 2011, it's now jun- just one massive money operated, money laundering operation. Do you think all the money going to arms, the 
hundreds of billions being sunk there is actually fighting a war. Right. Right. I would uh, suggest that the same thing might be going on in Ukraine, which there was like about three seconds where CBS News was going to give us, you know, a little in a little view into that. And then they had to shut down, I think. Well, let's explain that they they were going they did actually report and then took down the report that their sources indicate that only 30 percent of the arms being shipped into Ukraine by the U.S. and other countries are reaching the front. And Mm -hmm. that suggests a black market. Uh, And this is one of the issues that was raised early on when, Mm -hmm. you know, we committed to supporting Ukraine. who controls those weapons uh, after this, whatever occurs, whatever the outcome mm-hmm. is, will Russia pick up those weapons off the battlefield? Is, uh, you know, is Ukraine selling them to the Saudis? Are they selling them to well, Israel? There was a story that was circulating around right before, about a week before the NPR article about all the corru- deep corruption of, of Ukraine and the government that, uh, in fact, Russia itself bought a Heimer from Ooh. that was illegally um, pilfered. And so I, I thought that then there was enough sources that it could have possibly been true. But anyway, I think that um, NPR decided to do a little damage control there by just admitting that, yeah, there's corruption in, in Ukraine and it's a problem. Scott Ritter, about two, a little over two months ago, was very disturbed about the like additional like $40 billion we're about to send over there. He said that could be a game changer. He said, not that the Ukrainian would win this war, but it really ups the possibility of very dangerous escalation. And he says, you know, those weapons, some of those weapons are going to get into the wrong hands. And in fact, last month, there was uh, there was an article, I didn't read through the whole thing, but it was the head of Interpol, you know, the, the group that warns you, you know, about imprisonment and <laughs> imprisonment and big fines if you dare, like, copy this DVD and make money off of it or whatever. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, he came out with a statement going that they're gravely concerned because now they're seeing evidence that some of these weapons are showing up, you know. There's no inspector the general. There's no inspector general overseeing our weapons. No, Why, no. You know, so Rand Paul, Rand Paul, at least I had some respect for his dad a little bit. You know, Ron Paul had some principles. You listen to that guy for about 10 minutes, you, you know, makes a lot of sense. If you listen to him for more than 15, well, you know, I don't know. But uh, at least he had some principles. But yeah. Rand Paul is such a twerp. I mean... You know, he he did do the right thing. And where was Bernie Sanders demanding that if we're going to be sending wild people are homeless and and still dying of COVID and without and, and saddled with debt, we're sending $40 billion to keep a war going. You know, shouldn't there be some accountability? And uh, Rand Paul didn't last very long. I mean, I thought he'd do a big filibuster. But, you know, my big question was, where was Bernie Sanders? This is exactly the kind of thing. Bernie Sanders should show up for and is not. Well, you know, I've followed Bernie for a long time. I love a whole lot of things about him, but he has always downplayed foreign policy and focused on domestic, you know, economic and bread and butter issues. 
And when he mentioned the 1953 coup and he mentioned Guatemala in the debates against Hillary Clinton, I was stunned. I never thought I'd live to see an American politician on that level, you know, even bring that stuff up. So he's somewhat aware of it. But he but, he ducks he ducks the contemporary uh, yeah. conflicts in foreign policy, and he doesn't take on the democratic leadership about it. And you know he can point that he voted against the Iraq War, and he you know he has a fairly decent voting record on foreign policy. But uh, I'll I'll tell you this quick story that I was uh, subbing for Tom Hartman one day. And it was a Friday and it was a regular feature where Bernie would appear for an hour and take listener calls. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we just have like 90 seconds before the show starts or that hour starts. And I'm talking to Bernie on the intercom and saying, hey, uh, you know, I've got your list of topics, but I want to start off with this development in the Middle East. And I don't recall exactly what it was, but it was, you know, a conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Oh, yeah. And he just he just flatly refused. Yeah. He said, no, we're going to talk about the bankruptcy bill. <laughs> and it wasn't my show. So I was not in a position to just ignore that. Um, but I found it very revealing that he did not want to spend mm -hmm. any time talking about uh, Israel and Palestine. He did in the 2020 race expand his uh, range on foreign policy, but it was mostly because it was Trump and not Obama whose policies he was criticizing. He is a professional politician. And, yep. you know, I, look, I've decided I'm not going to second guess Bernie. I can't be with him most of the time now. I'm totally grateful that he woke me up, that he got a lot of us like re-engaged, uh, you know, so, but it's, I guess uh, it's not on an, it's not on his shoulders. It's not on the shoulders of an 80 year, 80 year old guy to like save the world at this point. You know, yeah. let me develop. give an update on that CBS story just because oh. they've their CBS still had. I mean, it's CBS reports, which is the the gold standard of the CBS newsroom. Okay. This goes back to Edward R. Murrow. And this is what they're reporting as of August 7th. Uh, editors note this article has been updated to reflect changes since the CBS reports documentary Arming Ukraine was filmed. And the documentary is also being updated. Uh, Jonas Oman says the delivery has significantly improved since filming with CBS in late April. The government of Ukraine notes that U.S. defense attache Brigadier General Garrick M. Harmon arrived in Kiev in August of 2022 for arms control and monitoring. So according to CBS, we do have a brigadier general monitoring the arms. Uh, but is he monitoring the propaganda? That, that's true. Uh, but, hey, they told us so themselves. But here, here's here's <laughs> that they aren't corrupt. <laughs> I, I'm just yeah. re, let me just report what CBS is reporting. Okay. That's James right. Oman is founder and CEO of Blue Yellow, a Lithuanian-based organization that has been meeting with and supplying frontline units with non-lethal military aid in Ukraine since the start of the conflict with Russia uh, back in. in That's a disinterested party. Right. 
Back in April, he estimated that only 30 to 40 percent of the supplies coming across the border reached its final destination. But he says the situation has significantly improved since then, and a much larger quantity now gets where it's supposed to go. That's what CBS, there is some transparency in their reporting. I mean, you do have to give them some credit. I wouldn't hear because I view this as, uh, you know, dialing back their report to appease the Ukrainians and American supporters who who piled on. I don't I don't consider that to be journalism. Mm-hmm. OK, I'm just but I'm reporting what CBS their, their what their their story is. Mm-hmm. I, I interrupted Professor Marianne. What were you saying? No. No, I just, uh, you know, there's a lot of, look, the only, I can't pretend that I have the understanding that a Scott Ritter would have. And Scott Ritter has to be careful. I mean, not only has he been just disappeared from all these platforms, if somebody has them on their show, their show gets demonetized at the very least. And they get this. So, you know, he has to be very careful. But, um, you know, Scott, I Scott, every, spent two, Scott spent two years in prison behind false charges of yeah. uh, attempted pedophilia. I know. Hey, they can like and, mess and I, I believe I believe his denials. Yeah. But, you know, for this for this case, I mean, um, I just go to Al Jazeera has uh, every every two weeks or so I go. They have the map of Ukraine. And for all the stories that Russia's pushed back, they're demoralized, they're this, they're that, and it's all coming out of mostly Ukrainian sources. I see that landmass that's red just getting slowly but surely bigger and bigger, you know. And I thought, well, it's like um, when we have more reporters, I think there actually are more reporters on the Ukrainian side. There's been reporters on the Donbass side. There's been a disturbing trend from independent reporters. I think this uh, British guy and and a uh, German woman have been threatened by their respective governments for reporting. They're just reporting. I mean, it's not like they're 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 given state secrets or anything. They're just you know taking the microphone and going and talking to people, and they can speak the language and they can translate. But they're talking to people about what they actually experience on that side of the war. And even that is considered, and that's not anything definitive like Ukraine or Russia is winning, but just getting a different viewpoint is considered, you know, um, is is considered threatening enough that you have mm-hmm. to threaten a journalist with criminal intent just by, by reporting what they see. So, yeah. Um, but we're, uh, getting, we're getting managed information. Yeah. And this CBS report has just been further managed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to be hard to completely hide that. Um, one of the things uh, um, I've been, I get information from Ukraine about the nuclear plants from the American Nuclear Society, which just com- just passes on basically official Ukrainian st- uh, statements and the International Atomic Energy Agency. Sometimes these reports are diametrically opposed, but the uh, you know, the International Atomic Energy Agency has professionals. They are in contact. They have been fairly measured in the reporting they do. 
Well, th- this um, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant this past week is the first time when I was reading from my email that they sounded a little more alarmed and perturbed than usual. Now, uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant was taken over by the Russians in early March, and it has functioned pretty much with the same staff. It's actually been providing the Ukraine side with energy all this time. Um, it's been bombed like repeatedly in the last week or two. And the uh, situation there is getting is is alarming enough that the they've been asking both sides. There's there's a couple of uh, suggestions being floated. One of them is that that basically they're going to the IAEA is going to the United Nation and basically suggest that maybe there might be a ceasefire around that nuclear power plant. Now, that might be an opportunity for an exit ramp out of the, uh, you know, out of this quagmire right now. Yeah. I mean, I will I will criticize both sides because the Russians should not be uh, launching shells and missiles from the nuclear site. Right. And the Ukrainians should not be should not be launching that. (laughs) But you could say that, you know, like it was weird because I read a couple of stories where both Ukrainian soldiers and Russian soldiers were around Chernobyl. I think Chernobyl is still a big enough mess that it's still of international concern. So, you know, are Russia still, are they just defending this? Um, I mean, I don't think they'd be bombing a nuclear power plant in their own, in the territory that they're holding with Russian soldiers. And, you know, Eastern Ukrainians who are some of whom are very sympathetic to the Russian side rather than the Western Ukrainian side. So, Right. Yeah, I think that that could I'm I'm keeping an eye on it. The the one thing I hope doesn't happen, although they are fairly certain that there's enough um, protection around the nuclear because they're built that way to withstand, you know, huge blasts. But what if there is a cooling pond with spent fuel and that gets pulverized with one of these HIMAR launched missiles? And that sends a plume, you know, so there's a radius of, you know, you choose mm-hmm. it, 20 kilometers, 30 kilometers. You just kind of do a little circle around that point. That might be enough of a threat to Russia that they use that as an excuse to, to amp up the war. I mean, they are restrained. There's a, From the reports I've seen, there's still only about 200,000 Russian troops. And that's kind of by statute because in, Putin would have to go back to the uh, to the Duma and get explicit permission to escalate. And even though that's not exactly a democracy, I mean, you know, if, um, if you're an unpopular leader, even in the Soviet Union, you could easily be deposed. He wants to keep his popularity up. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's just kind of uh, the news from there. Great. And... Uh, David, I'd like to sign off and let the professor have have her yeah. moment in the spotlight. <laughs> Peter B. Collins. I don't, to, I don't want to dig into uh, Professor Steinel's time either, but there was good news today yes. or this past week. Um, I know maybe it's over a week ago, but apparently the Green Party is specifically uh, Matthew Ho is on the ballot in North Carolina. And, you know, what the Democratic Party was doing to keep the Green Party off the ballot was beyond the pale. I mean, they were challenging 
their signatures. They dragged it on past the July 1st deadline and said, oh, uh, can't certify because it's it. so they, of course, the Green Party took it to court. Um, but it's, you know, it, it was disturbing how much the Democrats in that state were basically uh getting it together to intimidate Green Party voters. They were going to people's houses. They were looking through the legitimate signatures, going to people's houses and basically intimidating them to try to get their to try to rescind their name on the ballot petition. So, you know, and uh, who is this guy? Um, it's kind of a the guy who's the who's the governor. So uh, what was his name? The guy who's head of the um, Bill Richardson, uh, the governor's Roy. Um, he's head of the Democratic Governors Association. Oh, you know, the group that that decided to spend millions of dollars promoting people. <laughs> right. Like the worst Republicans, people like Darren Bailey, who is now uh, the, the Republican candidate for governor in the state of Illinois. But uh, the Green Party has prevailed and good on them. I mean, the Democratic Party need to be threatened. There are some of us who are considering running as write-ins and being spoilers. Well, you, you're worried about me taking votes from you? Then why don't we sit down and talk? Because as I see it, you're as long as you play by the rules of the Democratic Party leadership, good luck trying to change that party from within. You really got to threaten them. I mean, you got to be out of hard or be disruptive and threatening to them. And the only thing they care about is, is getting voted back into their position. So. Right. Anyway, before you go, there's a interesting thing that Biden's doing. But maybe we can talk about that. I, I probably would be better if we talked about that with the professors uh, on Thursday. It's uh, basically the uh, state. There is uh, somebody, a Democrat, who's head of Florida's agricultural department is suing the Justice Department because the Justice Department has a law that now they're deciding to enforce that is denying people who are marijuana users a, a, a gun license. That is like the word. If you're trying to, like, convince, you know, gun owners that maybe a little bit of sensible gun regulations is in order. This is the worst way to do it. You're trying to convince me that somebody who uses marijuana is somehow more dangerous than somebody who drinks alcohol. Anyway, we'll talk about topic that for Thursday. Great. Yes. It's good to have you back. <laughs> Professor Marianne yeah, Cummings, Parks Commissioner, Aurora, Illinois. Follow her on Twitter at Razor Girl. Thank you. And Peter B. Collins. Go to PeterBCollins.com for a treasure trove of this gentleman's interviews and and radio shows and podcasts. Thank you. Let's go to Kansas, where the author of Saving Charlie Parker, a novel, is standing by. He's got a, a glue gun and, uh, and a marital aid for... Oh, a marital aid. Can you hear me? Yeah, marital aid for Sarah Huckabee. David, Sanders. this is a Sawzall. A what? This is called a Sawzall. It's Sawz. You can you can cut a house in half with this. Wow. I very I this have really. I'm very proud today, David. Wow. 
I replaced two two reasons. I'm very proud. You look like First my dentist. All, you, you look these. I, looking at you right now with <laughs> hygienist. Yeah, you look like you're about to look be like a team. bug. Yeah, yeah. I'm keeping the bugs. There's a lot of bugs out here. I'm at the I'm at I'm at the uh, house up in Kansas. Yay! It's hot. Dang! It's still 90 degrees right now. Hmm. The sun is down, and God, it's hot. Hey, you were great last week. Oh, David. I listened to it. it I know. The sound was horrible. It was, there was there was two things going on. I don't I know, know. I know, but we should I, try it again. It, 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 I music. was so embarrassed. I was going to appear tonight with a sack on my head. And my wife said, don't do that. That'll make David feel bad that no, he thought it was good and you me- thought it sucked. Well, no, but, but there, it, the, te- the technical problems were eclipsed by how great... The, the sound of the music was. Well, you know, people can uh, get a better idea of the, the live. We, we're on, on at MikeSteinelk.com. I'll take these off. No, keep them on. I like it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's just, it's bizarre. I, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, I replaced a rotted door sill that I think was original. So it's like from the forties. It was it was horrible in the back door, and I've been putting it off and putting it off, and and I went out there today, and it was hot. If I started at three, but I no, I started at four. I tell you what, I did. I put your show on. Boy, you're you're getting really good at the news. I think I think you, I think something you you just kind of switched gears a, a while back, and your your news things. I just learn a lot. I mean, and it's. It's always a different, you know, it's a different uh, outlook than uh, MSNBC and obviously. And um, it's some, you know, similar to Majority Report, which I love, but they don't do they do. They do guests mostly and then fun stuff. But um, but anyway, I replaced this door. You notice my self-satisfied look as you were talking, like, keep going, keep going. Well, anyway, I just think, you, and I've told you before, I think you've really got a gift for, first of all, the research is great. Keep going, keep and, going. And how you, how you play things off. I thought they, the Charlie Kirk stuff was frightening. Yeah. That was, that well, was coming frightening. Coming from you, I, I appreciate it coming from you. Uh, since you brought it up, I'm trying to do a newscast now. Yeah, that, that that's I th- what you got. That I think I would listen to that is sorely <clears throat> lacking right now. And I'm trying to be as objective as I can. Uh, I'm trying to back it up with, with facts because I... Uh, so thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, it, it's not just a rant. Don't take that wrong. But I used to love your rants. I still, I still think the... Uh, Mo Green New Deal has possibilities. Well, thank you. I, I don't. I, I sent a song. I sent something died in my garage because I got smells in this garage. Up well, here. I, I got to tell you something. Yeah, I can't believe. Were you at office hours Friday? Because I talked. Because I talked about this. I was not there. Friday. Okay, so th- this is bizarre. There is a very attractive woman who lives next door. Who- Can you say that? There's a very attractive woman who lives next door. I guess you just said it. Yes. 
And she comes over to take mice out of my mousetrap. So oh. I'm not too keen on getting rid of the mice because she comes over. and But she's concerned that the mice will spread to her apartment. And I'm not going to reciprocate. So uh, she said I needed to empty the garbage. But there was a, I said, there's a dead mouse in the kitchen. Can you smell this? Right? Yeah. And I said, can you please look for the dead mouse? And she said, no, you have to empty the garbage. And I said, there's no way that the smell from the garbage across the room is responsible for this smell. It is a localized smell between the oven and the sink. Okay. And she said, no, if you empty the garbage, that smell will disappear. I said, you, you don't know what you're talking about. But to humor her, I emptied the garbage and yeah. the localized smell that was, you could only smell it between the oven and the sink disappeared. Now, does a stink, does a smell stay in one part of a room, even though it's emanating from a garbage can all the way across the room? This is this was my philosophical that'd a, question. That'd be a good uh, that'd be a good uh, opening sentence for a novel. <laughs> There's a smell. You have to say it right. I got to tell you about. So you said my book is on Audible. My, go ahead. My go book ahead. is on Audible. Anyway, your so book thinking is about on Audible. It. Yeah, you, you finally yeah, the, got it on Audible. Yeah, I'm very proud of that. Hey, we have a message from Jeff Bezos, who owns <laughs> Jeff Bezos wants to welcome you to. <laughs> is this going to be the cash register? <laughs> welcome Mike Steinel to the Amazon family. <laughs> <laughs> oh man and then in a few days it'll be <laughs> in a few days it'll be on itunes they said but i went and bought the first one <laughs> i went and bought the first one just so i could have everybody you get a special dispensation go to audible right now amazon <laughs> and buy saving charlie parker you have permission from me jeff bezos <laughs> Yeah, do that. To go to Amazon and or Audible to purchase Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. <laughs> For more information, go to, well, don't go to SavingCharlieParker.com because then you can buy it from someplace else other than... That's Amazon. a great voice. That's a great voice. That's, uh, that's I, Jeff Bezos. I've, I've, I'm going to... I've started a new song after something you said last week, you know, I think it's uh, the, the line is the, the hook will be, I don't know about you, but I smell Nazi. <laughs> 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 That's a great hook. I, you know, uh, I, <laughs> my wife I, says, don't write that song. You'll get in trouble. I smell a it's, Nazi. I know who's a Nazi. No, you No, it's better. Not. You smell Nazi. That's smell, better. Yeah, I smell Nazi. I smell Nazi, you know. But, you know, then I started to think about what, you know, Yahtzee, uh, Hotsi Totsi. It might be a rhyming. It, right, there may be some rhyming. Uh, <laughs> Is the plural <laughs> some rhyming of Matsu, issues. Matsu? <laughs> Yeah. 
hey, I'm, I'm working on uh, novel number five. And uh, one of the things I've... You know, <laughs> I love you with the goggles on. <laughs> you look, you told on. me to keep. You told me to keep them on. So, I do what I'm told, Master. You look so stupid, David. You run the show. I, you, you tell me. You want me to? Yeah, hold it. <laughs> do it. Do it. Oh, I watched. I watched Birdman. What? <laughs> I watched Birdman. I had never seen Birdman. Have you ever seen Birdman? Is that Clint Eastwood? No, 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 no. That's the Birdman of Alcatraz. It's a, a Michael Keaton who won the Oscar. you got to oh, watch Birdman. Right. That's right. an amazing motion picture, and it's New York. It's it's Broadway. Right. And uh, But uh, <laughs> this reminds me of it. Anyway, how do you have spoiler time, alert. How do you have time to do all this stuff? David, I've been so lazy up here. My wife thinks I'm up here. I actually did a little work today, <laughs> but I played golf. Three day, four days out of five. I play golf every day except yesterday it was so damn hot. I just couldn't do it. Today I walked 18 holes. And uh, what's interesting is that I shoot this. I start to play better, but I shoot the same score every time. The only thing I can think is that I'm cheating less every day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what, you know, i I am a, I was addicted to golf at one time, really addicted to golf. And I could get there again, but it takes, it's such a time suck. Um, but here, literally, I could walk in 15 minutes across this field to the golf course. What is, if I take the car, what's well, that? Hang on, I have a serious question to ask you. Yeah. You are a genius. Nah. You are, you're a genius. Mm-hmm. You write, you perform. Isn't golf uh, an avenue of expression for people who can't do what you do? Why would you find satisfaction in golf? Mm. It's physical. I like to, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, I don't go work out. I can't, I can't do, you know, I have to play a game and uh, tennis is, I play, used to play tennis and that's too strenuous. Golf is something you can do into your nineties, you know, um, I did write a, and that's what you shoot. Actually, I shot 92. I think every day I thought the damn same mm. score every day. And I actually hit it pretty now, good you're, today. You're, you're in Texas. So when you say you shoot, I'm, I'm in Kansas, but, you, but you're from Texas. When you say shoot 92, you're talking golf and not the other thing. That's bad joke. <laughs> I apologize hey, I, for I, that I, attempted humor. I'm a little worried. In addition to these tools I have here, um, I do own a nail gun. I hope the FBI doesn't find out. That's a weird part of that story. Yeah. The guy has an AK-47 or whatever, and he comes in and shoots up the place with the nail gun? I I don't know. Uh, a nail any- gun? I mean, it could it could hurt. I don't know what these tools are. I, I I don't know how to use a tool. I I've never fixed anything. Yeah, it doesn't bring me joy. Cleaning well, brings me it, joy. I, I get joy clean, from cleaning. 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 Yes. Mm. Well, that's good. That's yeah. that's healthy. I, I I think cleaning is like writing. I think writing is cleaning up, 
And I've been cleaning my mom. I've been going through my mom's Oh, stuff. yeah, that's rough. And uh, that's a trip. And just I got a lot of lot of when I moved out here originally tonight, I thought, oh, there's no bugs. Was that a those bird, bugs. a bug or a bat? Those are not bats. Those are those are those are bugs. Those are big bugs. Yeah, they're they're buzzing around, too. I'm going to move this guy out of the way. Who? That lamp. Yeah, maybe that. Yeah, they like the light. Is it but, quiet um, where you are? Golf. What's that? Go ahead. Go ahead. I I think the golf the thing is a very interesting challenge because it is like self control. You're 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 doing something very specific and and has to be pretty exact with your body. And uh, if and what's amazing about it is it isn't necessarily a. It helps if you're strong, but the the skill is is more about uh timing and it's very musical like a golf swing is kind of musical um but i just you know like this particular course i've played a lot when i come up here and i can never break 90 so i'm i and i didn't this week either but i played better and uh but every day i just played i played <laughs> don't take this the wrong way i played with myself you know so that's that's a, so a person who the, those are the best balls you hit all day. That's right, man. Um, you know, if if you play golf and you're content to go out and play as a single, let's put it that way. I played as a single. I didn't play with myself. But then that means that you enjoy the game at a certain level that because a lot of people do it. Oh, let's, we're going to go have fun. And, you know, uh, we're going to. um and they're competitive with each other, but the real, the real competition, I remember read this in the book early on is with yourself. You're trying to do better, you know, each shot. And it has a, it's, it's a very, I've heard it explained that golf has a, a really interesting uh, reward for a, 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 a reward for good shots there because it's really easy to make a bad shot. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like you just I hit a couple today and I went like, yes, that's it, you know. And so that gets you coming back because, you know, you want to play you want to play that hole again and, and, and try to recreate that. But and now how do um, you reconcile uh, the fact being a reasonable man? How do you reconcile yes. the fact that golf is a complete waste of time played by Republican assholes? How do you reconcile hey, that? I th here's the thing. I encourage, I encourage young men and young women to play, to learn to play golf early on. I didn't start until I was 30 and I would have been, I, I run into guys that are just natural, have natural swings and not so much now in my sixties or my seventies. What am I talking about? I just You're carved off a again. decade. You're cheating. Yeah. I cheat. You're giving well, yourself that, a mulligan um, on your age. I had a few today. I had a, I'm not, I'm not Mulligan. I had a couple of what I call foot wedges, mm -hmm. you know, Trump does that. He kicks his yeah. ball into the fairway, you know, uh, but, um, yeah, I think it's a very social game because if you play, you know, if you, and I look forward to playing golf with my son-in-law, I have, uh, and both of my sons are interested in playing both of my sons-in-laws have daughters. Um, 
one has played golf a lot and the other is interested in doing it. And I look forward to doing that. And then also introducing my grandson to it, to it, right. you know, and, and cause you can play, you know, like families can play, um, together and have a good time. Right. Um, I, I, this is like up here. It's like my each morning I played first thing cause it's hot. Um, although Saturday I played nine in the morning, walked it. And then in the afternoon, I decided I'm going to drive by there. If it isn't busy, I'll pl- I'll get a cart and I'll play. I played in 103 degree heat wow. Saturday afternoon. Wow, <sighs> it was terrible. That's but I, I played see, pretty like, good. Like I want to bond with my grandchildren. That's a nice way playing golf. That would be. I was thinking yeah. I would sit with my grandchildren on my lap, go through variety, and <laughs> the Hollywood Reporter and point out all the people. I hate. <laughs> That's a good bonding exercise. Yeah. I, I love the set, uh, the, your uh, segment with Dave Cyrus. I love Wasn't you guys. Wasn't he talking funny? Him. He's always funny, but I love, I love, uh, I love his, uh, the way he uh, captures the condition of your career. I think it's, <laughs> <laughs> you got to watch Birdman. You got to watch Birdman. It's fascinating. Is it about somebody who's on there? Who? Well, I'll tell you what it's about. Michael Keaton plays a guy who had tremendous success in the nineties as mm. an action hero, Birdman. Right. And he was a celebrity, but he's doesn't feel fulfilled. So he's adapted a John Carver play and he's produced it, adapted it and directed it and stars in it. You know, it's a real vanity project. And he's, uh, I, don't know, I don't know, how old is he? He's, he looks maybe 60. But it's got some elements of fantasy. And mm-hmm. and uh, Edward, Ed Norton Jr., that guy's a good actor, man. Jeez. You know his work? Yeah. Yeah. What was Selma, he? He was Selma in that Hayek. Nazi movie, wasn't he? What? He was in that Nazi movie, one American. Uh, American Gothic. X. What's that? American X. American Maybe. history, I, American history X or something. Yeah, I think he was in that. He and, played a. Uh, I haven't seen it. And he but dated anyway, Selma uh, Hayek. Say it again. He dated Selma Hayek. Well, who didn't? That's true. <laughs> we don't talk about. Uh, she's lovely. Yeah, she's amazing. We had a bad tempestu- tempestuous relationship. You and her. Yeah, she keeps calling yeah. me. She keeps calling. It's over. <laughs> Won't let go. It's over, <laughs> Selma. Or Selma. You froze up back here. I froze? You froze. I didn't catch that line. What'd you say? It wasn't funny. Oh, okay. <laughs> so what do you think about the song, I Smell Nazi? I, I like Possibilities? that. Possibilities? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I think it's pretty good. So I like, do you have the, I, how's the police blotter in Kansas? Oh, I got the record. I got the record. I, I brought it. Not much going now, on. Was this Nadine's newspaper that she owned? Yes. We met Nadine last oh, week. Oh, yeah. She was very excited about that. And she owned this newspaper. She sold it, right? Yes. She sold it in the, when she got married. Yeah. No, I think a little bit. Well, I don't know. 2000. I think she sold it in 2000. Wow. But, you know, she... Her Beverly's father's family owned it for a hundred years, the hoax. And she married Beverly's dad after her 
her first husband was killed in uh, the Pacific. He was a pilot, mm. dashing pilot, bomber pilot. And uh, his plane had to head back. It was smoking and they never saw it again. The whole World, crew was World lost. World War II. Yeah. We're doing a thing. I think I mentioned before, we're doing a thing over in her hometown in Hillsborough, which is seven miles over there, because they've never had a marker for his, he never had a grave because he's lost at sea. Hmm. And so uh, the Veterans Administration does this thing for for uh, soldiers lost, you know, like missing or whatever. You can get a marker. So we've got a marker coming and a, and a uh, monument and we'll do a, like an, an installation. We'll have the oh, American great. Legion and she'll get a she'll get the, the flag and everything. Oh, she, wow. she never got that. She never got she got his purple heart and uh, she got the letter from the the war secretary. But, um, you know, it's, 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 and for, and for two years, he wasn't declared dead. Right. So that, that's a weird thing to carry around. But anyway, she, she met, um, then he was a little older, Beverly's father who was divorced and had a a son, Richard, but, uh, they got married and they moved to this cabin out here. This, which, what it was just a little bitty cabin. Then she, he built onto it, but, it, the the fam the paper was in her family, but then, um, Wharton Hoke Beverly's dad died when he was it, he died in 1967. So Nadine just had to take over the paper as a young woman in her 40s, and um, she would have been well 67. She's born in 22. So what would she be? 45, and she just did. She became the she became the publisher. Wow, you know. And kept that thing going and, uh, you know, invested her money and was able to sell the paper to um, the the guy who became the editor. Then he became the publisher. He was a good writer. It's full of good writing. Um, interesting. So the name of the newspaper is The Record. What, give, the Marion give, County Record. What, what county? Marion County. Ma- Marion County Record. So people yeah. should subscribe to that. They, they screwed up uh, this house. They had a housing project and they were supposed to get grants to build 28 houses, rental houses, small rental houses north of Marion. And they did something wrong on the uh, on the application. So the thing was rescinded. Uh. You know, tough, tough times. Unpaid taxes shoot up three point four percent. The rate of unpaid taxes in this county is sixteen percent. Wow! And they they publish who they publish the names and a couple of names I recognize, a couple of businesses, you know. So, That's, you know, I think what uh, I was I saw signs for different uh, community colleges that are doing things classes in Marion for like welding and. Uh, technology and nursing they come over here give classes i i really think that if biden would do forgive loans to community colleges that would have great impact in these little these little towns that have kind of emptied out in the last 40 years absolutely community colleges should be the lifeblood of america they are the factories they maybe this new chips act He's pumping hundreds of billions of dollars into scientific research. Maybe some of that 
I doubt it will go towards community colleges. But yes, yeah. that's the way to save communities because it's, you build a community college and there are all these jobs that service the community college. Yeah. 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 Is it quiet it's, where you are tonight? Oh, it's amazingly quiet. And the we have a little cloud covers. Sometimes the stars are really beautiful. Somebody's got a uh, fire pit going somewhere. I get a little bit of, you know, it seems awful hot to run a fire, but people like the atmosphere of that. But it's cooling off a little bit now. You should play, you should use all your tools and try to make music with them. Because I would assume they all have, what like what note? Bum, 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 bum. Bum, 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 now you're talking. That's a that's a crude one, isn't it? This thing like is you. really dangerous. I can, I this sawed off sheet metal that I had to saw off that was up against the house. Uh, it's got a blade that'll cut metal and stuff, and but it really it jerks your jerks your arm. Could it cut a burrito? Powerful. Is it strong enough to cut a burrito at Chipotle? Absolutely, man. Wow, that's, that's you could you could uh, like what note could, is that when when you play that? Can you tell I don't me? have that kind of thing, and that really isn't a note. That's that's a whole bunch of notes in there. I don't know. I had a friend who had perfect pitch, and he he lived with another friend, and they both had perfect pitch, and they would do like they'd sit in the. I was with them in the kitchen, and they go. And the guy go E flat. No, no, it's D sharp. <laughs> and he'd hit he'd hit the table and he'd go like, what's that? That's it. That's nothing. You know, they were they were amazing. I, the two greatest uh, musicians that I know personally, I think uh, one is uh, passed away. He was Bob Bell, and he became uh, head of A and R for Blue Note Records, hmm. and um, and. Did got a Grammy for his liner notes for these Miles compilations. Bob Belden, genius, genius musician, and um, the other guy is Jim Powell, who played in New York for a long time. Wow! And uh, hey, I, I'm working on novel number. I guess it's five, if you count so you the skip, four. You skip three. That's good. That's no, no, no. Um, three is uh, Saving Charlie Parker. Well, what happened There's to four? It started. That was the. Um, that's still there in the back burner. But I got a new one that I think is going to be interesting. But you know what the problem is? Coming up with character names. I've been listening to um, um, Tale of Two Cities. Wow, on uh, on Audible with. Can, um, I, can I give you a, a secret that somebody very smart taught me? Okay, good. I, I, I won't tell you who taught me this, but go to your. Uh, junk mail. Yeah, those were all the names. Th those are the names. Just look at look at anybody who sends you junk mail, and use oh. those names. <laughs> so let's see: Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi. Corey no, I can't Booker. use this. I I need no. I need nondescript. No, but it, where's my junk mail? I'm looking at my junk mail. That's where you Here's find what? great names. I, you know what they do is uh, after a while when you block people, then they get like other people, you know. And by the way, 
I don't want to wish Barack Obama. I like Barack Obama, but I don't want to wish him a happy birthday. He's got a family to celebrate his birthday. Is it and then it's his birthday? Chuck Schumer. No, but you get these. It's Barack's birthday. Say, you know, sign the petition, you know, and every, you know, every, it's Nancy Pelosi's birthday. It's Chuck Schumer's birthday. It's, you know, um, but, you know, I gave money to the Democrats and in, in, um, so I'm on a lot of lists in 2008, I gave just a little bit of money and, uh, my pet peeve is they've spent it all on postage, mailing me stuff. And there was a time every day, something from Nancy Pelosi every day. She keeps saying, gotta, yeah, she will, will not leave me alone. She wants me to give her. I would never give Nancy Pelosi money. Despicable. She's. Just, oh, hang on. Let me see if Despicable. I can. Got to play that. Hang on. I need a better system here. I was working on the, the "You're Despicable," a, a song from David Feldman. I wrote some lines like, uh, "He likes his lunchable, and his face is punchable." I like that. I should be able to find this stuff much quicker. Yeah, come on. Well, I, hang on. You haven't been using much of your sound effects lately. You need to get on that, David. I was using it today. With 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 Cyrus a little bit. Hey, John Ross, what a funny guy, man. I follow him on Twitter. Yeah. You guys have a feud, right? No, we don't have We've a feud. We've decided... That, oh, here it is. Despicable. <laughs> Disgusting. Do it again. Sickening. <laughs> Disgusting. Uh, <laughs> You're despicable. That's the best one. Sickening. Sickening. Despicable. Despicable. She's despicable. And now her daughter. They're saying that her daughter's going to take her seat. Oh, God. Why? John, John Russ tweeted, uh, Donald Trump is the greatest job creator the legal profession has ever known. <laughs> that's that's funny. He has COVID. Ross? Oh, no. Well, <laughs> is he okay? Say, yeah, he's is okay. He? The tweets, they were, I, we were going back on tweets. I can't even read <laughs> Which I wish I could. They were so profane. Uh, well, how come I didn't see him? I didn't see any profane. No, no, no. You, Did you I were, see tweets? I, I'm sorry. Me, uh, messages. Messaging. Yeah. yeah okay. And we're sending each other really dark. Uh, hey, should we play the uh, Liz Cheney? Died song? in my garage. Well, first we got Liz Cheney's going to lose tomorrow, right? So what do you want to play? Oh, do you have that? Do you have the yeah. Liz Cheney song? Then we'll play Something Died in My Garage. Okay. Well, you don't have to play it. Really I, I haven't heard course. Liz Cheney in a while. The Gentlewoman from Casper is... Yeah, poor uh, thing. Yeah. She's, Tomorrow's going to be tough. I think she's going to lose to this person. I am going to reclaim Wyoming's lone congressional seat from that Virginian who currently holds it. That would be uh, Hageman. Hag, Hag, Hageman. Anyway. I love that show, The Virginian. Right. There was, was a there was a very attractive woman on that. Who was that? 
Was that Chuck Connors? No, no, no. He was the rifle man. Oh, right. Yeah. He was rough trade, Chuck Connors. He was? Yeah. There was uh, some stuff about him that he... <laughs> I don't want to go into it. All right. Let's... His son was Luke. Remember Luke? I It plays on MeTV. And if I have... A, I love a... MeTV. We watched that. We watched Andy Griffith a lot. Which is the close... Jeff Garland said to me... There are two things that are gifts from God, baseball and the Andy Griffith show. <laughs> is that true? Is the Andy Griffith show? It's pretty dang good, you know, and the music by, uh, uh, oh, uh, Earl Hagen. Right. He did that thing. Everybody, everybody. The Andy Griffith show. Not, I'm not the themes, but but if you listen to the the underscore, he's got little, there's little musical jokes and and just you know like he just he captures it and it's woodwinds beautifully you know like it's old school hollywood um you know film scoring mm -hmm. you know he was he was outstanding a lot of um harlem nocturne is his big uh harlem nocturne is his big uh well the crickets in kansas have cell phones yeah <laughs> That was that was the bass player you heard play uh, Turtle. I don't, I don't know what he wants. What time is it? Time to play. Yeah, we should we should call it a show. Let's uh, let's play the Gentlewoman from Kansas from Casper. Okay. Yeah, and then we'll play something died in my garage. Hang on, let me find it. Okay. stands and resets I'm ready to go I said I'm a little nervous can we have a muffin she said don't be scared little man they don't call me gentlewoman for nothing I had a dream last night and Liz Cheney was there Thank you. 
last night I was making green tea Liz Cheney was in the kitchen And she was coming on to me She said she's ready to go She was hot to trot I was really kind of scared I was frozen on the spot She said, all we need to do is put our politics aside Then I can take you on that magic carpet ride I had a dream last night And Liz Cheney was there Farewell, Liz Cheney, gentlewoman from Casper. We hardly knew you. Yeah. You th there's no way she, she's going to win tomorrow. Sarah Palin may go to Congress. Boy, that'll that. be fun. Yeah. You think Marjorie Taylor Greene is feeling threatened? I'd like to see the two of them on Jeopardy. Yeah. <laughs> Sharing... One brain cell. <laughs> uh, let us do something died. It, what, now, what is this called? You you sent it as something serious for Feldman. Yeah, I, I was trying to fool you. You the first time I sent it, I I didn't want to give the title away. Okay. I wanted to see your uh, expression when I when it, it came out. Right. So this was something died. In it's based on a true story. Yes. Okay. Uh, something died in my garage. Is that what it? Garage, garage, as they say something. in uh, Britain. And at office hours, they th they thought you said something died in my crotch. Do you remember that? Yeah, those people. I mean, I'm from Kansas. We wash, we wash our hands. What the hell is that? That might have been a bat. Um, we wash our hands and we park our cars in the garage. This One is, syllable, garage. This is, this is uh, Donald Trump. Listen to how he pronounces law. On political corruption, we are going to restore honor to our government. In my administration, I'm going to enforce all laws concerning Lawers. the protection of classified information. That's, he said in 2016 he, he was going to protect... That's all. a New York thing, isn't it? Lori, or, or, yeah. I think he... I, I don't know. Okay. Let us do something died in my garage. Where is it? There it is. Here we go. Something died in my garage Yes, indeed Something died in my garage I don't know what it could be 
Something died in my garage. Beautiful. Music. I like that. I like that little groove. I like yeah. that little groove. I think they're uh, five Mike Steinells. That's what I think. I don't think there's one Mike <laughs> Steinell. How can there be one Mike Steinell? Jazz trumpet. Oh, David, David. You know, I just, I just got a lot of, lot of time on my hands because I'm retired, David. You got to. I look forward to the time when you can retire. What would you do though? When I could retire? Yeah. You'd just do a podcast. Uh, I don't read that petition that's been circulated. <laughs> Mike Steinell is a jazz trumpeter, composer, and educator, member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty from 1987 to 2019. He is the author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary, and his new book on jazz is Running the Changes. These are the five books that you should buy if you're trying to learn, or four books you should buy if you're trying to learn or teach jazz. His most recent release is Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet, Featuring Rosanna Eckert. It's out on Origin Records. For more information, go to MikeSteinel.com. Not only that, Mike Steinel is a writer of fiction. The author of Saving Charlie Parker, a novel published by Dorance Books. To know more, check out SavingCharlieParker.com. Go to SavingCharlieParker.com, get the audio version of the book, the hardcover version of the book. If it doesn't blow you away, I will reimburse you. That's the Feldman guarantee. It gets the, And the CD is available, too. And the CD... Of the, of the music, yeah. It's called The Suite. Saving Charlie Parker, The Suite. And where do you get that? <clears throat> I th oh, you know, maybe it, any day now it's going to be on, uh, it'll be on Amazon. It's CD Baby, but they'll put it up. It'll be on all platforms all soon. Platforms through CD Baby. <laughs> it'll be on Spotify. Oh, man. Go uh, I'm sucked into it. I'm, I'm in Amazon hell, David. Support me. <laughs> All right. I love you, buddy. Oh, hang on. There we go. Uh, I, I love you, Mike Steinel. I think my hair is too tight. There we go. All right, David. All right. 
Give See my you next week. I'm Nadine. going back to Kansas tomorrow. I'm, I mean, I'm going back to Texas tomorrow. My wife made a peach pie and she saved me a piece. Oh, peach pie, peach with pie. homemade crust. Mm. You're living, living the life. What can you I are. say? Pretty good. A little disappointed to find out that you like golf, but nobody's I perfect. <laughs> hey, every what every president since um, FDR who couldn't play golf. I think he played when he was a young man. <laughs> he was in a wheelchair. Oh, you okay? He played wheelchair. Can golf, you imagine if every Fox president News was has, around back? What's that? If Fox News was around, they would insist. Oh God, God, that, they would. But you know the guy in the guy in um, Texas, the governor has navigated that disability without any problem. Does he play? Does Abbott play golf? No, I don't think so. But every president has played golf, and some of them are, you know, like Eisenhower played a lot of golf. Obama played golf. We know Trump did. But uh, so another you know, reason, another reason not to play golf. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, all right, all right. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinhauer. See you, David. All right, thank you. Today's show, and everybody should go to MikeSteinel.com and. Buy his stuff, support his music. Uh, he's a genius. He really is. He's an absolute genius. Today's show is produced by Dan Frankenberger. Great job on Stump the Humps today, Dan Frankenberger. Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, Professor Jonathan Bick, and Hannah Fartman, and Grace Jackson. I don't think Grace Jackson is listed there. And we're having dinner or something with Grace Jackson on Wednesday. That's exciting. We also have mods who keep the chat room honest. And I don't have their names because the somebody here is on vacation, was supposed to come back a little, supposed to come back earlier, Hasn't come back, so my one sheet is unavailable. And usually that's how I communicate with everybody uh, who produces this show. So thank you to the mods. I will read your names uh, when my one sheet returns. But you do a great job uh, in the YouTube chat room. We, we have a, uh, a chat, a, a YouTube channel. So please subscribe to that. And I want to thank everybody who uh, showed up to our virtual studio audience. Let me go into our virtual studio audience and say hello to everybody in the chat room. God, you These are the people who live in the chat room. And they are just sickly... Disgusting, disgusting people. How do you live this way? Uh, anyway. We have a YouTube channel. Please, uh, please subscribe to our our YouTube channel. I gotta leave the. Uh, I gotta leave you here. No, I can't bring you back into the real world. 
you have to stay. You have to stay in the chat room and, and correct me. That's... No, this is... You brought this on yourself. Nope. I'm leaving. No. Just make your snarky comments. Yep. Bye-bye, chat room. You're on your own. Ugh, I'm going to take a shower. Filthy, filthy people in our Zoom room. Ugh, disgusting. Uh, if you would like to join those pigs, <laughs> go to my website and hit attend a live taping and you can sit in our <laughs> virtual studio audience and undermine the show. And while you're over there, sign up for my newsletter. It includes an invitation to office hours. It comes out every Friday, and we do office hours every Friday. Rodrigo. Rodrigo. Hi, David. I uh, what's it to like living? About... How can you live in that chat room with everybody? I live in the YouTube chat, too. It's fine. You, you're, you're, you're happy living in that that cesspool of a chat room. Yeah, I've seen worse. Okay. All right. So David Graeber's last book, published posthumously by his writing partner, David Weintraub, opens by explaining why we believe the things we do about prehistoric societies. About 200 years ago, natural philosophers began to ask themselves what did prehistoric societies look like? Did every society and city have kings and emperors? And Rousseau and Hobbes grow two different stories that personified their thoughts on the subject, then everyone chose sides, and no one ever asked, but what if prehistoric societies looked more like communism? Prehistoric, prehistoric societies. Yes. Like, that, like you're talking about the Flintstones. You mean the Jetsons? No, the Flint the Flintstones were pre. Go ahead. So a hundred years later, the founders of white feminism in the United States were rewriting history to leave out black feminists. Two or three decades later, there were hundreds of black and socialist majors, and the long quest to write them out of history began. And a few months ago, we saw both the shitlips and the overt white supremacists misquote Martin Luther King Jr. to convince their followers that they have built the best possible society and racism doesn't exist anymore and everyone needs to get back to work. And of course, almost half a thousand years ago, a Portuguese writer had to come up with a reason for the king to be okay with slavery of people who spoke their own languages and not European ones. Let me restate that. Racism was invented to justify to justify selling people to make money. You'll have to read a book or two to discover that I'm not exaggerating here, but the point is that this is not Biden, Pelosi, and Tucker Carlson shamelessly misrepresenting MLK Jr. quotes. What they're doing is part of a centuries-old project to regret all the inconvenient bits out of, of accepted official history. It's not just Trump types carelessly repeating the stories they misremember. It's what the belief in current society is based on. When we ask if we can have socialism or at least make 
capitalism more fair, we're treated to condescending history lessons about how democracy is much better than every political system we'd had before and how we wouldn't have modern medicine or the internet a hundred years ago. This leaves out not only that Jonas Salk didn't patent the polio vaccine and the guys who had the insulin patent sold it to the University of Toronto for one dollar each. This continues the lie that you need to have capitalism if you want democracy. But if you start talking about the one-third of humanity that is constantly trying to survive on less than two dollars a day, they will condescendingly educate you about how banana republics don't have real democracy. And if you ask about all the countries where the CIA deposed a leader for not being scared enough of socialism, or actually more often, because they didn't accommodate US conglomerates fast enough, they'll tell you about the 100 million people socialism supposedly killed. You can then start talking about the dozens of thousands that were dying in the United States every year because they wouldn't go to the hospital until it was too late, before the pandemic, of course. And eventually you'll go round and round until you're back at this completely artificial link in people's minds between capitalism and democracy. We don't have time to dismantle all the lies, but a good beginning is calling out when the conservatives try to rewrite history in real time. Uh, also, Netflix bought the rights to a Korean TV series called Squid Game, where poor people participate in a dangerous reality show to entertain rich people. My friends in IT think the translators got paid to do a job and shouldn't ask for more money just because it did well. They think this way because they've been trained that you get asked to do a job, you do it well, and you don't ask for more money because sales are going up. What I have tried and failed to explain to them is that the translators made $6,000. Netflix made half a billion dollars on this show, and here's the important part. The reason the translators don't get a bonus is the same reason GOP candidates are talking on TV about killing their own children to protect their guns. The system is not broken or a bit overwhelmed with bad apples. What we think of as a broken system is the system working as it's supposed to do. And we need to keep trying to explain this if we want real instead of cosmetic change. And finally, the cartel is pronounced Arellano Felix. And today, one of our YouTube mods got a shout out on the majority report from one of the frequent callers, Choking on Ashes 61. Although she, he spells it Choking on Ashes. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Rodrigo. That is, uh, I think that's the show, right? Pretty great. Thank you to all our guests, Pascal Robert, host of the This Is Revolution podcast with Jason Miles, Dave Cyrus. Thank you. Great job, Dave Cyrus. Thank you, Dan Frankenberger, for stumping the humps. I think I won. Dr. Harriet Fraud, Professor Adnan Hussein, Peter B. Collins, Professor Mary Ann Cummings, and Professor Mike Stey. Now, that's it. That's the show. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and give us a good review. That helps. Share this show with your friends. We have a YouTube channel. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Give us a good review. 
share it with your friends. I leave you now with more music from Professor Mike Steinell from Saving Charlie Parker, Here is Turtle. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak.
Ve bir NASA'nın girdiler. 